Good evening, everyone. For those who are both in the chambers as well as those who are online, and she just said, stop talking. Okay. <laughs> And now, take two. Good evening, everyone. Uh, thank you so much for gathering with us for this, the African-American Reparations Advisory Committee meeting. We will call the meeting to order. Uh, I am Eric McDonald. I have the privilege of serving as chair. Uh, I want to, as always, thank our Human Rights Commission staff, John McKnight, Amelia Martinez-Bankhead, Zach Manuel, and Jeanette Coates for providing technical assistance with today's meeting. Also want to thank uh, Brittany Chiquata, Joel Stewart, Nicole Elmore for their work in the Economic Rights Division of HRC, who provide fantastic, again, and ongoing support to the committee. Uh, Secretary Morky-Meyer, do we have any announcements? Uh, yes, we do, Chair. This evening's meeting is being held in San Francisco City Hall, 1 Dr. Carlton B. Goodlett Place in Room 400. Members of the public can join us in person or participate remotely. And I just want to welcome all the members of the public that I see here tonight. Public comment will be available on each item on this agenda. Each speaker will be allowed two minutes to speak. People attending... In person will be called first, followed by those who are participating remotely. Anyone calling in, please mute your phone until asked to speak, and please use the raise hand icon to indicate you would like to participate in public comment. Thank you so much. Uh, now for our ancestral acknowledgement, I'd like to invite Gwendolyn Brown. Member Brown, please. Thank you, Chair. We honor the gifts, resilience, and sacrifices of our Black ancestors, particularly those who toiled the land and built the institutions that established the city's wealth and freedom, despite never being compensated nor fully realizing their own sovereignty. We acknowledge this exploitation of not only labor, but of our humanity, and through this process are working to repair some of the harms done by public and private actors. Because of their work, we are here and will invest in the descendants of their legacy. Excellent. Thank you so very much. And for our land acknowledgement, Member Taylor, please. We acknowledge that we are on the unceded ancestral homeland of the Ramatouche Ohlone, who are the original inhabitants of the San Francisco Peninsula. As the indigenous stewards of this land and in accordance with their traditions, the Ramatouche Ohlone have never ceded, lost, nor forgotten their responsibilities as the caretakers of this place, as well as of all peoples who reside in their traditional territory. As guests, we recognize that we benefit from living and working on their traditional homeland. We wish to pay our respects by acknowledging the ancestors, elders, and relatives of the Ramatouche community and by affirming their sovereign rights as First Peoples. Again, we acknowledge our ancestors and appreciate our First Peoples. Thank you both. Uh, Secretary Meyer, please, next item. Um, next item is um, call to order and committee roll call. I will announce each member's names and they will announce if they're present. We do have two members who are participating remotely at this time. Um, first, um, James Lance Taylor. Tanish Hollins. Eric McDonald. Present. Reverend Dr. Amos Brown. Rico Hamilton. Present. Nicole Cunningham, Gloria Berry, Daniel Landry, Present. Tiffany Carter, Gwendolyn Brown, Present, Anita Ekenem, Present, Star Williams, Present, Shikalo Kane, Leticia Irving, 
we have quorum. The meeting can be called to order. Thank you very much, Madam Secretary. I um, want to remind everyone attending this evening with who are intending to share a public comment um, that we should relate, should be related, excuse me, to the specific agenda item being discussed and fall under the purview of this committee. The committee secretary has been directed to ask commenters to stay on topic one time, and then we will cut the microphone off. We don't want to come to that, but in order to adhere to both our time and moving the moving meeting forward, we need to ask you to adhere to that. So those providing public testimony should address their remarks to the committee as a whole uh, and not to individual committee members or department personnel. If you're intending in person and would like to provide public testimony, please fill out a speaker card located on the table where the meeting documents uh, are displayed. Uh, Secretary Maya, please call the next item. Item number two is a preliminary report on African-American Reparations Advisory Committee focus groups convened by the Urban and Public Affairs Mastered Students at the University of San Francisco. Um, we'll hear a presentation from the University of San Francisco Community Engaged Research Methods, Masters in Urban and Public Affairs class, Dr. Rachel Brahinsky, um, supporting African-American Reparations Advisory Committee by conducting interviews and surveys with community stakeholders, developing questions, protocols, and interview Subject list based on research priorities identified by the committee members, community members, and the Human Rights Commission staff, and attending public events related to the reparations effort. We will also hear a presentation by Dr. Kirby Lynch, Director of Research at Sears Policy Research, and um, Dr. Lynch will be our first presenter this evening. Thank you so much. Uh Members, you can come this way, Dr. Lynch. I'm just going to invite uh, our director, Chiquata, ch to laud over you just for a moment by introducing you, and then we will invite you to speak. John, the um, most recent presentation I just sent is, yes, that's the presentation. Thank you, John. Good evening, members of the committee, members of the public. Brittany Chiquata, Director of Economic Rights at the San Francisco Human Rights Commission. And I briefly just wanted to welcome Dr. Kirby Lynch, who is working to support the African-American Reparations Advisory Committee um, in data analysis and spatial analysis of um, land acquisition that had happened during redlining. So as mentioned by Chair McDonnell, Dr. Lynch serves as Director of Research for Series Policy Research, focusing on community reinvestment, racial equity analysis, and state-sponsored gender-based violence. Dr. Lynch holds a PhD in geography from UC Berkeley, and her dissertation surveyed the practice of redlining in San Francisco from the 1950s until the 80s. Welcome, Dr. Lynch. All right, uh, good afternoon, Commission. Thank you all for having me. Um, so the title of my presentation is called Reparations and Spatial Justice. Um, you can stay in contact with me with my email right here. I'm presenting on behalf of my colleague, Nicofor, um, who's the CEO of Truebill and Company, which is a GIS data um, analysis firm uh, where we're doing this work collaboratively. Next slide. So just want to kind of ground what my work with you all and the work I'm trying to support you all with is GIS data spatial analysis, which is again, GIS is short for geographic information systems. This is a really accessible way and a really like innovative technology to look at all of the 
parcel history of land, um, particularly in this case, that was acquired during urban renewal and try to make some assessment and connection to how, you know, those parcels could eventually uh, be reclaimed by this reparations process. Uh, first got connected with the reparations uh, commission, um, just through Anita, uh, member Anita Ekonom, where I introduced that other municipalities like Asheville, North Carolina, were using these methods um, to identify city-owned property that was acquired during urban renewal. And many of those properties are now being discussed as um, being reclaimed by community to support their reparations efforts. So we adopted a similar methodology, but we've actually extended it out um, to serve the purposes of San Francisco. Next slide. Also just want to let you know that this is also on trend with other counties in California. So Los Angeles County has a spatial uh, GIS project for its black community. It's called the State of Black um, Los Angeles, where you can go on their website and look at different uh, quality of life metrics that they have um, determined to be a part of their reparations framework, um, but also serve as a baseline for uh, Los Angeles County to measure growth and quality of life outcomes five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now. So really want to be thought partners in what data do we have available that can show the baseline today on what needs to be worked on and what we can hold the county and city um, accountable two years to come. So next slide. So again, we draw a lot of inspiration from other um, municipalities and jurisdictions and how they do GIS spatial projects, but we know that San Francisco is very unique. You're looking at an image from the Unfinished Agenda, which was published in 1992, where we can see that the black population, again, exploded from 1930 up until 1970. We see that the, the metric stopped in 1990s. Next slide. But it's really the goal as us as data specialists to make meaning of you know population and the black population in San Francisco and different experiences that they've had in the city. So a part of our work is looking at spatially what's going on with the land and value. But another aspect of our work is to really look finitely into the population and kind of give you those metrics that show disparity amongst the population. So we're you know providing data visualization to you all in this process. Next slide. The reason why data visualization is really important because we have um, these statistics that sometimes need to be colored in and sometimes need to be explained more, um, like this one about the length of life where we see just a huge disparity in um, potential years of life life lost for Black San Franciscans. We see that San Francisco, um, and you can find these data on county health rankings, we see that uh, you know there's a pretty great quality of life here in San Francisco. But from this statistic, when we disaggregate it by race, we see that Black people by large are facing premature death. So this metric um, says that in total, there's about 14,900 um, Black folks that are um, going to be faced with premature death, which is passing away before the age of 75. So this is a numerical number, but how do we make stats like this come to life and uh, have a real meaning in our presentation to the public? Next slide. How we plan on doing that is by providing you two kind of work products that can aid in some of the community outreach efforts and community education. The first deliverable will again be the state of Black San Francisco, where we're taking a lot of contemporary data from 2000, 2010 to 2020 census and American Community Survey and just highlighting uh, community disparities at different census track levels. We're really taking the 
the priority zip codes that were used in the Dream Keepers Initiative, along with highlighting communities like Tenderloin, Sunnydale, um, OMI, to highlight, okay, what are those disparities in comparison to other communities in uh, San Francisco? The other work product we're going to be providing is just a narrative about urban renewal and Black displacement in San Francisco. And this will be in the form of a story map. So it's like an online tool where people can interactively ask their own questions about what has happened since urban renewal. We're actually visualizing redlining maps, digitizing them. Um, we're putting the displaced addresses on a map so people can click on them, see the last value of that land and even comparing to current day value of land that was lost during uh, urban renewal. And we hope that all of these tools will aid you in making the case for the dollar amount for reparations. Next slide. So getting in specifically about what data we're trying to put on this story map um, format or kind of portal is we're gonna be giving general demographics. So we're we're gonna be showing total population of the black community. We're gonna visualize it at the census block level. So you'll see like on Google maps, like where are black people living? And we're also going to be visualizing that with dot density. So showing is there concentration of black folks living in certain areas? Again, really getting down to percentage of black populations in certain parts of the city. We're gonna be able to break that further down into populations and percentages who are living under the poverty level, we're going to be visualizing housing, 2022 home values. And again, all of this is important to visualize because you can clearly see that previously redlined communities and communities that are majority black have low value. And we're trying to, again, compare this to other spots in the city to show that concentrated disadvantage. We will visualize, again, other metrics in the American Community Survey that can just be easily accessible and for the wider community to understand about the current state of Black San Francisco. So that includes language, that includes households with internet uh, access, that include um, adults with no high school diploma. We'll be looking at those with SNAP benefits, those who have health care, et cetera, et cetera. So you all can have an accessible way to look at the current state of the community. Next uh, slide. So again, this is just um, a little view because I can't really control the web map myself. Um, these are just some screenshots from our map, but as you can see, we're really, again, focusing on the priority zip codes that were outlined in the Dreamkeepers Initiative, where there was targeted funding uh, for programming. So these are, again, our, like, uh, our template of how we're gonna be comparing and contrasting data. Next slide. So within that, um, we have plotted over 5,600 displaced addresses on the map currently. And as you can see in those DKI priority zip codes, the majority of those displaced addresses took place in those um, zip codes. Next slide. Oh. And again, our team digitized the redlining uh, areas in uh, the GIS platform. And as you can see, Again, in those DKI priority zip codes, those are majority redlined communities. So just trying to follow the logic here with some of the programming and planning that you all will be getting into, but helping you all just articulate this story um, to the broader San Francisco community about the real impacts of redlining. Next slide. So what does this mean? So yes, we're visualizing all of these data points, but we're also running um, statistical tests. So our first test is gonna be looking historically, looking at redlined communities and actually measuring how over time would an example, a D neighborhood 
how has that D neighborhood compared to an A neighborhood um, in the contemporary? So we're able to see that these red line communities through data have no real investment in resources. So again, we're gonna be doing linear regression and we have an amazing computer scientist on staff who is running all of these tests for us, but they'll be actually um, done in a way on the platform for you all to toggle around with and play with. Next slide. Another aspect of our GIS MEP is we'll be doing comparison analysis. So again, we'll be taking um, the baseline of many historic black neighborhoods and those DKI priority neighborhoods and showing the differences in access in comparison to other um, communities who are outside those priority areas. So again, we're trying to measure median income, number of poverty, below federal poverty line, children in poverty. These are some of the metrics we're using just to show that concentrated disadvantage that exists in historic Black neighborhoods, DKI priority zones, in comparison to other neighborhoods. Next slide. Again, this is just an example of some of the views that you'll be able to see and toggle around with. Next slide, population under poverty level. Again, going into home value, as you can see over there by Hunter's Point, um, lower grayed out property value, um, green property value in the center of the city. Next slide. And again, just things about infrastructure access. You know, we're really interested in looking at telecommunication lines, how um, areas across San Francisco don't have even access to being online, right? And this is just a greater note about the lack of infrastructure development in Black communities. So again, these are tools that we'll provide to you all that the community can start asking questions of themselves. So. Next slide. So I didn't get a chance to visualize the the map, but if you go to tinyurl.com SF Reparations map, there's a YouTube video where you can see some of the views that we're using and um, ask questions of it. Um, the eventual plan is to have this deliverable um, given to uh, the staff at the HRC by April 27th. They'll give us feedback, but it should be ready to launch in the first week of May. So it could be a part of the advocacy efforts in the community. Um, a part of our May plan is also to host webinars so we can teach the community how to use the tool, how to ask questions of it. So again, if you have any feedback or specific um, areas or pictures that you want to see, um, please let us know and, and reach out on email. We're very open to accommodating. And that's it. Thank you. Thank you so much. So we will hear, we're going to come back to you with questions. Uh, we're going to hear first from another partner from USF. So we're going to invite Manager Joelle Stewart from HRC, excuse me, Economic Rights Team uh, to make the presentation of our USF team. Uh, and then we'll come back for discussions, questions with both presentations in the backdrop. And Thank while, you. While Joelle's coming up, I did want to um, have Kathy record that we have um, Reverend Amos Brown, who's joined us virtually, Member Cunningham, who's joined us virtually, Vice Chair Hollins, who's joined us virtually, and I was remiss in not welcoming and acknowledging Director Cheryl Davis, who is also with us virtually. And uh, beyond those folks, also want to say thank you to the 135 virtual community members who are with us. Thank you very much. Okay. Mr. 
Thank you. Um, thank you to the chair, um, the members of the committee, and the members of the public. I am Joelle Stewart, and I'm just I'm introducing the our partners from USF. But by way of that, um, you know, to make that introduction, I wanted to get share a, a little bit of context. So I just have a couple of minutes to um, go through um, some of the updates that we have with our um, research. So thank you, John. Next slide. Next slide, please. Thank you. So you can go on to the next one. Um, I wanted to share a bit about our partnership with USF. The HRC, our division, the Economic Rights Division, partnered with two classes at USF, an undergraduate class taught by Dr. Stephanie Sears, as well as a graduate class taught by Dr. Rachel Brahinsky. And the students from the graduate class are the ones that are here with us this evening virtually. Um, so similar to other reparations initiatives um, around the country, such as in Evanston, um, who's partnered with Northwestern, we felt it was important to partner with the university to help support research efforts and anchor the work in best practices. So the things like um, coming up with the, developing the research protocol um, and developing and supporting with the survey analysis, um, we thought was really important to partner with an academic institution. So we also uh, thought it was, this is kind of secondary, but students also get the opportunity to authentically engage with the broader community through this work. Next slide please. So our desired outcomes um, that we're well on our way to achieving are creating, uh, having focus groups with com community members who self-identified in the survey, which I will um, talk about high-level takeaways we have so far, um, analysis of survey data, as I mentioned, and support with additional research needs as necessary to support the development of the final plan. Next slide. Next, please. So the community survey um, has been live for a few months. Uh, on the screen there, you see the ads that we were able to put in um, a number of uh, SFMTA buses, um, just telling the public what, uh, you know, telling the public that there's a survey and then inviting them to join our monthly meetings and to visit the website. Um, and so that was the primary, that that vehicle, well, that wasn't the primary driver, but um, you see on the bottom, we also have a link to the survey. And I would invite anyone who's in the audience virtually or here in the room, if you haven't taken the survey, to go to that URL. Next slide. So we developed the survey um, instrument to respond to the community's desire um, that we got during meetings to have a method to provide feedback, something that was standing and that people could, you know, give their input in. And we wanted to also have a standardized method of soliciting feedback. It's really great that we can have meetings and get feedback there and we can get emails and everything, but we also wanted to have some data that we could refer to and um, collect ideas and feedback from a wide variety of people. And also uh, something that was really important um, is to create a methodolo methodologically sound data set to contribute to the ongoing efforts of reparative policymaking across the city and county of San Francisco, specifically for Black communities. Uh, next slide. So we've had 701 respondents so far, which is really, really great. Like, that's amazing. Um, we went from like 150 a couple of months ago to 700 now. So I really think the bus ads are working. Next slide. And I just wanted to give an overview of the, like a really, really high level overview of the responses. We, most of the, our respondents are from San Francisco, 77%. Next slide. 
We also have, um, it may be difficult for people in the room here tonight to see that, but um, we have a wide range of people who have responded with their tenure here in San Francisco. But most of the respondents, over 70%, have been here over 20 years, which is really remarkable and I think um, really speaks to, I, I'm really excited about that because it speaks, the. it means the survey will speak to um, longtime residents uh, first and foremost. Next slide. And we have a really wide range of ages too, which is, that's great to see. Um, most of our respondents are 35 to 44, but um, you know, we have, and that's 28%, but you know, we have a lot of representation from people 45 to 55, 25 to 34, 55 to 64. We could use a little bit more, um, you know, responses from our elders, but you know, it, it's okay. Um, next slide. And then finally, um, what the issues that people, the, the question, the way that it's posed in the survey is that there's a list of um, different issues that have come up through the reparations process and people are invited to pick as many as they think apply to, or, you know, uh, apply to what they uh, believe. And you can see the top five responses right there. Um, education, home ownership opportunities, housing, employment, and wealth building. So the reason that I talk about the survey is because the respondents from um, the, the, um, focus groups that uh, Claire and Christopher will talk about shortly are taken from respondents in the survey. So um, at the end of the survey, people are invited to leave their name and email address um, to follow up so that we can follow up with them. And we did, we sent um, emails out to ask them if they'd like to participate in the survey and a link to sign up. Next slide. So those are just some of the, we also had a qualitative data um, field in there to ask people, you know, is there anything else you'd like us to hear? And people wanted us to consider the role, uh, the generational harm that transplants from the region have experienced. People um, were very vocal about um, providing resources for people to, people to find that proof that they um, qualify for reparations. And then also considering um, a number of factors like real estate, education, um, tax liens, et cetera. Next slide. Okay, so that's just the last thing. Uh, take the survey. And um, I'd like to introduce, with that, I would like to introduce uh, Christopher and Cl Christopher Acosta and Claire Mo Morgan, who are both master's students in the Urban and Public Affairs Program at the University of San Francisco, so they can speak a little bit more about the um, upcoming um, focus groups convened by their class. Thank you. Awesome. Hello, everyone. Um, it is an absolute pleasure to be here. Um, my name is Christopher Acosta, and I'm here with my colleague, Claire Morgan. And uh, before jumping into this, I would just like to, you know, let everyone know it's an absolute honor and privilege to be in this space. Thank you so much to the committee for the opportunity to, um, you know, assist in this research. Um, we understand the importance of this initiative and we hope to provide aid in a very respectful and professional manner. Um, so with that being said, um, let's jump into this and we could give everyone a little insight on um, you know, how this collaboration will go. 
Awesome. So as um, you know, we recently kind of alluded to, we are master students from the University of San Francisco, and we are representing the Urban and Public Affairs Program. Um, the Urban and Public uh, Affairs Program combines classes in urban studies, urban studies, public policy, politics, and sociology, and compounds it with hands-on experience. And um, it helps its students, you know, generate a policy and initiatives for just communities. And uh, reparations is an amazing example of how we could make San Francisco more just. Um, we do have to highlight that this is a racially diverse group. Not every one of our researchers is black or black identifying, um, but we can you know, assure everyone that we are committed to aiding this community in the most transparent way possible. We are here to um, learn and amplify the voices of our black neighbors here in San Francisco. Hi everyone, my name is Claire. So just what uh, Chris was motioning to, um, our intentions with this partnership is transparency, amplification and allyship. Um, we're simply act acting as a messenger from members of the public to you all committee members. And we wanna amplify, amplify voices in a transparent and effective way. Um, we are uh, really thankful for working uh, with you all for this tra trailblazing um, initiative. Next slide. Yeah, so what are our goals of this project? Um, we basically, all we wanna do is um, engage with the community and provide community perspectives towards reparations to the committee. Um, whatever they do with this information, it is not up to us. We're just getting it um, and, and giving it to um, the committee and engaging in the public while doing that. So um, we aim to achieve this through interviewing black identified San Franciscans through a series of focus groups conducted throughout the city of San Francisco. And we could go into the process a little more um, on our next couple slides. Yeah, so this is what we've done so far um, in community, community engagement and research uh, so far in the spring. Um, we've had guest speakers such as um, committee member Dr. James Taylor, who is a very fond professor of mine. I took a course with him last semester called Urban Racial Politics. Um, we've also worked with uh, researcher Kirby Lynch, who spoke a few minutes ago, um, as well as um, ARAC slash HRC staff, Brittany and Jewel. Um, they've been really helpful in guiding us and directing us uh, with this partnership. Lastly, we've uh, had the guest speaker, Dr. James, uh, Dr. Charles Henry, um, speak with our class, who is a former UC Berkeley professor. Um, with attendance and participation, we have attended and participated at um, the committee meetings at the Board of Supervisors hearing last month, ARAC-led listening sessions at USF, as well as the State of Black San Francisco event at SFMOMA that was conducted last week and other community events. With this partnership, we wanted to learn more about local history. So we have um, done so far a group field trip to Bayview Hunters Point, independently directed field trips through the Fillmore District and Bayview Hunters Point, as well as lectures and readings on the history of Black San Francisco. With this local history, we wanted to learn more about these neighborhoods for contextual purposes, as they're mentioned throughout the reparations plan and are a very important piece of San Francisco history. 
Next slide. Awesome. So what will these focus groups look like? Well, these focus groups will take place on four different days on uh, four different sites. Uh, we'll have one site on the USF campus. We'll have one site in Fillmore and we'll have one site, uh, Bayview's 100 Point and um, our virtual option will be available as well. Um, we will um, be interviewing individuals who opted in for follow-up at the end of the AARAC survey. So um, I believe you will have to fill out the survey if you'd like to participate in this um, um, research project. I mean, uh, in this research um, endeavor. And so um, the size of these focus groups will be between four and eight interviewees, and there will be two to three student interviewers involved. Um, it'll be around 90 minutes, and all the interviews will be recorded, transcribed, and we need to flag that all of it is owned by the committee. It is not for us. Um, we're just getting it and getting it straight to um, the committee. So um, it's it's a it's going to be. Um, we're not doing this with any intention to use the information for anything other than giving it to the committee and um, engaging with our community. Yeah, what's next for us? Um, our classmate Keisha Brown is partnering with committee member Gloria Berry to outreach and engage the San Francisco African-American Faith-Based Coalition, which is around 25 churches in this research. We also, um, after these focus, focus group interviews are over, we are going to conduct analysis, see if there's any patterns, themes, anything that sticks out to us that we believe um, should be prioritized or highlighted. We hope this work will help uh, elevate com community voices and support the committee as you all work on that final report. We will be back here with a presentation for the committee on May 8th with our findings. And we do still have room in our focus groups. If you are interested in participating, um, we'll find a way to share the link uh, with you all. Next slide. Awesome. And so just wrapping things up, um, I just want to wrap it up um, with another thank you for, you know, the entire committee. Um, like I said, um, this is an absolute pleasure and we're, we're really fortunate to be able to help, um, you know, this commission and um, thank you to the public for taking time out of your days to um, come and, and participate in these discussions. I mean, it just it just shows how important this is to the community. And I, I know that our entire group is extremely excited to um, you know, start this project. So I would love to open it up um, for any questions, um, if anybody has any, um, and if not, we could wrap some things up. Uh, we could wrap this up and um, just, uh, proceed with the uh, meeting. Awesome. Thank you both so very much, Chris and uh, Claire. Uh, we will get to questions, but not right this moment. So hang tight if you would. Uh, we're first going to go to public comment. Uh, in just a moment as we transition to that. So folks in the room, if you would like to make public comment, prepare yourselves, folks online, do the same. Uh, as we transition to public comment, just wanna also thank uh, Professor Brahinsky who teaches the course of these two amazing students. Uh, and so we appreciate her leadership and she has presented to us before. Uh, so with that, we're going to go to public comment. Let me just please remind folks that A, you will have two minutes to speak, and B, if you would keep your comments focused on the presentation by Dr. Lynch, Claire, and Chris this evening, we appreciate it. Madam Secretary. 
Any members of the public attending in person who would like to participate in public come on, comment on this item, please approach the um, bench. Thank you. And you will have two minutes to speak. Good afternoon, commissioners. So I am very pleased to see all of you. My name is Feli Chako. I am an, an African immigrant, and I am also a founding member of the African American Arts, you know, one of the founding members of the African American Arts and Cultural District. Um, I'm here not only to learn about this whole process and to educate myself, but also as an advocate to also support this initiative. And to tell you that I've been living in San Francisco for more than 25 years. And uh, because of those of, of certain things that I didn't know about as an immigrant, uh, about what the African-American have been through in this country. I'm sorry, ma'am. Let me just pause you just for a second, because we do want to hear your public comment. We want to make sure it's at the right time on the right subject. So right now mm -hmm. we're inviting comments on the two presentations that just were made by Dr. Lynch on the GIS mapping, and then the students on our survey and research efforts. If your comments are other than that, let me ask you to wait for one or two moments. Sure. One, either our general public comment, which happens later in the meeting, okay. or take a look at the agenda. There's another item that aligns with the comments you want to make. Because again, I want to be clear, we want to hear your comments, but at the right time. Okay? Okay. I will be right back then. Okay. Thank you so much. Are there any other members of the public who would like to comment specifically on this item? Good evening, um, members of the committee. Um, I had more questions than I did comments, and I know that we don't take them directly here, but I'd like to get them on the record and possibly mm -hmm. be answered later. And they are specifically for the professor and the students who are participating um, in the research. And uh, so my questions are, um, it was mentioned that uh, not all of the students are black identified or African-American identified. Um, that is a bit interesting to me um, as a community member, as we are studying the negative effects of um, harms that have been presented to against or uh, harms that have been perpetuated against African-Americans in the city and county of San Francisco. Um, so that to me is telling both about the number of students that are Black identifying at USF. Um, and so I'd like to know what was the, what strategic um, endeavors were made to reach out to African-American students uh, to participate. And um, I would also like to know um, what benefits do the students who are participating, uh, what's the with them for them? So what's in it for them by participating in this? Um, the word allyship was mentioned um, which sometimes brings me pause uh, because we talk a lot about allyship, but do we really show up as allies? And so those are the questions that I would like to go on the record and possibly have answered at a later date. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. 
Are there any other members of the public attending in person who would like to participate in public comment on this item? Okay, now we'll move over to remote public comment. I do see three members of the public with their hands raised. I will remind you that this is public comment on specifically the presentations that were um, that were presented today. Um, and you will have two minutes for public comment. I'll be re I'll be recording or timing the two minutes here. At 30 seconds, you will hear a chime, and that's how you'll know you have 30 seconds left. So to move on to public comment, first, I'd like to welcome Cheryl Thornton. Okay, good evening, task force members. Um, my question, uh-oh. Good evening. Can you hear me? Yes. Hello. Oh, hi. Hi, this is Cheryl Thornton. And um, what I'm calling to ask is about the presentation that was presented by Dr. Kirby Lynch. In our presentation, I um, heard her mention that they were collecting information on health, social benefits, comparisons, and comparing to other neighborhoods. Um, and education as well. They were collecting education, health, and social benefits. But I did not hear that they were collecting household income, employment, and a comparison tool to other neighborhoods about income and employment. So um, I wanna go and have that on the record and to see if that those questions or that can be added to the GPS mapping at some point. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, now I'd like to welcome Shamika Thomas. Hi, thank you. Um, so I would like to comment on the ancestry that is required for the reparations. And I wanted to know how would it be traced back to us if we don't have that resource? Um, so uh, I'm sorry, to have that excuse me. Excuse me, that it will come up at another time in our presentation. Um, that is item number four. Um, I'd like to welcome Deborah Stevens, please. Can you unmute yourself? Okay, now we will move on to Nasira Ajila. Are you able to unmute yourself? You hear me? Yes, I do. Thank you. Uh, yes, um, I'm Nasira Ajila. Um, I was Deborah Tripp when I lived in San Francisco um, back in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Um, is this a time for me to talk about um, my situation um, when we were um, gentrified out of the area? Um, we were actually... 
Mm-hmm. I believe you're you will be interested in item number four. That's when we're discussing eligibility and um, any new recommendations to include in the draft report. But thank you. Please call, please raise your hand again on item number four. LaDonna Williams. Yes, good evening, LaDonna Williams. First of all, it would be very helpful if the uh, notice and agenda went out in enough time, then people would have time to go over the information to be able to make informed decisions and know which number is the accurate number, but receiving it just a few hours before this meeting uh, keeps people at a disadvantage in being able to understand or give effective input. Um, I wanted to address Dr. Kirby's uh, report, and you also took away an additional minute to be able to make comments that that make sense but that uh, the information that she is providing this late in the stage of determining from what I heard from her speech, how much uh, would be be owed to the residents. I thought that had already been decided that we were putting forward the $5 million and we were sticking with that. Also, if in fact you guys are serious about this information, it's been available since 2016 at the least um, with the redlining, segregation maps, specifically mentioning San Francisco. And this late in the game, 2023, when you guys have really started this process, 2019, 2020, that you could have gotten this information and provided it early on. I compliment the students in taking on this task and doing these interviews. However, the uh, Human Rights Department has reached out to those of us in the community, communities we have given input to them. And so this seems to be repetitive, redundant, and, and just a way to keep people distracted from the real issues of the $5 million that the residents and those with that lineage and are entitled to this money is due, along with other benefits that are specific to those who are entitled to these benefits. So, Thank you for your comments. Now I'd like to move on to LaShondra Breston. It seems that while this survey, the neighborhoods mentioned are the most popular neighborhoods of African-American communities, I'm concerned that the African-American populations in the more rural communities, the more underserviced communities are not being counted, such as Treasure Island, for example. I think that needs to be taken into consideration. Are you, thank you. Um, I'd like to welcome Alicia Mayo, please. Hello, good evening to the committee uh, members. Thank you for your work and thank you to the Human Rights Commission. Um, I have some concerns about the research. The research is vital, it's super important. We all know that, but I need to know more about the approaches, how many students um, are participating. Is it just the two that were here tonight, I need to know um, what the research criteria or the qualitative and quantitative uh, parameters are. I'd like to definitely see more Black students from the USF campus participate, and I'm sure there are students in other departments 
that aren't necessarily from the urban um, research department per se, but they are African-American students from San Francisco or from the Bay Area who have a more um, personal and more qualitative um, uh, backgrounds and experiences that they can bring to the research. Also, the San Francisco State University Black Studies Department students should be involved in this research gathering, I think, because that's what that Black Studies Department is all about. I mean, it's about Black Studies, San Francisco State and the history of San Francisco. Also, how will the data collection be monitored and verified after it's gathered? Who will be monitoring that information? How often, what are the parameters around that? And I'd like a link or a website address that I can uh, refer to, to uh, be updated or to get more information or some of these questions answered. Thank you uh, to the students and to the professor involved. Thank you. Thank you. Are there any other members of the public who um, would like to participate in public comment on this item? I see Ayat Jalal Bryant. Welcome. Welcome, everybody. I say to the ancestors. Um, I noticed in looking in the map, um, and I agree with some of the earlier speakers, um, it's already been proven that our people has been displaced. Um, the fact that the Fillmore is now called the Western District, the fact that the red line areas is mainly where um, mainly where my people are, are generally being concentrated. Um, we need solution based. This right here, um, I agree. It seems like I'm a government forever wants to put millions of dollars and put other people who are not black to go study our our flight, our hardships um, while we're still waiting for now called repatriation before called liberation, before that called freedom. Um, uh, yeah, I would like to, to see a quick, quick study of this. And it needs to be more of our people standing up and stating what we need, because that's kind of what put us in this state in the first place. Other people deciding what our families, what our culture needs. Um, you know, you, you don't go talk to a dog when you want to know what a, what a cat needs, you know, to put it silly as this process seems to be becoming. Thank you. Thank you. Um, are there any other members of the public who would like to participate in public comment on this item? Okay, Chair, I do not see any members of the Thank public. Thank you for public comment is closed at this time. Members are gonna to come to your questions and <clears throat> excuse me, in just a moment. So if you can indicate your interest in having questions, please uh, hit your button for me, I'd appreciate it. Um, allow me to at least repeat one of, I couldn't write fast enough to capture all the questions that were asked, but I did capture a couple. So if we could get um, the, Dr. Lynch, if we could start with you, please. Yes, please. Thank you. It's a question about um, income and employment and whether those are data that could be uh, included uh, in the future. Yeah, so I actually have my colleague on Zoom too, who uh, helped co-produce the maps that they can be promoted to panelists. So they're gonna address uh, the comments first and then I'll follow up with them if that's all right. That is okay. Okay.
Nick, are you available? Are you able to mute yourself? Yes. Can you hear me all right? Yes. Thank you. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for the questions and I really appreciate these concerns from the committee. Um, I'll address the points mainly on the income piece. And so we just shared a snapshot, but the short answer is yes. Um, we already have these views. Um, we're looking at income, poverty level, unemployment, um, and other socioeconomic factors and comparing them in um, comparing the priority areas, the areas that one were um, areas where Black folks were displaced and also where we see um, higher concentrations of Black populations today, we're comparing those against the county. So that work is, is, is already being done. It's already shown. Um, we just showed a little segment um, today, but just wanted to confirm that, that exists. Okay, perfect. Thank Are those uh, all your comments, Nick? Um, looking through the other questions that were um, presented, overall, I understand a lot of the community concerns. Um, this work is... We see it as fundamental in order to get to the answers that you um, are putting forward. And we do see the use of GIS to be able to provide those solutions oriented um, proposals. And so a lot of this underlying work, um, it's fundamental to understand if you want to do workforce development, if you want to do education, this work will help us be more targeted and understanding where we want to deploy some of the solutions that the community is already coming up with. But we really appreciate that push. Mm -hmm. No, thank you, Nick, for your comments. And just to follow up that, again, yes, uh, information may be available, but what we're offering to the community is a consolidated platform that's accessible, that's in one location, so you don't have to scatter and go to census.gov and .org. And now we can collectively make meaning. That's why we're offering these community info sessions to make sense of the data together. There's various data sources, um, even open source data that the city and county of San Francisco puts on their website, but it's actually corrupted. So what my team has done, we've actually cleaned up data, made it machine readable and none of that work is actually presently available so we're really backtracking putting together the best of the data to bring it to you all in an accessible manner um again about that point about underserved communities we want to hear that feedback you know we're open to what we consider to be black communities so we have on our tiny url slash sf preparations map you can see some of the communities we're looking at like lakeview bernal heights you know these are all communities that are not listed um, a part of the dki initiative but we want to hear those specific neighborhoods so we can do that digging um and then how much to be owed to reparations? So again, not trying to, uh, you know, blow everything up, but one of our methods is uh, something called parcel value analysis. So like the Asheville, North Carolina model, we are again, looking at all of the 5,600 parcels that were taken during uh, urban renewal that are now part of the certificate of preference database. And we're actually calculating what was the 1963 value and then what, what is the current day value and actually coming up with a metric and a calculation to uh, understand that gap. So that's some of our geographic methods that can aid in, you know, the request and the demand that you make to the to the city and county of San Francisco. Excellent. Thank you. Dr. Lynch, let me invite you, if you would, to stay there. And members, I'm going to ask you if you have questions for Dr. Lynch. I know you may have questions for students um, since so that she didn't have to keep popping back up each time there's questions. So I saw your hand, but let me just see. So, member Barry, any questions for? Thank you, Tara. Can you hear me? No. 
I am now. All right, here we go. So I'd have questions for Dr. Lynch and for the students and for Ms. Stewart. Okay, so let me ask you just to Dr. Lynch and I'll come back to you. for. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your presentation, Dr. Lynch. My first question is, do you have data on why Black people are not wanted in districts on the west side of San Francisco? Why they're not wanted? For reasons like laws or um, policies. Um, no, not specifically. We're currently looking at eviction rates and uh, occupancy of different rental units, uh, trying to get access to that data currently, um, where we think that could explain. But um, primarily, we're using American Community Survey data, census data on different population levels over time uh, to kind of show the shift in neighborhood count. But ex explanations like why don't have it particularly. Thank you. Also, when you speak of displacement, do you consider in your data condo conversions, how many Black people were evicted so that others with wealth can move into those same units? Yes. Yeah, so again, my PhD dissertation research was on uh, some of this displacement that occurred uh, from redevelopment to now, a more qualitative narrative focus. But the struggle has been to get uh, a data set to actually be able to quantify that. And so that's a lot of the work uh, with the data request. I'm working with member Anite Ekonomon uh, to get what those particular programs were at the time that San Francisco Redevelopment Agency was trying to get some access to them paper records so we can convert it into like a machine readable format where we can like confidently say, okay, this is how many condos were converted, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. And then do you have any data on the income needed to rent or own in San Francisco? So we have a view about um, the number of households who have disposable income. Um, that's a metric on the American Community Survey. So we can see, again, which households have more money to spend on leisure activities, et cetera. Um, we can, in our story map, in a narrative form, talk about self-sufficiency standards for the city and county of San Francisco. The only problem with that is that um, that's not broken up by race. That's just broken up on average household size and uh, how much can they afford to live in the city of San Francisco. But with our census track level in Black neighborhoods, looking at average income, uh, we can kind of make some inferences there. Okay, I would request that we do add that regardless of race, what it costs to live here in San Francisco in any neighborhood. And then my final question is, um, taking a risk on this one, but for the DKI priority zones, have you received any pushback on those zones being um, described as that? No, that's a that's a good question. Um, again, what's unique about our approach is again, it's an innovative method. It hasn't really been done in any jurisdiction like we've done it. So again, we're just trying to use the tools at our disposal. How do we define those impacted neighborhoods? How do we go beyond the red line communities? And so the DKI initiative was a, like a perfect opportunity to be like, okay, well, here's a concentrated area that we can do analysis on based on that census level data. And so, um, you know, it's been a really great way to see, okay, these zones don't have access to internet. They don't, they, the majority of people don't have um, healthcare, SNAP benefits they're using. So it's a great way for us to visualize the information in an accessible way, um, but no pushback um, thus far. Thank you so much. That's all. Thank you. 
Uh, Member Ekinem, any questions for Doctor. Through the chair, may I just say to Member Barry's third question um, around uh, rent burden that it has been a part of the planning department's tracking. So we can pull that both from the housing element, um, mm. or maybe you want to ask that again when planning presents shortly around the differential rent burden by race. Thank you. Thank you, Member Ekinem. All right. Thank you so much, Doc, Dr. Lynch, for being part of this today. Um, really do appreciate you, your work, and your time um, to sort of help us quantify what, what we need to do sort of moving forward. I think one of the things that I'd like to sort of see is if we can add Treasure Island, mm -hmm. because that's a major displacement area for Black and Brown folks from other parts of the city, uh, and they've gone through a number of issues around power um, and infrastructure. Um, Honestly, it's modern-day redlining that hasn't been addressed like at all. So we'd really like that to be added. Um, two, I really want to ask what additional housing data would be most beneficial, specifically because we have all the housing and planning people right behind you. And so we'll probably be asking them again that too. Um. <laughs> that help people? That help people? Okay, call me. Um. Yeah, so we did. Are you going to share the data request sheet that we are you going to present at that any moment? No. Okay. Well, I have a bunch of data requests, so hopefully we can connect. But again, it's just around um, occupancy rates. I think that's the most important just to show, again, the lack of opportunity people have, like there's empty rental units in, again, historic Black neighborhoods that people don't have access to. Um, when we're thinking about certificate of preference and trying to bring people back to the city, being able to locate where these uh, vacant units are and maybe incentivize some occupancy of that to uh, people who are going to receive reparations benefits, I think could be a calculated way to make some policy proposals. So that is at the top of my mind. Uh, also some eviction history at the census level. Um, if we can get that starting at two, the year 2000, again, that also helps us see just concentrated disadvantage. Um, Los Angeles County has a data set like that, but I haven't seen one for uh, San Francisco. So there are a lot of models that I would like to replicate in San Francisco. I just haven't seen it um, in an open source way. So I'm happy to have the people in the room so we can just connect. Excellent. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Oh, and also that point about Treasure Island, we are having analysis of Treasure Island because it's a part of the displacement addresses. So all of the places where certificate of preferences, we're making analysis of those zones. Excellent. Thank you. Member Brown. Yes, uh, Dr. Kirby, thank you so much for your presentation. I just kind of have a question on, uh, it sounds like when I'm looking at your work, because I'm not a data scientist at all, um, it sounds like for someone like me, who's a layman, will be really great as like a reparations appraisal calculator. Mm -hmm. Is that something that you guys are working on um, so that somebody like me can just kind of plug things in and see, um, you know, what what that what that range might be? You're a genius. Well, you know, there's a phase one, phase two of the work. So again, that's um part of the phase one. And this is just a test data set. Again, we're doing something really innovative here. There hasn't been a lot of tracking of Black outcomes and like strategic ways to look at how much we've lost. So we're really experimenting here. So our first data set, again, are the displaced addresses and trying to, again, come up with some uh some data-driven calculation based on, okay, this is how much the land was valued in 1963, and then what's what's it valued now? 
through, again, parcel value analysis, that will be somewhat of a calculator where you can see inflation and the impact on those particular parcels. To actually build up a calculator, we do have a computer scientist, a part of Trouble, Trouble Company. So I think that's a great idea that we can start experimenting with. But again, we have to model and just start experimenting with the addresses we do have and start seeing uh, what's statistically relevant. So I definitely think it's possible, but again, um, it takes time. Um, I know people be like, we've had this information for a while, but we don't have black scientists, data scientists who look like us, who come from where we come from, who knows how to inquiry the data the way that we do. So, you know, being patient, but understanding like it will eventually happen. Thank you. One more question. I know, or a comment. Um, I know that during COVID, a lot of real estate um, folks were using uh, appraisal methods so they couldn't get in the buildings. Um, and so I don't know if that's something to maybe draw some of that data from is to use the, the existing appraisal tools that came through um, the pandemic. Yeah. Um, are you talking about like comparable sales values and stuff like that? Yes. Exactly. Yeah. So we're doing that definitely to calculate, um, again, the explosion in growth, because from 1963 till now, there's been a lot of bust and boom. So uh, 1990, you know, that was a boom. But then 2008, that was a crash. So we have to figure out some statistical model to account for when Hunter's Point was it and when it wasn't, because at the end of the day, the land was still stolen, but the value of that land differentiates over time. So we need a model. Thank you. I, I really appreciate your work. Uh, hopefully we can apply that uh, model to also the lack of investment and disinvestment mm -hmm. that's happened in these communities. Thank you. Definitely. Thank you, Member Brown. Member Landry. Yes. Um, thank you, Dr. Lynch and students um, for your presentation. I just have, a, I guess, a few comments and question. Uh, number one, I, you know, of course, we hear a lot of reports, studies, uh, coming before us, I think we need um, to get more detailed about Black incarceration. And I see the um, the information model from the Los Angeles version here on incarceration. And hopefully, um, before we can get to May, we can have something that we can compare because it seems like to me that that's the one thing that is not coming forth quickly. Um, after our two years of planning for this reparations. Number two is the black homeless situation. And I was amazed that it's it's 37% black homeless uh, here in San Francisco and we only make up 5% of the population. Uh, will, how will, how would the, um, this particular report, I mean, a final report coming from the research uh, really deal with the fact that the the black homeless situation and the incarceration and even the mental ill situation here in San Francisco is it a way that we could see something that connects all that I know we hear like uh, what is it the pipeline the prison no, right prison pipeline but I'm always thinking about the part of the mental illness the 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 juvenile situation being a victim myself of being a juvenile in the 1980s. I want to uh, be able to compare as we make these final recommendations, reparations on to the degree that's what's been lost by all of us black people here in San Francisco. There's more should be put on the emphasis of those who was incarcerated from day one. And that's that's what I, uh, I'm hoping that we can get uh, from you, Dr. Lynch, and the students as we get closer to making our final uh, recommendations. And I got one question 
uh, about, oh, uh, was you able to study the uh, war on drugs report done by HRC? Have you have you looked at that report? Which war on drugs report? The title of it? Uh, war on drugs uh, report that came out years. I don't know the particular year, but. 2018? No, 2018. Not seen the war on drugs report. What I would suggest, you know, that 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 report is is vital in you know, putting information forth towards us so we can make a, a, a decision because we haven't really, again, touched on a lot about the um, incarceration, the, the prison. And since we're uh, in San Francisco, a lot of the, the, the money that is issued from the state, for us, what I'm hearing from the state level is, is dependent on the stats. And so I, I would uh, suggest and hope that that is forthcoming as we go forward. But anyway, thank you again. Um, and that's it. Thank you, Member Landry. Finally, uh, Member Carter, and I do want to move us forward. Thank you. Yeah, so I just have a quick question or not even a question, but a comment. Um, if you can add business to the data, I didn't hear anything in that when you're talking about the boom and the bus and different things like that. That's it. Yes. Um, yeah, so just to address both, um, definitely in the process of requesting arrest rates um, and again, making the machine readable in a way that we can easily upload them. Um, a lot of this is pretty labor intensive. We have to manually code a lot of this information in a way that's readable to the software. So not that it's not an interest, but we're trying to visualize the perfect narrative right now to get us moving forward. But it's definitely a top priority. So Hopefully the 2018 War on Drugs report has some easily accessible data that can be converted. If not, we can mention it on that story map and narrative form where those uh, that data can like speak to, to the disparity. And in terms of business ownership, so we were able to get um, prominent businesses that we're assuming are Black. So the Open Data SF, they have um, all of the registered businesses um, available, but you know, we don't know if those are black businesses. So one approach we've taken is to see, okay, like what are the businesses that were registered on Third Street and have a way to see how long those businesses have been open, when did they close, if we can have like an average length of uh, open businesses, um, because we do have like business license information like that. Um, and that can be added, but I just want to make sure that's um, relevant. Um, but if you know of any uh, data sets that in a calculated way, track business ownership for Black folks, you know, we would love to look at it and see how it could be imported. All right. Thank you very much. Uh, okay. So we're going to pause on questions for Dr. Lynch um, and her items. So thank you. I want to call the students, quote unquote, back up since I know that they are virtual. And so members, again, if you have questions for the students, I'd ask you to be mindful of a question that you think the students can or should respond to versus the professor. We did have Professor Brahinsky online. I don't know that she is still online. So just be aware of that as you ask a question. So we'll come back to member Barry. You have questions for students. Thank you, Chief. Um, hello. Um, before we start, I do know she is in the audience. So if we did want to promote her to um, a panelist, that would be great. I do know that she does, um, she could help answer some of the questions. I do know one of the questions asked earlier was directed towards the professor as well. So um, yeah, just wanted to 
flag. She is somewhere in the audience. Thank you. Member Barry. Thank you, Chair. My first question is to the student, Christopher Acosta. You mentioned that there will be focus groups taking place. Our final report is due June 1st. So what are the date of these focus groups and what is your turnaround on that data to us? Well, absolutely. Um, if I could get one moment, because I do have the calendar right here, I could uh, bring it up, Claire, if you do have it um, and know them um, off the top of your head, um, that'd be great. But I could just look at a calendar and tell you um, our first group, focus group is actually um, tomorrow um, at USF um, on the 11th. Um, our Second one will be on Saturday, the 15th. Um, the, the third will be on the 18th. And the last and virtual one will be on the 22nd. Um, so if you're, you're kind of following the pattern, it is um, every Tuesday and Saturday for the next two weeks. Um, so far, the um, virtual has been the most you know, um, popular of uh, of our four options. Um, so um, if you're interested in that, um, we will we'll be more than happy to um, you know, try to accommodate. So. Thank you so much, Christopher Acosta. My next question, well, my final question for students is for um, Claire Morgan, if she's still on. Yes, she's here. Okay. Um, it was kind of painful to hear that you had to take a field trip to the Bayview District. However, I would like to know what did you go to specifically look at and what was the data you collected? Yeah, that's a great question. We wanted to go out there as a class since some individuals um, have you know, different schedules or maybe are unable to get there on their own time. So we went as a class and we just we went through a tour and learned the history of the shipyards, as well as the um, great afford affordable housing um, and public housing projects there um, that are amazing part of the history um, in that community. And yeah, we didn't collect any, any data. Um, we just wanted to learn more about the history there uh, with the shipyards, with um, all of the great community development work there um, in the past. So that's what we did. Yeah, and I just wanted to, you know, build on my colleagues' um, response. Um, we've really just, as a as a group, tried our, our best to immerse ourselves in in the context that has led us to where we are here today. And a part of that was in, um, you know, going to these communities um, and engaging with them um, with hopes of learning, you know, uh, a lot more about them. So we we've spent a lot of time, um, you know. Um, learning the history of these areas and, um, you know, visiting them physically was just um, an attempt to um, do that, but um, actually being there in that space. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much. Again, uh, students and Dr. Rohinsky, thank you so much for your commitment to to partnering uh, with us on this project. Just want to be clear to, to all, um, we welcome um, almost all higher ed institutions who wanna bring students in particular black students into this process. Um, so don't wanna think, don't want anyone to think that we are in any way prohibiting anyone from bringing together students as we engage um, in this process. So again, thank you students so very much. We appreciate you. Sure. Um,
Can I, can I have a word on that? Um, because I Mr. Chairman. There are voices from everywhere. Let's go first to uh, Member Taylor um, and then to Reverend Brown. Yeah, I just wanted to clarify because the comments, the comments made. Um, I've been involved in this process in 2006 when we did the slavery disclosure ordinance here before we organized reparations committee. Um, the university also was the only university in America to host a reparations on Georgetown uh, for Georgetown's reparations issue. Um, these are some of my own direct students, uh, these students that are talking right now. Um, uh, I've taught them in those classes that they're actually in, in the urban racial politics. That's what the student said. She's taken my class. The way, you know, whatever methods and approaches they're using, again, the point I'm making is um, that there's a lot of different kinds of involvement. Uh, we, we, we had Cornell West here first at USF, right? Um, we have um, had a new, a multiple public hearings and events and panels and, and have another one planned. I actually made numerous contacts with San Francisco State's faculty and students and invited them to be a part of, of our efforts. And it's been ongoing as well as City College to trying to be as inclusive as possible. Um, we've been looking for student energy all along in this entire process. And I'm really excited that they finally are joining us and giving us their energy and their focus and their intelligence. Uh, because we have been waiting for this uh, to, to happen. Uh, but I do want to be clear, and even the colleague, my chair colleague, uh, Rachel Brahinsky, uh, she's presented before us. She's done substantial research on the Fillmore. She's doing unprecedented work on Black women in, in, um, in uh, Bayview-Hunters Point um, that no scholar has done, uh, recovering some Black women who've been forgotten. So the research is the research. The students are who they are. Um, there are plenty of Black students who are involved in the reparations work at USF. There are way more Black students involved at USF, and the Black faculty is the main faculty involved in the reparations work. Thank you, Member Taylor. Um, Reverend Brown, please. Mr. Chairman, raise his hand working, because my hand was up, the yellow hand was up. I'm sorry, please, I couldn't hear you. We are using the yellow hand, are we not, to raise your hand if you want to speak? We are, sir. However, if you are um, on the community side, then that will only show when we're at public comment. Oh, okay. All right. I just won't, didn't want to be confused here. Um, uh, good evening to everyone. My, my only comment is that um, so that we always deal with the facts. Ideally, yes been a good thing to have had all blacks doing the research. And obviously we don't live in an ideal world. Number two, recently I personally had the opportunity to go up to the University of San Francisco and to have discovered that under the leadership of Father Fitzgerald, the black population is exponentially grown. And I think that we should applaud success and positive outcomes. And at the same time suggest that we can tweak things and do better. I would like to ask the students, did you have any opportunity of getting oral responses 
from Persis and Bayview Hunters Point and the Western Edition who lived through all the hell and the horror that black folks have received? Or was it just a trip to observe the landscape? Um, thank you, Reverend Brown, for that question. Um, I do know we um, actually participated in a series of trips to these areas. Some of them were done independently, and some were done um, as a as a group. Um, the independent ones were, um, per, you know, provided you know individuals to kind of just go there on their own time and, um, as you said, engage with the community in any way we can. And and in that case, for me, um, I went to a, a park. Um, and I played basketball um, with members of the community. Um, not much talking going on, but just just living in in, in the area and just um, in the moment and um, being there and present. Um, I would say that as a group, um, when we did um, you know walk through and engage in these communities um, in person, um, it was more history based. So it was just a lot of discussion as a group. So you know it was kind of a two pronged approach. As an individual, we were, um, you know, um, expected to go there and engage with community. So I can't speak for my other colleagues. Um, I personally did. Um, I didn't get an opportunity to really go into depth as far as, um, you know, lived experiences and stuff um, within those communities. But um, I can say that, um, you know, in my personal time and also in my work outside of the classroom. Um, I've been given, um, you know, opportunities to um, engage with, um, you know, other Black leaders in the Bay and hear it from their side. So I would say that while, um, you know, these trips might not have granted everyone an opportunity to, you know, be there and physically speak to someone, I do know myself and a lot of other people within this program um, have past history engaging with um, and learning from uh, Black folks here in the Bay. And um, I hope that could, you know, answer your question. I would just like to respectfully suggest that the next go around, we will consider connecting with persons of integrity, persons who have lived the history the persons whom you can feel. John Steinbeck, who wrote Great Seraphs, made a cogent statement. He wondered often, he said, how many people he just looked at but did not see. Just looked at but did not see. And the problem for African-Americans in this city, as I witnessed for nearly 50 years, is that the power structure has just looked at us, but they never seen us as being a people to be reckoned with and to be respected and to have for them the same resources that all other persons feel that they're entitled to. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, members of the task force. Thank you, Reverend Brown. Again, my thanks to the students uh, and Dr. Mahinsky and her class. And with that, we will conclude item number two. Thank you.
Next item, please. Item number three, city department reports. This is a discussion item. Is this time for city departments to report back, back on information requests from the African-American Reparations Advisory Committee. This month, representatives from the Mayor's Office of Housing, Office of Community Investment and Infrastructure, Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing, and the Planning Department will present and submit written responses to some questions that were provided in advance of this meeting. Um, we'll start off tonight's presentation by welcoming Director Shireen McSpadden. She directs the Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing for the City and County of San Francisco. And that will be followed by um, Director Shaw with MOHCD and then the Planning Department presentation and a presentation from the Office of Community Investment and Infrastructure to close things out. Welcome, Director McSpadden. Thanks so much. Um, thank you, Chair McDonald. Great to see you, Director Chiquata. And I wanna um, thanks, thank all the committee members for your work. It's a real honor to be here. I'm Shireen McSpadden. I'm the Executive Director of the San Francisco Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing. And I know that the presentation will be up in a few minutes, but I wanted to take a moment to introduce Anthony Bush, who is the Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing's um, Chief Equity Officer. He's a member of our executive team. He will be here with me to make sure that I get all of your comments and all of your questions. So if there's anything that I can't answer tonight and need to get back to you on, we'll make sure we've got the right information. Um, my staff's also submitted a document with answers to some of the specific questions your staff have sent over in advance. And tonight I'm gonna to be trying to answer all of those questions the best I can, um, but also give you some general context for the work of the department. So next slide. So um, I know this people know this, but again, I'm trying to set the context here. San Francisco and the Bay Area are in the middle of a housing affordability crisis, which disproportionately impacts low in people with low incomes, people of color, um, black people in particular, and people with health and behavioral health challenges. According to the 2022 point in time count, which is the way that we um, do kind of look at one night every other year to kind of see who is on the street, there are approximately 7,700 people who are unhoused in San Francisco on any given night. And there are approximately 20,000 people who will become, who will come through the homelessness response system over the course of a year. Every day, the city provides housing and shelter to over 15,000 people, but we're still unable to meet the needs of the whole community. The pandemic reinforced the housing and both the healthcare and, um, and the, health, the solution is obviously both healthcare and, and um, housing. In the city, like the rest of the country, homelessness is a racial equity and housing justice issue with households of color being disproportionately impacted by homelessness. And that is why we are focusing on ensuring that our interventions are targeted to and effective for the communities in San Francisco who most need it. Next slide. Homelessness is the result of systemic racism, system flaws, decades of disinvestment, and the ever-increasing cost of housing. As the data in this presentation will show, homelessness continues to disproportionately impact households of color, particularly black, black households, 
which is why we're working to increase access to housing for those overly impacted communities. Um, for example, we have some new um, interventions targeting our emergency housing voucher program to historically marginalized communities and expanding cultural competency of our provider community within the homelessness response system. And I'll talk a little bit about that um, in my, later in my presentation. So um, next slide. So just starting off with putting some numbers to the scope of the homelessness crisis in San Francisco. As I mentioned, every two years, the department's required by the federal government to do what's called a point in time count. Essentially, it's a census of people living unsheltered on the streets of San Francisco and people in our shelter system. It's not a perfect um, system, obviously, because it's just looking at one night, but it, what it does show is trends over time. And it gives us the best estimate for people experiencing homelessness on a single night. In 2022, the San Francisco point in time count indicated that there were 7,754 7, people experiencing homelessness with 57% unsheltered. The count found 205 families and 1,073 unaccompanied youth um, who are not in a family, who are under 24 years old. The 2022 count reflected a 3.5% decrease in overall homelessness and a 15% decrease in unsheltered homelessness since the previous pit count in 2019. With this decrease, we're starting to see a return on the huge investments in shelter and housing the city has made over the last couple of years. Our administrative data or the information about all the unique clients who access our services is our in our main database is another good source. And this data indicates over the course of a year, as many as 20,000 people might experience homelessness in San Francisco. Next slide. So at its root, um, we I already said this, but this is decades of disinvestment in housing and the ever-increasing cost of housing. While just 6%, as I think um, Member Landry pointed out earlier, as while just 6% of San Francisco's population is Black, Black identified, 38% of unhoused people in San Francisco are Black. HSH and our community providers are focused on advancing equity for these really underrepresented and unserved, unserved populations and reducing these disparities across our programs. Next slide. We have a public dashboard on the HSH website that has information about the households served at the different stages of what we call our coordinated entry process. You can explore there, um, looking at race, ethnicity, sexual orientation, and gender identity, data by population and by fiscal year. This dashboard helps us monitor our programs um, from an equity lens. The current data show that we're referring Black, Indigenous, people of color to housing and moving them in at a similar rate to their enrollment and coordinated entry. As you can see from this graph, African-Americans make up 42% of the people assessed for homeless services and housing, and they make up 45% of the people prioritized for housing placements, 46% of the people housed um, in HSH fund funded housing. Next slide. Homelessness obviously is not evenly distributed across San Francisco, but rather it's concentrated in certain districts. Um, particularly districts five, six, and 10. 
while District 5 has 25% of the homelessness population, it has 20% of the city's shelter beds and nearly 40% of the city's supportive housing sites. District 6 has 30% of the homelessness population, nearly 42% of the shelter and 33% of the city's supportive housing sites. District 10 has nearly 13% of the population, 10% of the shelter and 4% of the housing. And as we think about improving access and equity across our system, we need to help to ensure that both shelter and housing are located in areas where it's needed most. We also know that not all neighborhoods have the same housing stock. And that's why we really need different interventions in different areas. And so we're thinking about things like vouchers, um, subsidies in certain neighborhoods where the housing stock just isn't available. And we're also available. We also understand that not everybody needs permanent supportive housing. Not everybody needs shelter. Some people need either prevention services or they need housing subsidies so that they can um, find their own housing. Next slide. So in addition to providing shelter and housing, we're very focused on preventing homelessness for people most likely to fall into homelessness. This means um, provident rental assistance and flexible financial assistance to keep people in their housing um, and in their home neighborhoods. And we're, we're very much focused on people's choices, people being in their own communities, and really thinking with the community, with our providers, and with people who've, who have lived experience about what that actually means. Just got shorter. Um, so when we look at our budget investments in fiscal year 2022-23, HSH had a departmental budget of approximately 580 million in programmatic contractual spending. Based on the demographic makeup of our programs, we estimate that 238 million or 41% of these recesses, resources are going to support um, Black and African American people who need our services. And then that's a direct question um, that came from the staff. And then next slide. So emergency housing vouchers are an example of an approach that we can use to distribute new housing vouchers and ensure that they're serving households most in need. We used an equity strategy to rolling out this program that focused on partnering with providers concentrated in districts five and districts 10 for outreach and allocation of the vouchers, as well as providing ongoing supportive services. As this program leases up and households move in, we're seeing that this approach is working to achieve our equity goals. As of late March, 802 vouchers had been issued and 548 households, including 191 families had moved into units. Of the households who've moved in, 50% of households were experiencing homelessness with 30% um, who'd been unsheltered and 20% in shelter. 12% were recently homeless, 17% were um, survivors of domestic violence coming from dom domestic violence providers, and then 21% were at risk of homelessness. The demographics of those referred voucher recipients, 90% 90, 90 of applicants referred were Black Indigenous people of color, 57% were Black head of households, 21% Latinx, 9% Native American or Indigenous, and 10% LGBTQ. At least a third of the people um, receiving vouchers lived or stayed in Bayview when they applied for these vouchers. So of the EHV implementation, we had 913 referrals submitted, 
18,802 vouchers issued in 548 households housed, and that includes uh, almost 200 families. And I, I just wanted to give that as an, ex as an example. I've been with the department a little under two years. We've spent a lot of time, we have a new executive team. We spent a lot of time talking about, um, in, I mean, both internally and with the community about ways we can best serve the community and advance equity and um, what that means and how we really work with our community to make sure the right people are accessing the, um, the services that we have, especially when we think about things like vouchers coming down from the federal government. And um, this is an intervention that really has proven that it works. And so we will continue doing this in various ways with our other interventions. So um, moving on to the next slide. We're really also focused on black and brown led provider capacity building. I think as somebody who came from the nonprofit sector, worked for the city now for 20 years, I know that this has been a challenge for San Francisco for many years. Um, we have not done the work that we need to really to do to really make sure that we've got that we are really supporting in the way that we need to black and brown led organizations. And so our equity office is building a three-tiered approach to capacity building and technical assistance for black led organizations. Through our capacity building work, we will be building pathways to support existing community-based organizations within our portfolio. And then also working to bring on new community-based organizations to ensure that we're targeting these disparities among our Black-led providers to ensure that they have the same infrastructure, um, training, and funding as their white-led counterparts so that we have, um, that they're able to more equitably compete for contracts. Our funding will be provided um, directly through a consultant that we've been working with on some of these um on some of this work and they will continue to support us on this and then moving on to the next slide our racial equity action plan is focused on improving disparities for black residents and staff by ensuring that we are utilizing data and intersectional justice to repair the harm caused by systemic racism that we are leveraging the input of cbos um and and black and brown um, people with exper lived expertise to determine baseline numbers in our homelessness response system and to set metrics to reduce and eliminate disparities within the homelessness response system. We're working at the city level to more equitably support um, black and brown community members and to really center the lived experience of black residents in developing alternative testing methods for exam specific classifications to ensure that we can diversify the applicant pool for positions across the city. And that's not, we don't hold that by ourselves as a department, but we're very much involved in that work with other departments and with um, the Human Rights Commission. And then moving to the next slide, we're on the brink of releasing our new strategic plan, Home by the Bay, an equity-driven plan to prevent and end homelessness. In this plan, we outline key equity objectives, which include ensuring that we're planning and our planning and decision making are deeply informed and guided by the expertise, recommendations, and leadership of people with lived experience of homelessness. Um, that we're building community partnerships and implementing capacity building efforts rooted in equity with black and brown led organizations and organizations deeply rooted in historically marginalized neighborhoods and communities. 
um, that were supporting anti-racist program delivery in the development of an intentionally anti-racist workforce within city departments and offices that serve people experiencing homelessness and within the homelessness response system, and that we're developing and implementing strategies for reducing observed inequities and ensuring that homelessness the homelessness response system services reach, serve, and achieve equitable outcomes for over overrepresented and underserved populations, especially black and brown um, and queer led or queer people um, and people with disabilities. So we've done, we have a lot of work to do um, on, on this. I think I feel really confident in the team that I have working with me. I'm, I'm really, really excited by um, the people with lived expertise that we've been working with over the last year to help us develop our strategic plan. Our, it's going to be so much better because of their work on it. Um, and we're looking for other ways to engage the community and to really make sure that there is access for people throughout San Francisco, for, for people who need to access our system. One of the first things I noticed when I got to this department is people just don't know how to access housing. They don't know how to access interim housing or the vouchers. We're working really hard with, um, with the communities in, in the Fillmore, in um, Bayview, in District 6 to make sure that people um, know where to go and, and access those services. So again, lots of work to do. I'm excited about what we've done so far. And um, we look forward to working with all of you to make sure our system is as accessible and as equitable as it can be. Thank you. Thank you very much. Let's go to Mr. Shaw. We can, please. Thank you. And members, just a reminder, as we hear from each of these, we're going to start with our questions. So I'd ask you to be pointed and succinct because we will still need to get to public comment. Mr. Shaw, welcome. Thank yeah. you. So good evening, Mr. Chair and members of the commission. My name is Eric Shaw. And I'm the director of the San Francisco Mayor's Office of Housing and Community Development. I'm happy to give you an overview of how we implement our mission and some critical procedures and processes and programs we've implemented to address um, and advance racial equity, a particular focus on the African-American community. Next slide, please. Also, and I do want to note also, I'm the interim director of Help SF as well. So I've done that now for, I believe, two years as well. Um, so MOCD is comprised of four different divisions of which during my presentation, I will discuss three of those divisions. Um, we have the housing division, which is focused on the investment and the development of 100% affordable housing, as well as implementation of preservation and acquisition programs. I think people know that as small sites. In addition to that, we have the community development division, um, which is the administer of general fund grants and community development and block community development block grants. We have the home ownership and below market rate program, which focuses on home ownership and also administers um, and monitors Dahlia for all of the, the lotteries that we have in place. And in addition to that, we have finance and administration, um, which keeps um, track of all the money that's been spent um, for performance metrics, and then is the engagement with the budget office and with the controller's office. Next slide, please. And so I'm, I'm excited to announce and share, um, it's not shared as often, but really want to highlight the fact that um, our division, our, our office is actually producing a significant amount of housing, especially during this downturn. Um, and at this point, maybe um, developing the most housing we have 
ever as an office um, since we've become the Office of Housing and Community Development. Um, in fiscal year 21 through 23, we delivered 2,284 units of 100% affordable housing, of which 70 and 792 units began construction or rehabilitation last year. Um, since 2014, which was one of the questions that was asked, the Acquisition and Preservation Program, which is what we call the Small Sites Program, has invested in more than 50 projects in 39 commercial spaces and 519 residential units. Um, a supplemental program called the PASS Program closed on five projects with 120 units, 12 commercial spaces. Um, since 2020, MOHCD has issued five, compute, five procurements. Um, three of those are currently active right now, the Educator Housing, Site Acquisition, and Capital Repairs um, procurements. I do want to note, this is one of the questions the committee asked, all of um, the funds dispersed by MOHCD are through a transparent transparent and competitive process, either through a notice of funding availability or through a request for proposals, actually request for qualifications. Um, in both the NOFA and in the RFQ, um, we ask people to submit full development teams, which includes a developer, a property owner, a property manager, and a service provider. And then they're scored accordingly with that. And then those scores are used to determine who receives the award for either funding or for both the site and for funding. And so I know that was a question about how that's picked. We we what is submitted is a full package of development team, property owner, property manager, and service provider. And then that team is scored accordingly. In addition for that, for the small sites program, um, all small sites actually go through an underwriting process to make sure that they meet the um, fiscal requirements um, for the investment. In most instances, these are loans that support the acquisition of the property, and we have requirements around ensuring that there's appropriate income or subsidy for the long-term operation of that program, of that building as affordable housing. Next slide, please. Here are some actions we've taken to advance um, and the inclusion expansion of African-American interests and service um, over the past couple of years since my service here. Um, so we have expanded the small sites qualified nonprofit list um, to include CBOs serving the Western Edition in Bayview and those with a stated mission of serving the African-American residents. We open up that list every year um, and qualify and nonprofits um, go through a series, answer a series of questions to prove they have um, the capacity to be able to participate in what's called the COPA process. Um, and so in that instance, any nonprofit is able to partner with someone to do an acquisition, but as a qualified nonprofit, that means that they've been vetted in a way to get notifications of when um, buildings are going for sale, and then that instance be able to issue um, the first right for purchase, um, and then for a request for underwriting from MoCD. In addition to that, in all of our procurements now, we ask for the diversity um, of the leadership of the organizations um, that are applying for the development team, um, and then any additional racial equity programming they're doing to advance their work. In addition to that, we have a specific question around um, the inclusion of racial equity and inclusion of um, outreach and engagement to underserved communities and African-American communities, and that's scored as part of the procurement. 
In addition to that, I'm proud that we did a partnership um, with a grant um, from um, the San Francisco Foundation to establish the Emerging Developers of Color program with the Urban Land Institute, which has become a national model for smaller um, BIPOC firms. I think 50%, I think 40% of them are African-American to be able to engage with, with our housing leadership and learn how to develop affordable housing within and access affordable housing resources um, within the city. And then finally, there's a recognition now at the state level that there are two tracks receiving state financing to um, advance affordable housing. The standard pool with tax credits and bonds, but also what they call an emergency developer pool. And now in this instance, we recognize both of those finance tracks um, as ways to um, secure um, the points in procurement to show that you have the readiness to receive state funds. Next slide, please. So for home ownership and below market rate, I think most people know this. They think of BMR, but actually this is the unit that administers our Dahlia program. I do want to note once again that I think we have one of the only systems of its kind in the country. And it's been actually um, a way to really make sure that we're administering preferences in an efficient and fair way. Um, but it also shows you that the need. So in this instance, I think the question was from, from the period of 2008 to 2023, and we had 741,954 applications into Dahlia. And with that, 97,554 of the applications, applicants um, identified themselves as African-American. I do want to note that within our Dahlia system it is publicly accessible and that you are required to apply for each property in Dahlia. So it's not one system you apply um, to get on the list for each property. Um, there were, um, between that same period, 2,589 residents that were placed within our rental and home ownership housing units um, through the lotteries. And of those placements, 287 identified as Black or African-American. We do have a, a larger number of folks identified as mixed race, a category we don't use anymore. And also, I think we had 400 declined to state their race. In addition, I'm proud that with the um, with the administration, the DreamKeeper Down Payment Assistance Loan Program, um, so as of January of this year, and we'll get these numbers updated, we have 22 new homeowners, 10 under contract, and 100 engaged in counseling um, to go through the DreamKeeper Down Payment Assistance Program. As an understanding of the significance, um, previous to the launch of the DreamKeeper Program, we had five African-Americans that um, received assistance through the Down Payment Assistance Loan Program in five years. So in this year, um, a year alone, we've been able to quadruple that. Next, so this is a space where, once again, trying to talk about um, some of the um, advancements we've made in both policy and process. Um, we conducted analysis of the perceived and potential process barriers for African-Americans applying for BMR units, and we've incorporated those recommended changes into our BMR program. In particular, as we see in the DreamKeeper DALP, um, we do, we ask for a lot of the information ahead of time, which it used to be a tiered a different way, which one of the recommendations, in particular for African-American residents, we have um, a cohort system and additional support systems and networks and connecting to other folks that have um, applied for housing and applied through our programs right now. So a lot of it's been about um, relationship building, community building, and support systems at the front end and during the whole process um, to make sure that people feel engaged in that space. 
In addition, we are doing ongoing coordination with the Office of Community Investment and Infrastructure and implementation of the state legislation that expand the eligibility of the COP preference. Um, since the state implementation has happened, and so I know um, Director um, Koslinski, Director Thor, I, I, a little late right now, I apologize for that. Um, his team is still working on updating that list. But in the interim, if you believe that you qualify, then we ask you to apply and we do our own vetting. We've issued 65 new certificates. In addition to that right now, 914 people, nine, 914 COP holders are in regular contact with most CD and 310 have used their certificate at least one time. I believe you know that um, with the COP, you're able to use the certificate for one time for rental and one time for um, homeownership. Next, please. And then finally, for community development, um, we have procured, on fiscal year 21-22, we procured $67.4 million in grant funding from the general fund um, to community-based organizations. 11% of that funding went to organizations that primarily serve Black or African-American residents. Um, and then in fiscal year 2022, we procured um, $5.8 million in grant funding from the Federal Community Development Grant Program to community-based organizations. So we have a different, a different number of pools of money in which we grant. Sometimes they're blended, sometimes they're not. Um, and so in that instance, I do want to note that once again, for our grants, that's done by a competitive process as well. Request for proposals is usually issued and then proposals are submitted and scored and then funding awards are awarded accordingly. In addition to that, with the Federal Community Development Block Grant money and also our Housing Opportunity People with AIDS money, we require to um, disperse that money in accordance with our 2020-2024 consolidated plan, which is developed with community and submitted to HUD and then monitored on an annual basis. In addition, next slide, please. And so finally, um, in this instance, this is the last slide, um, and the way we are thinking about the investments, we incorporated targets for African-Americans served into all our grant agreements for programs and services that are citywide in nature. Um, if people are interested in data, the way we determined that was we looked at, because we focus a lot of our investments on low, very low, and extremely low income um, residents within San Francisco. The determination right now is that 11% 11, 11 of the extremely low, very low, and low income population within San Francisco is African-American, which is higher than the percentage of total African-Americans within San Francisco. And so that instance, we set a target to be aligned, which was greater, either total population of African-Americans, a total percentage of population of African-Americans within San Francisco, or the percentage of the ELI, VLI, and low-income population, whichever was higher. So in that instance, those have been incorporated into our grant agreements or are being monitored accordingly. In addition to that, we streamlined the capacity building program to better align with operational capacity needs. In many instances, they were one-offs of for our capacity building of people asking, what do you want to do? And we realize right now, and in, in hearing input, particularly from African-American-led organizations, sometimes it's support and supporting, it sometimes it's resources needed for financial systems, for board development, strategic planning, or recruitment of leadership, leadership development. So now it's a pretty clean question. Which one of those do you want? It's a maximum of $75,000, and that instance, we believe that we're really um, incorporating the institutional capacity. 
Also, in addition, we're, we're partnering with HRC. There's a million dollars that was committed for African-American-led CBO capacity with the goal that when we do our next mega round of funding, um, that we would have an increase in the number of African-American-led organizations that are aware of that funding and that are competitive within that funding. They also went through a cohort more, mark, excuse me, they also went through a cohort model um, and then have received um, some ongoing funding for larger capacity needs. And then community development outside of grant making also has our housing services organization. And so I think there's a lot of questions about property managers in particular. And so for our RAD, which is the rental assistance demonstration projects. So I think if you guys understand, they're only two public housing. So I'm not over public housing. That's the SFHA. There are two public housing projects within the city right now, Plaza East and um, North Beach. We had a series of programs that we had a we had an exercise that took place in which all of the public housing was converted to what we call RAD, and then there was a subsidy associated with that, and then property management teams associated with that procurement. Um, but as part of the ongoing um, effort to ensure that we're being responsive to both residents um, and to the goals of our programs, we provide regular training to property managers and housing service providers on trauma-informed service and trauma-informed systems, um, which is administered by the team. Um, so with that, thank you very much. I look forward to your question. Thank you, Shaw. Good evening, Chair, commission, committee members. I'm very glad to be with you today. Rachel Tanner, I'm the President of the Planning Commission. So I'll just be saying a few words before I hand it over to Director Hillis, who will give uh, the bulk of the presentation on behalf of the Planning Department. Um, you know, I just want to say it's it's already April, if we can believe that. And May 2023 is not far um, from us, in particular, May 25th, 2023, which will be the three-year anniversary of George Floyd's murder. And, you know, we know that his death sent off a lot of reckoning in this country, in this city, and including in the planning department um, on the prior iteration of the commission, in which I now chair. And in that wake of his death, um, our department and our committee Commission, we passed a resolution that centered the planning department's work on racial and social equity. And it's been a resolution that we've been working to live into for the past three years. But even before then, and I can tell you as a former staff member of the planning department, this, this, the city and the department was already on that path. We were working with the Government Alliance on Racial Equity internally within the department to get staff um, and leadership ready to understand what is racial equity in the government context, how could it apply to planning decisions and what could we do as um, both uh, government uh, employees, but also as a body in the city to advance racial and social equity in the city. So it's a path we've been on and one that we are continuing to be on um, in this city. So I wanna also recognize that um, these efforts happen in a context in which planning can often be associated with um, the opposite of pursuing racial and social equity, right? And we have a long way to go, not just as a department, but really as a field when we think about real estate, real estate development and the ways that land use and land use decisions, both in the public and the private side, have been used to abuse Black people in this country. And so we're coming from behind, but I really feel confident and very proud of the work that we're doing and that we are making a difference um, and that we can continue to advance and to make a difference. So with that, I want to go to the next slide. Um, and share a little bit about what the department does. And then Director Hills is gonna come forward and talk about a couple of our key programs um, that I think will be of interest to the, to the committee. 
So what do we do at planning? We are a regulatory agency that guides the growth and the development of San Francisco. And there's a couple ways we do that. We regulate land use through zoning um, and also by administering the planning code. I think that's really important to understand. One of our key jobs as an agency is to use the laws that have been adopted by the Board of Supervisors and ensure that those are administered across the city. And so a lot of the decisions that we're making um, in some ways have already been made, or at least the guidance on how to make those decisions has been given to us by the Board of Supervisors. We issue permits, so if you've ever had to come to us, maybe for work on your own home or a business or a property that you're related to, you've come through planning, maybe through the Department of Building Inspection as well, um, to get the permits to do that work. We, of course, uh, preserve historic features, assets, and other elements. We develop long-term plans to guide housing, commercial, and other development. And so Director Hills will be talking about our housing element, which is our long-term, our eight-year plan to guide housing development in San Francisco. And I would say it's our one of our big to-dos um, over the next eight years, along with understanding how we can help uh, the economic recovery in San Francisco. And lastly, we engage with communities to help shape these citywide plans. So we do that through a lot of individual work on different projects like the housing element. We had a lot of different outreach activities um, that continue and that are ongoing. Uh, we also have an equity council that we established, I believe, a year or two ago, um, really to help guide and to make sure that, again, we are staying true to our resolution and true to the, the goals um, that we have as a department, but really making sure that those are shared broadly with the community. So again, thank you. I'm so glad to be here tonight and hopefully we'll be, be able to answer any of your questions. But with that, I'm going to hand it over to Director Hillis. Thank you. Hey, <clears throat> excuse me. Good evening, committee members. Uh, honored to be here today. Uh, we can move to the next slide. As, as, as President Tanner said, you know, one of our biggest efforts over the last few years has been putting together our housing element in um, uh, it is a it is a it document that the state requires us to undertake and do. Um, the state is really looking at production and how many units of housing we produce. But I think if you read the housing element, it goes far beyond that in looking at issues of of racial and social equity, eliminating displacement, um, addressing racial harms that have created and perpetuated by past city land use actions. Um, providing housing choices at every level, that's affordable housing, but also uh, market rate housing, housing choices. And as you may know, the state and our arena goals, which are re regional housing needs assessment goals, require us to accommodate 82,000 units of new housing in the city, um, over 45 of those to be affordable. And to create and maintain thriving neighborhoods, which are which are, are really developed through actions by the community. And we didn't develop the housing element on our own. We did it working um, with, with bodies like yours and community members and talking to over thousands of San Francisco residents and stakeholders. So we'll go to the next map, please. And I should say the housing element doesn't treat all neighborhoods the same. It recognizes historical decisions and existing inequities especially around zoning, city investment, and development. The blue map on the left is a, is a state-developed map. It's well-resourced neighborhoods. And this, again, is a state-defined term um, based on income levels, uh, schools, parks, how a neighborhood is, is resourced. And the state wants us to focus on those neighborhoods in, in rezoning and in finding new opportunities for housing. Um, no coincidence, this also co corresponds to lower density neighborhoods, areas that were, were down zoned in the mid 1900s, 
corresponding to the times of redevelopment and urban renewal. The state in, in, in the city want to see more dense development in these neighborhoods, especially along commercial corridors, including much needed affordable housing. The other map shows priority equity geographies, and I think this map was, was similar to the one Dr. Lynch showed in her presentation. It's, it's based on DPH data, um, um, but measuring income levels and education levels, gender, generally larger concentrations of diverse populations and communities of color. We've seen most development in the past several decades happen in these San Francisco neighborhoods. I think probably over 80, 85% of housing development has happened in priority equity geographies. And it's no accident. We rezoned in those areas to allow for that development to happen. And the housing element calls for more community planning efforts in these districts, uh, work with MoCD and other agencies around cultural districts, neighborhood stabilization efforts, and more city investment in these neighborhoods. Next slide, please. So the, the housing element is, is set out with broad goals, and these are, are some of them to address historic inequities and address past governmental inactions that, that led to inequitable outcomes um, for Black American, American Indian and other communities of color. Um, the housing element direction is to prioritize these communities and invest in community stabilization and anti-displacement efforts. Uh, that the housing element is, is full of data. This one showing uh, the reduction um, from 1990 to 2015 of the black population and the American Indian population. Uh, Committee member Barry, you asked about rent burden. There's, there's uh, tons of data in the housing element on rent burden showing uh, basically 38% 30 of all renters are rent burdened, um, but 53% of, of black renters are rent burdened our rent burden. Um, if we go to the, the next slide, that the housing element also gets very specific, and I think Director Shaw touched on, on many of these. Uh, and it's unusual for a general plan to get this specific, but we wanted to, to make sure that we had actionable goals in the housing element. So increasing access to affordable rental and homeownerships, for, for Black and American Indian populations, expanding their certificate of, of preference program that Director Shaw called out are some of the items that are that are included in the housing element. And if we go to the next slide. If we recognize uh, that words on paper aren't, aren't enough, and this shouldn't be a planning document that sits on a shelf and that we need robust implementation efforts the mayor already put out an executive directive on implementation of the housing element in, in the housing team um, that's here from OCD and OCII and HSH, as well as OEWD are, are all part of our implementation teams. It calls for us to begin a significant rezoning effort for well-resourced neighborhoods and actually complete that within a year, as well as significant investment in affordable housing and in developing and implementing community plan efforts, such as our work with MoCD and, and cultural districts, really to give voice and empower communities to implement their, their priorities. Next slide, please. And even prior to our work on the housing element, um, we set out to, to focus more of our planning work and really transform our planning work, especially around our long range and community planning work 
um, around issues around equity and displacement and better serving Black Ameri American Indian and other communities of color. We formed a community equity advisory council. Uh, Member Carter sits on sits on that to really give us input and feedback on how we best partner um, with communities in San Francisco. We formed a community equity division within our department to lead those efforts, um, and it's it's been a, a shift we've developed through the through the Equity Advisory Council resources, which we didn't typically have, which we tend to be more staff driven, um, so that community we can provide communities with resources to develop. Um, their own community plans. And next slide. And, and we're working um, to develop our racial and social equity plan, as you know, through your work, phase one has been more internally focused, how we hire, how we promote, how we determine our budget every year. And we've made significant changes and in inroads um, there and just how we're organized in the phase two work we're starting. The housing element is a big step but really looking at, at how our how what we do on the regulatory side, uh, both benefits and burdens um, community. So I appreciate the time and look forward to more discussion. Thank you. Thank you very much, Director Hillis. Director Kozlowski. Thank you, greetings members of the the reparations committee. Um, those slides will be up in a second, I presume. I'll just introduce myself. Um, super appreciate this work. Um, it's been a long time coming to have this discussion in public. Um, and so I've been reading the reports uh, quite extensive. I've met with uh, the subcommittee, the policy subcommittee recently, uh, which was a great um, conversation we were having. They had a lot of good questions and um, got the questions, of course, from, from this group and uh, wanted to talk a little bit about uh, the Office of Community Investment and Infrastructure, uh, the former redevelopment agency. Um, as you know, we were dissolved or the agency was dissolved in 2012 uh, by the state. Uh, they called it uh, state dissolution. This was statewide. Um, and ever since then, um, we've been just allowed to implement our enforceable obligations, the, the work that was remaining at the time of dissolution, which was 2012. Um, see if you can go to the next slide. Thank you. Um, and all of our all of our work, our housing projects, primarily at the time, um, approximately three hundred of them were turned over to the mayor's office of housing, community, and development, uh, called the housing successor uh, in the redevelopment language. And so they uh, begin. They from that point on, they had um, uh, taken on our developments, and they continued to operate them with their development partners that were chosen over the many decades of redevelopment. Um, and we continue to operate that way that anything that we finance and build, once it gets leased up, gets turned over to the Mayor's Office of Housing with those development agreements to, to operate. So we operate in three different geographical areas, Mission Bay, Trans Bay, and Hunters Point Shipyard Candlestick. Um, next slide, please. This is the, ge the geography of Mission Bay. It technically has two different zones, but for the purposes of this discussion, um, we'll just refer to them just as Mission Bay. Just generally speaking, uh, the development is nearly complete there. There's about 6,500 units of housing. About 30% uh, of it was uh, affordable. Uh, there's 41 acres of parks there um, and about 6.2 million square feet of commercial space, primarily office, including uh, Chase Arena there. 
What's left is about a thousand units of housing on two blocks and about eight parks, um, and that will be complete over the next five to ten years. Next slide, please. This is the Trans Bay area, centered mostly around the uh, Trans Bay Joint Powers Authority, the transit center there, replacing the old uh, bus station that's there. Um, that's about 3,200 units of housing. 35% of it is affordable, and it's about three and a half acres of parks. There's about 1,000 units of housing left, along with two and a half acres of parks, and that'll take another five to 10 years uh, to complete. Next slide. And then the last one, which is the least developed, is the Hunters Point Shipyard um, Candlestick Point. That's over 12,000 units of housing, again, about 30% affordable. Um, over 300 acres of parks and about 5 million square feet of commercial slash office. Uh, only about 500 units have been built, or actually about 800 units between Candlestick and the Hunters Point Shipyard together. Uh, and that project will go on to approximately 2058. Next slide, please. So altogether through our redevelopment plans and financing authority, OTII provides for the development of about 22,000 units, about 10,000 that have been built to date. Um, so about 7,000 of those will be affordable and about 14 million square feet of commercial space and nearly 400 acres of parks. We also have a, a robust small business and workforce hiring program that provides opportunities for the people who live and work in the neighborhoods where we develop projects. And in 2022, over 34% of our contracting was with um, minority or women-owned businesses and 21% of them were black firms. About 7.5% of our construction workforce uh, is black. About 25% of OCII staff is black, including the executive director. And about 50% of our commission, uh, we have a commission, we have actually two boards, an oversight board and a commission. The, the commission is the more day-to-day -day operator. 50% um, of them are black, including our chair. Next slide, please. So I wanna cover a couple of our key projects that are being undertaken this year. We have a park in Trans Bay, block three which we, which is on the upper left there, uh, we anticipate that breaking ground in next year. Uh, on the right, um, you see upper right, excuse me, Bayfront Park, which is in Mission Bay, right behind the Warriors Arena. That's a five and a half acre park, which we hope to be complete by the end of this year. And then at the bottom, we have Under Ramp Park, which is a two and a half acre park that runs underneath the ramps near Trans Bay. That's about two and a half acres, and that'll uh, be complete in 2027. Next slide, please. On the upper left is Mission Bay Block 9. Um, that's an all-black development team. Uh, two black developers combined with um, a black-led nonprofit and a, almost all-black uh, development design team. Uh, that's a $138 million project, and I believe their developer fees are about $3 million for that project. That will be That's already under construction. It'll be complete by the end of this year, and it's the first home ownership project, affordable home ownership project, being done in, I think, over a decade. And I think the previous one was done by redevelopment as well. On the upper right, you see Transbay Block 2, um, which consists of 330 units of affordable housing. That's on the Transbay Temporary Terminal uh, site off of Howard and Maine. Um, that will break ground hopefully by the end of next year. And then not depicted here are two blocks in Mission Bay, which consist of about 1,000 units. And we hope to break ground on those in 2025, but we have no designs for them because we haven't selected a developer. Next slide, please. This is now looking at the Hunters Point Shipyard. We have three blocks that are gonna break ground, about 180 units. 
of affordable. These are 100% affordable projects um, uh, in the next 60 days, in fact. Um, and then, next slide, please. Whoops, that's the end. Okay, that is the end. Sorry, the abrupt ending. I didn't realize that was the end there. Okay, um, I'll be here if you have any questions. Thank you. I may invite you, if you would, Director of State, stay there. Again, members, it's time for our, we're going to go to our questions first. Um, so I'd ask you to be mindful of a couple of things. One, of um, our directors, their time, as well as the fact that public is waiting to make public comment. So we want to get there. Um, <clears throat> so we want to be as efficient as we can in this space. We'll do it in the reverse order that they presented. Um, just to shake it up a bit, um, in all seriousness, just to give us an opportunity to um, take advantage of the director at the podium at this time. Uh, so please identify if you if you have questions for Director Kozlowski, um, and we will start there and then work our way through the others. Member Barry. Thank you, Chair. Um, Good to see you again, Thor. I can't pronounce your last name, so I'll call you Thor. Um, I saw you at the Economic Empowerment Subcommittee meeting, and you mentioned blocks on any type of preference of housing for Black people due to Proposition 209. However, I've seen even today that DOH, MOHCD, and in other <clears throat> capacities I'm at, that SFMTA has used different um, creative ways to house or to repair harm to the communities that are Black. So um, do you have any type of new insight from listening to other departments today, like maybe using priority equity words or um, DKI communities or anything to not let that be a reason why? you don't want to go forward with something for Black people in a city where we have a Chinese hospital, Jewish community living, different spaces like that? Thank you, Member Barry. Um, what what I, we didn't talk about in the meeting, which um, Director Shaw did talk about, are the different um, procurement practices and developer selection um, uh, sort of procurement we're looking at the, we primarily institute those practices through the development teams. We only really do development longer. We share a lot of those resources with the Mayor's Office of Housing Community Development, for example, uh, the leasing up process through Dahlia. We share underwriting uh, with them as well. And so we look for diversity in development teams. We look for diversity in the professional services and we have a 50% goal. So we're not able to actually target folks, but we encourage the developers to target um, as many of the firms that are Black-led as possible. We look for diversity in the professional design teams and in the construction as well. Okay, I don't, I'm not sure if you understood the question. The question was when discussing um, priority in any type of housing development for, this is a reparations committee, this is about Black people. So you mentioned that how 209 is such a block, Proposition 209 for CII. So I'm asking you, is there any way you could think of, listen to other departments tonight, that you can be more creative 
in helping to repair the harm done to Black people by policy here in San Francisco. So let me let me think on that some more and come back to you guys. Appreciate that. And then my final question is, do you support testing the community in the Hunters Point area for toxins left by the Navy? As a 12-year veteran of the Navy myself, I don't trust them. And I don't trust the EPA who uh, approved respirators for the folks when 9-11 happened in New York. And a lot of those people are now dead believing in that. So you mentioned all this housing that's going to be broken ground in 60 days in an area that's the highest amount of cancer in San Francisco, the highest amount of asthma in San Francisco. So again, my question is, do you think that would be a good idea to test the community to see how much toxins are in their systems from that were left by the Navy? That's a great question, Ms. Berry. Um, you know, we we support every single I do and our agency does um, assessment tool that's out there that's based on science. Is that a yes? I, I certainly would support if people feel that they've been poisoned in any way to get testing by whatever means based on science. Um, the Department of Public Health, I know, has a whole equity division that looks at um, disparate health impacts. I know there's a health subcommittee. Um, I'm just getting up to speed on the, the health subcommittee's work. Uh, so I can't really respond to their work just yet, um, but very aware of the um, the different cancer clusters that exist in the area and the various toxins that exist in Baby Hunters Point, and certainly the toxins that exist at the Hunters Point shipyard. Um, and if people who either live around the shipyard or have worked on the shipyard or feel they've been exposed to certainly be tested, I'm so totally in support of that. Thank you. Thank you, Member Barry. Member Carter. Um, hi, Thor. <laughs> Hi, Ms. Carter. Hi. Um, it was surprising to hear that you guys have so much Black leadership and um, and contractors and, and things of that sort, because I've been hearing quite the opposite from, am I too low? Listen to the mic. Okay. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, I've been hearing quite the opposite from community as far as um, contracting, and I'm just wondering, like, are those local companies or where are you guys getting these Black contractors from on these projects? That's a that's a great question. I don't have that data point whether or not these are local. Um, they are black led. Um, I could think of a handful that um, I, I don't know where maybe Baines is based or Baines uh, Construction Baines. is based. Is is he okay? Is that the office in Bayview? Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know geographically where they all are, but I know they're black led. But I can I can try and find out. And is there more of an effort to have more local um, contractors? specifically in Bayview? Well, that's, and thank you for, for raising that particular point. I didn't mention that in my remarks. Um, we do have a zip code preference uh, for contracting. So the first goal is always to the local 94124 zip code in Bayview Hunters Point, and then the adjacent surrounding around the shipyard uh, development zip codes. And then similar for the other project areas, Mission Bay and Trans Bay, and also for Bayview District 10 as a priority. So we always highlight that as a number one goal. Um, we, we used to have programs that incentivized um, and worked to create de uh, development capacity in black developers and black, um, not excuse me, not black developers, black contractors. Um, 
With dissolution, a lot of those programs have fell by the wayside. If they don't exist in a, a development agreement, we can't actually undertake them. Um, so we're always looking of different ways, if it's only verbally, to address with the developer teams the efforts to try and use Black contractors, to use uh, Black design professionals in all of their developments. Yeah, I would love to see that as a priority when choosing um, developers. And then my final question is about COPs. Um, I didn't hear any data regarding the COP holders. Like, what is, let's see, do you have like um, any percentage of people that has actually been able to secure housing through COP? I, I don't have a final report yet on the certificate of preference marketing, as we call it. Uh, we have an annual report that's going to our commission soon, and I can give uh, uh, a more formal update in writing. I think uh, Director Shaw did reference some certificate of preference placement statistics in his comments. Um, so you can maybe refer to that, but we have a more comprehensive um, report that deals with just OCI projects. Again, we just, we build them, lease them up, and then we turn them over to um, MOHCD, and then they do lease up, releasing, excuse me, over time. So there's always longer periods of time for COP performance, um, but we do the initial lease up, but I can get that to you uh, in writing. Yeah, I would love to see it. I know my mom is actually a COP holder um, for years. No look. like <laughs> So I, I would love to see what that data actually looks like. Okay. Thank you. I'll, I'll get that to you. Thank you. To the committee. Thank you, Member Carter. Member Landry. Yes, uh, thank you, Thorne, and good to seeing you again. Um, and thanks for attending the public subcommittee meeting uh, last week. Uh, so my question is regarding the Fillmore Harris to Center. Um, a lot of communities are aware about the RFP that went out. Uh, so from OCII standpoint, what what is happening to ensure that that particular project um, you know, because um, the talk is always about it being sell it to, sold to someone outside the community. And, and like what Gloria just saying, we're here to preserve Black existence here in San Francisco. San Francisco. So what is being done at OCC or, or even in that RFP to ensure that the Black presence, the Black ownership have some type of chance in the Fillmore area? Uh, thank you, um, Member Landry. I'm going to defer to when um, Director Shaw comes okay, up as good. they're managing that procurement process. Okay, one one more thing. Ahead, please. <laughs> you said be um, nope. oh, so getting back to the certificate of preference, we got a lot of recommendations regarding certificate of preference. Could OCII take a position, a formal position, while you're sunsetting? about reparations in terms of a, endorsing what we're doing as a body here in San Francisco, since we know literally 60 to 70% of the past harms is in relation to uh, the former redevelopment agency, maybe a little higher, I guess. Um, that's a great question. I have to speak with our general counsel, um, uh, Jim Morales about how we position, position ourselves or statements. When you and I spoke, I told you that I would definitely entertain at least just writing a letter of support. Um, I'm here in support of what you guys are doing, but in terms of the agency taking a formal position, I have to check with him, but I'm happy to explore that. Okay, thank you. That's it. Thank you. Uh, Member Brown, please. 
Hi, Thor. I just have three questions. Um, first, just to kind of follow up on Dr. Kirby's request, how do we connect Dr. Kirby to access the records from OCII so she can expand the data, uh, the data set for redevelopment? Um, that's question one. Uh, question two is, um, has OCII considered expanding the COP to include access to market rate housing um, for rentals as well as purchasing? And thirdly, um, to kind of um, piggyback on, on Member Landry's question is, um, are you guys, have you guys also talked about incorporating reparations into your racial equity plan? And that's it, thank you. Thank you, Member Brown. Um, thank you, good to see you again. Uh, we, um, have been providing access to our records for a variety of different um, sort of exploratory studies. Our commission has a subcommittee on certificate of preference, um, which has um, community members as well as two commission members. And with that, in support of this committee, um, uh, Julian Davis, Bivette Brackett, and I'm trying to think who else was um, interested in an equity study, which um, I'm glad I got to see. Um, where is she? She's still here. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Um, and I forgot your name. I apologized. Okay. But that work is just incredible. They were trying to go through our records manually to do what they were doing digitally. Um, so I don't know where they got the displacement addresses from, but somebody wanted to go through all of our records and there's over 600 and some odd boxes. And so uh, we don't have the staff to go through that, but I think they were working with USF. Again, thank you for USF. <laughs> plug for them uh, to have a, a couple of their uh, students in Stanford as well, the, the law school, uh, have some volunteers go through our boxes. Uh, but they were not able to get the cohort in the school to get engaged on that. But we're, we're happy to help with that and have our records open. They are um, subject to the State Public Records Act. So these are records that are accessible to the public. If anyone has a information request, please send it. We have a, um, on our website, our uh, commission secretary uh, handles those. Um, massive information requests require a little bit of coordination, um, but nonetheless, they're open uh, to the public. And we, I think we'd have to talk with uh, Director Shaw to talk about um, certificate of preference being open to market rate housing. I don't know exactly how that would work because it's a preference. And I presume that if you can rent or buy a unit, I, I guess, I don't know how the preference would work. Um, we don't necessarily, um, we only implement the existing program. We can't go and change it. Um, but I could talk to Director Shaw about some of those ideas. And in terms of the racial equity plan, we have an internal racial equity plan we're in the first phase of, which is primarily focused on um, training for staff and our commission on systemic racism and the effect of um, uh, disparate decisions in the policymaking. Uh, our next stage is to begin rolling out a training program. We've doubled our training budget on this, and we're implementing that as we speak. Great. Possibly. Uh... You guys could utilize a small site model that they use to purchase, uh, nonprofits use to purchase um, housing. Small sites, maybe we can figure out how to use that to um, expand OCII for market rate housing. I mean, COP. That, that is something where the state is actually considering. Senator Weiner introduced legislation in February of this year to restart 
what we used to do in 2000, before 2012 called replacement housing, which is replacing the 14,000 units that we demolished during the redevelopment days in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. We have about 6,000 of those units left to replace, and those could be used for a small site, those funding, that funding. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Um, I see your hand, Member Ekinem, but I um, want to call on um, Member Cunningham, who raised her hand online, and I'll come to you, I promise. Member Cunningham. Thank you. Can y'all hear me? Yes. Okay, thank you. I have a clarifying question, Chair. Are we addressing all speakers or just um, this speaker right here? Just OCII at this moment. We're going to go one by one with each of them. Okay, thank you. So um, thank you all for being here. <clears throat> And I'm, I'm sick at home with the flu, so that's why I'm not there. Um, when, when you came at home, thank you. Oh, thank you. Um, when you came to our meeting the other day, I addressed some things that um, because I felt like you were gaslighting us <clears throat> on telling us all these wolf tickets and how great things find, uh, sound. <clears throat> and I also want to point out that having everybody speak like this is very overwhelming. A lot of information is coming in and it's hard to keep up and try to make sure we make points, so bear with me. One, I talked to you about parking for poor people and people with COPs. Um, because you're OCII, you're with the developments and you have access to talk to these people, I would like to formally request that you advocate to make sure that poor people, low-income people, Black people do not have to pay for parking in San Francisco when you build these units. <clears throat> also, Candlestick Heights was supposed to have like 12,000 units built in 2019. That property is still sitting there. What happened when everybody voted for this and that never got resolved? Now, I know you just got here 10 minutes ago, so you may not have the answer to that. About the toxins, someone spoke to this. Um, Kathy, can you please put my email address in the chat for people? <laughs> I am, <clears throat> excuse me, the vice president of the Hunters Point Biomonitoring Foundation. I work directly with Dr. Sumchai. My family, all four of us, has been tested with the toxins that are on that uh, site. And all four of us have one common uh, toxin, amongst others, that we have called vanadium in our system. So the um, toxins are alive and well in Bayview. So I hope everybody on this call is listening to this. If you want to get tested, please take down my email address and email me. I will get you in contact with Dr. Sumchai so you and your family can get tested. Okay. There was a settlement of almost $6 million to the people who own property on that shipyard. They just settled a couple of weeks ago or just got their checks, excuse me, a couple of weeks ago. And they were settled, <clears throat> excuse me, for almost $6 million because of two criterias. One, the fear of getting cancer. The fear of getting cancer and the loss of equity because banks will not give loans on that property. So I want people to hear this clear because it sounds real good when they paint these real pictures talking real fast. No, it's toxic up over there. Hang on, I'm not done yet. Oh, I asked you at the meeting, can you speak with poor people People in your position tend to make decisions for poor people, low-income people, and they do not take the responsibility of sitting and meeting with the public and saying, what is it that you are actually looking for or what are the things that you need? I, we talked about Alex Griffin, and I told you 98% of the people over at Alex Griffin do not work, yet they had two-hour parking there for two years. I assisted a senior citizen for some other issues because it's filthy over there, okay? trash everywhere, garbage, all kind of stuff. And the parking was atrocious. People are getting tickets left and right. 
I sent demanding letters, email, excuse me, to SFMTA. And within two weeks, it got changed. Why? Because I wasn't playing. That was intentional and malicious that Malia Cohen allowed to happen on her watch. Yes, I said it. <sighs> Hang on, I'm not done yet. Hold on, I'm looking at my notes. So yeah. Oh, and with this $200 million, $290 million deficit, it's so... It's <laughs> Why are people in the city and county of San Francisco and getting paid big dollars to not do their jobs? That's a big problem. I work for the city and county of San Francisco. I see it day in and day out. I'm going to leave right now. But I see it day in and day out of people in high positions do not have accountability. Where are the accountability for all these things that y'all are talking about? It is so irritating to have people get up here and paint these wolf tickets and tell us how great this is when really you are actually sticking it to us. So I'm not the one to be stuck to. I don't give permission for that. So I'm standing here right now on the record to say, I'm asking you to actually uh, be an advocate and speak up for poor people, black people, low income people, black people. You hear that black people, you're at the reparations. Thank you. Thank you, Member Cunningham. Yeah, thank you, Member Cunningham. Good to hear your voice again. I can't see you, but um, hope you feel better soon. Um, I have some parking information. It's not complete yet, but I can get that to the committee as well. Um, this, the candlestick point development um, went through a, a variety of sort of redevelopment scenarios where the developer was reprogramming what could be done there that was feasible. Uh, they're behind schedule. We're working with them to restart it. Um, they've announced that they want to restart development there in 2025, um, which would be welcome news to com complete, especially a lot of the uh, public improvements that were left incomplete um, back in 2019. Um, and I'm, I, I go to any place. I'm invited. Um, happy to meet with the Alice Griffith residents or any other convening, uh, go to HOA meetings. Um, I think I've done more public meetings in my career when I was a project manager at the shipyard than any other project manager in the history of redevelopment. Um, so I'm not afraid to talk with anyone and everyone. Um, and you can have my information. I'll give it to you later if you'd like to talk offline as well about that. Yeah, thank you for that. And I appreciate your uh, sentiments. Um, I actually think it's important for you to reach out to them. You should be visible. You should go knock on doors. You should let them know, hey, you're here for them. So it's not about everybody reaching out to you. With, uh, with our community, Black people, you have to come to us. So it would be great for you to actually, you know, go knock on doors, go to the office, find out where their, um, their uh, uh, meetings are. That, that's, they, they, you're here for the community, right? This is something that you're building. So yeah, thank you for that parking information that you're going to provide. Um, there's no way it should have been built from the ground up having two-hour parking when 98% of people don't work there so that people are losing their cars and getting tickets. The bus stop is three, three blocks away. It's absolutely un unacceptable. So, you know, it shouldn't be one person over here advocating where my email goes up to the CEOs or the head cheeses because now we're talking lawsuits. It should not be a lawsuit for anybody to get some stuff done. We are human beings. This senior citizen I support and help, she's a human being. And we have to think about that. So I need you to, to make that a priority for you, to reach out. You go, you reach out. Who's your team? Have your team get on the ground, knocking, knocking, on, knocking on doors. Yeah, thank you. I look forward to that information. Thank you, Member Cunningham. Thank you again, Member Cunningham. Member Ekinem, thanks for your patience. Well, thank, thank you so much, uh, Director Thor, for being here today. I guess I have just a, a couple of questions slash comments. I think one, 
overall, as I'm sort of thinking through this, one of the things that sort of comes up over and over again is I actually like development, right? I like new housing. But I think one of the things that I'd like to see from every one of the speakers tonight is the change of qualification over time. Because somehow we're not making it in. And one, it's affordable, right? Like all of a sudden, you, you like things have to be affordable. That that was changed from, you know, 20 to 60 to 120, et cetera, right? Which sort of puts Black people out of contention for a lot of this housing. And I think one of the things that is missing is that element, right? Like all these things are being built and that's great, but then how are people being able to qualify for them? And that's what I haven't heard a lot today. Um, and, you know, that's something I think maybe we need another conversation about um, because, for example, a COP older shouldn't have to wait for years to get into like into housing. I think that's ridiculous. Right. Yet there's uh, there's housing infrastructure qualification put in place that I don't think we all understand. But given the harm that was done, it just seems outrageous like to me. And, and again, not something you can solve today. So I'm not going to ask you like to do that but sort of taking a look at what that looks like in the future, both on your side. And I think part of the, uh, the mayor's um, uh, department at like on housing, like there's something outsized like about that, that we're not taking a look at. And this other piece just around, we have thousands of vacant units in San Francisco right now. What was it? 20, 30, 40,000 vacant units like right now. And, you know, someone mentioned that there's a thousand homeless kids on the street. Like for me, that's just crazy. And I just don't know how we can have that happen, right? And so this is sort of more of a systemic, right? Issue um, for everyone involved. So one is qualification. Like I want, I would love to see that mapped over time, right? Because I think that has a lot to do with how many black people can get into that housing. Um, two, as we're talking about the money that's being spent on organizations, how many of those are black led? I like to see that mapped over time because that then gives me a really clear indication of one, where you're spending the money and then who those people are going after in like in real time, right? Um, and I think that, that that's sort of really important to this intake question that I think I'm focused in on as all this great stuff is sort of being built and why we don't get access to it like on an ongoing basis. Um, and then just overall, when you go from 5,000 to potentially 12,000 to COP holders, many more sort of, you know, Black people in general has sort of been affected. If you take the, just the median home value, right, that's somewhere between $7 billion to like $15 billion that we're sort of talking about, like, you know, really. And so I love that we're beginning to sort of make a move. And what you're hearing today is we know we're in emergency, right? Like, I can't, we can't do patchwork. And so it's not you, I mean, you're here, you're in front of us and others will, will be too. Um, but just know that we really see the breadth of this problem. Um, and what we're hearing so far is just not matching the harm or it's at the level of the solution that I think we need. And so something has to give there. And I'm not quite sure what it is, but I, I think for me right now, I'm sort of focusing in, in on that qualification, right? Affordability over time. How could, you know, Black people aren't getting in when they actually want to get in. Why is that? You know, for example, are we giving money to organizations, assuming that they're actually going to the Black communities, 
and they're just not, right? I mean, let's be honest, like about that conversation. And I don't think that that's sort of being surfaced. So again, it's not OCII necessarily, but you you do do a lease up, right? Like in, in these units. And so my concern is OCII wants to put in COP holders, but they're not getting in, right? How do we fix that immediately? Would, would be a question that I have, not, not only for you, but for others. Like, how does that get fixed? Because that is something that's right here, like right now. There you go. Thank you. Thank you for recommending. Please. Can, can I offer a comment for that? Um, so with relation to that, the Mayor's Office of Housing and Community Development coordinates on the lease up with that. We, we don't do it directly. We do it in coordination with Dahlia and their systems. Um, and the Certificate of Preference program has always been a preference in affordable housing. So people don't qualify for affordable housing. They don't qualify. That's what the preference is for. There isn't a, another benefit to um, having been displaced and gotten a certificate of preference for the, the residential program. That's still the, the case today. So not everybody who has a COP certificate actually can qualify for, for affordable housing. Um, and some that that's a, a shock to some people. They go, oh, great, I want get, to get into this housing. And they don't know that they've got to be at 50% of area median income. And so they might be over income in that case. Um, but that, that I've heard that story a lot and it's, um, you know, we're trying to think about different ways during the sort of, um, first contact to, to let people know what, what is available and what the preference actually means so that they don't just produce a bunch of information just to find out, oh, I don't even qualify. I had to go get all these records for you. And I could have been told that at the beginning. So we're trying to think of ways to get that question answered at the front end. So people don't have to go through that process if, if they're either don't qualify or not interested. Thank you. Member Irving. I'll be quick with this one, but I know that I'm not, and I, it was a lot of presentations. So if I'm missing your, miss, uh, mixing yours up with another one, but I heard someone say they were proud of the number of affordable housing units that we are being developed. But if our folks can't get into it, then what? So not necessarily get into it because they're over income, but we know that the uh, the average income for a black family in San Francisco is less than 30,000. So if they're not even making it, right? I live, I work, I've gainfully employed and I don't necessarily qualify for affordable housing in a lot of ways. And so how are we making this equitable, right? We give COP preferences, but yet you can't use it if you don't have the income. How is that fair? How is that equitable? And why are we proud of that? of saying we have more affordable housing units that black folks can get in to. So that, nice to meet you. Um, that wasn't my comment, but I, I do feel that OCI's track record in producing affordable housing, um, we have been the, the biggest producer of affordable housing historically. Uh, we're sunsetting, so we're just gonna do what we have left. I don't recall what director had made that remark, but um, we need to do more obviously um, on producing affordable housing, making um, housing available at a variety of different income levels that are really tailored toward the income levels of the city. The problem is that development changes, um, takes a long time and incomes change over time. And um, we, used to, we used to produce the lowest um, AMI incomes for affordable housing. So it'd be for the most deepest affordability levels. Um, and then as tax credit financing became more competitive and they want that, 
and the cost of construction continued to go up and interest rates continued to go up, it became almost impossible to produce the amount of housing we were producing in the past. So there's a lot of tension between the cost of production and who we're trying to serve. Um, so anyway, I tried to speak to some of the elements of your remarks. Mr. Chairman. Y yes, Reverend Brown. Thank you very much, members of the task force. Ladies and gentlemen, let me say this respectfully. And I do not apologize for being direct. I know the persons representing the departments there, seen them around town. But we ought to all collectively admit, admit that with all the harm, hell, and horror we've gone through, if we continue at the pace of what has been laid out as the procedures and not see that because of the egregious wrongs, we need more than this, what they are reporting on, what they're representing. We never will as black folks catch up in this area of development and housing, homelessness. We're the problem. We have been the victims. We own life support system. Our house is on fire. I know we said we're going in turn with everybody doing the thing of giving direct comments to each department. But I just said ditto all across the board in every area where we have been harmed. There's not a plan in place that represents deliberate speed for repair, for reparations. And the attitude in this city is, this is what black folks deserve. So we don't have to get excited. We don't have to get in a hurry. All we do is just make things a paralysis of an analysis. We must do something. This city and all these departments represented here must show something. And we can talk all we want about the laws. Other folks who had their grievances, their issues, they didn't wait to follow no law that kept them under. Break them. Get in the court. Battle it out. And I'll be nice and wait, wait till Mr. Shaw gets up, but I have something to say to him. And also Ms. McFadden. Thank you very much. Thank you, Reverend Brown. And the Planning Commission too. Everyone's coming, sir. Everyone's coming. Nothing for me, Reverend Brown? Okay. Thank yes, you. Yes, sir. It goes for you too. Yes, sir. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Director Hillis, please. Members, questions of the planning team.
planning department team. Okay, we'll begin with member Carter. Hello. Hello, good to see you. <laughs> yes. Um, so yes, I do have the honor to um to sit on the equity council and see firsthand some of the things you guys are doing in community. And so I definitely want to applaud that because I, I'm in those meetings and I, I see the efforts. Um, I think some of the things that um that I want to ask and I always ask. <laughs> It's just like, who's actually studying Black neighborhoods? Like, you know, I think this is going on across America. Like, what is happening to the Black neighborhoods? And like, are there actually planners that are studying Black neighborhoods and bringing that back here? Like, I will, I see a lot of, um, a lot of our conversations are about housing, but like, what's surrounding the housing? What is the businesses? What are, where are the parks? Where are the schools? Where is the neighborhood? And I'm just seeing a lot of, high-rise housing and that's just kind of um problematic for me and then another thing is like preserving historical historic um assets like what black um historic preservations is, is going on in san francisco like in regards to i don't know like um mary ellen pleasant like you know she has a she had a house on, on fillmore and octavia that's i don't know like you know, so I would love to to um to get if you guys can report back on that. And then also like what is let's see, what are the trends in zoning in like the black neighborhoods versus Valencia and Chestnut as far as the commercial corridors? I know um right on my watch, kind of my watch, <laughs> but uh, a Panda Express was built right in Bayview. It cut right through the tape. I mean, it, it was no tape, you know, and I know that that same Panda Express cannot just go and open on Valencia Street. Um, so I know we since then, you know, some different um, notifications and things like that was set up. But um, I would like to know more about um, zoning and use in, in our commercial corridors. Maybe I'll say a few words and then ask Dr. Hollis to fill in. First of all, thank you for your service on the Equity um, Council, in addition to your other committees that you serve on and somehow manage to run your own business and do all these things. So thank you for your service. Um, as far as historic preservation, you know, we do have our African-American context statement that is a, a pretty robust document in terms of looking really broadly at the city and locations. In addition to that, they're also the local, state, and the national landmarking processes. So those are really important. So if there are sites that we want to make sure not only get covered and documented as being historic, but then go to the next step of getting landmarked, which gives another layer of protection to those specific sites and or to a set of sites if they're all in one neighborhood. Um, that's something we should definitely look at. And so we'd love to partner with you and obviously the property owners and others to make sure that that, that process can be underway. And we also have our citywide um what is it called? The survey, the historic context survey that's going on citywide, neighborhood by neighborhood. It's going to take a couple of years, but really looking at each neighborhood, every part of the city and trying to document again, what's the history, what are the historic resources in those neighborhoods? Um, and so that's something that will be long-term, but is underway right now and just going systematically across the entire city. So that's another opportunity to identify and add, especially at a fine grain level when we're talking about a house or a building that you know may be overlooked if you're not looking really carefully. So that's a good opportunity for that. 
Uh, we've talked about the Panda Express. Um, we've talked about some efforts that we could probably do to either tighten up the zoning um, and then also to make sure that folks are informed and that the folks who are informed are also representing and getting the information out to the community when we have, in that case, formula retail coming in, making sure that people really do know what's happening and that they can avail themselves of the processes. If it's not what we want, you know, how do we make sure we can say that? Um, I'm, I'm happy we have our new planner who'll be working uh, and has been working in the Bayview neighborhood. And so hopefully having that that strong connection to the community can just help to make sure information is flowing and that information can flow both ways from the department to the neighborhood and then back uh, again. Um, as far as scholarship around the black neighborhood, I mean, there's a great question. I'm aware of a couple scholars who are working on just because, again, it's, it's, what we see here in San Francisco is not just happening in San Francisco in terms of black folks being pushed to periphery of major metropolitan expensive areas. So there is scholarship that is looking at that, both the trends, a lot of it looking at demographic and kind of the trends. But I think your question is more around like understanding the character of black neighborhoods and black communities. How are we reestablishing ourselves when we do get pushed out and or keeping ourselves and our, our connection to our community um, as we are kind of moving around? So I can send you a few things that I know about, but it's certainly... Um, something we need to continue to learn about as a city and certainly as a planning department. I don't know if you want to add anything. Just on the um, on the African-American context statement, it's drafts because we didn't think um, there was enough community engagement about that document. So we're happy to circulate that to you as well and get comments and feedback on that. that, that. Yeah, I think I would, I would more like to see um, an example of a thriving black neighborhood, like actual studies of, hey, this is something you guys, this can be a blueprint that mm. you guys can go off of. Yeah. You know, like I, I've seen you say, hey, Valencia streets need to be wider so we can have um, outdoor dining and, you know, things of that sort. It's like what builds a thriving neighborhood? I want to see that study in our black neighborhoods. That's a great suggestion. Thank you, Member Barry. You're not member Barry. You are Carter. <laughs> you are member Barry. You are member Irving and you're next. <laughs> I am member Irving. Um, first of all, I just want to say thank you for you all being here tonight. And I know it's not easy when you are working to do the good work and yet it doesn't seem to yield the results that we desperately need and deserve in our city for our people. So, but it is, so we're coming at you. Just want to appreciate you as well. Um, so for the planning, um, so I sit on the health subcommittee and one of the things we're going to ask of every city department, we're asking for an audit and the audit is to improve the city department's policies and practices responsible for community health. Um, and then we're going to ask you all to tell us what already exists where your funding has already gone towards black folks. And so I've heard, and part of that is your equity plan. And I've heard about that. And I think MOHCD talked about an equity plan too. Um, and I am curious, you said three years, right? Three, three years for the, the resolution. Sorry, no, it's okay. I was saying that we had our resolution as a commission to center the Department of Racial Social Equity. And prior to that had also been working on some of those efforts, but the resolution wasn't until 2020. What's happened since then? So like we can pass, we can have equity plans and have strategies in place. How do we know that black folks are benefiting from this? So what evidence do you have that can show like since then, since your efforts this is also gonna go for MOHCD, since all for all of your efforts, what has it yielded? Yeah. For black people specifically. I think this question is the heart of the question, not just for this committee, but for folks in San Francisco who are trying to figure out how do we make sure 
that we have accountability to Black communities in San Francisco, right? This is the question. Part of the challenge I think that we have, and this is me not speaking on the planning department, but just, you know, as a citizen more, is thinking about, you know, we have how many of us, four agencies here tonight, right? We have however many boards and commissions covering them. We have however many individuals working there. And so how do you take something that is, I think to Reverend Brown's point, kind of, we, we, we know when we see the change that we wanna see, but the responsibility for this change is very diffuse, right? And this is, this is the crux of the challenge. And so we can do the audit and we should do the audit and how, what will it add up to? And then when it doesn't add up to what we want, where do we pull the thread to say, where's the responsibility for not reaching that? And that's when it gets diffused again. We say, well, this person did it. This person did that, this person did that. I do think one of the clearest places that we can look though, will be the budget for each agency and how the budget is allocated, right? That's a clear statement of values of any agency. So our budget is allocated is that we have, we allocate FTE because we're primarily a people-based agency. We don't have a lot of field work. We don't have a lot of vehicles. We don't have a lot of kind of other types of, we're not doing capital like MOHCD. We're not building uh, buildings. So you won't see a lot of those big numbers um, like those agencies. So what we will see is a lot of allocation of staff resources. So individuals time, how are they spending that time? And so that's the question that I think when we ask, when we look at the audit, we can see neighborhoods that are being uh, supported. We can see projects, housing element implementation. And even that could be further broken down to, okay, rezoning, versus some of the things that are in the housing element that this committee and others gave input to and that the black community gave input to that were important. So we have to track back and say, okay, what did the black community say they wanted to see in the housing element? What got in the housing element and where is that in the budget? So that's kind of the thread that we would wanna pull there. And then you can also look at the flip side, which Director Hillis talked about, and which is an area where we have significant work to do as a department, which is like our black staffing. So how many black people are getting paid to do work for San Francisco? And we have a lot of work to do in the planning department on that. I mean, tremendous amount. It's pretty scary and sad. You know, since I worked there, I could count the number of black people on my hands. I can still do the same today right? It hasn't changed a lot in the last 10 years. Um, and so that's an area, again, where we have a lot of work to do. So I would hope that the budget is a key place for us to look. And I would say we have our community equity division, which, you know, shook things up quite a bit in terms of how things were, were shaped. Staff are rotating through there. So staff are getting exposure to understanding the equity tools and understanding that. Um, and I think our biggest allocation is to, I would say, to our FTE. And then there's two buckets there. There's our environmental work, which is very regulatory. And it's predicated on what CEQA requires us to do. So there's not a lot of optionality of do we want to do that regulatory work or not? We have to do it. Then we have our um, current planning work, people asking for permits, and we've got to look at those permits. And so those can come from all over the city. And then we have our long-range planning work. Now, I'm biased because I'm a long-range planner by trade, so I think that's the most fun part of the job. But that's also where we get to do the future planning and thinking a lot of the community outreach and engagement comes from that division and that work. And so you want to kind of look at all three, what money can kind of be moved around and what money you know, is a little bit more static. Um, and the money that can be moved around, in my opinion, is more the long-range planning work where we can really think and work with communities at a deeper level. So hopefully that gives you a little bit of insight into what we might be able to share in the audit and look for together. I love that. And I think that where your money goes will tell us where your priorities are and what you're actually doing. So I agree with that Absolutely. accountability metric. So I appreciate that. Um, your FTEs and, and looking at what it is that they are doing and not doing. So if we're talking about a lot of funding going towards hiring or building that capacity of your staff, and then how do we see if they're the right people to be in that place. And then for us to have all these plans, but yet you can still count on your hand, how many black folks within the department is a you know a little sad, kind of scary. And it make, it's something that we should pay attention to um, in the audit. Um, two other things in this, in this report, 
while I think our American Indian population is a population that we don't talk enough about in this city, nor do we serve, for these purposes, we're talking about Black folks, this is going to go for every committee, is when are we just going to say Black and report the numbers on Black? Because what happens is, and I, I see it in here, prioritize low-income American Indian, it's said a number of times in here, what happens is eventually with the 5% of Black, and I understand the population of American Indian is small too, um, we just eventually wipe out Black folks and just stop talking about them. There's a plan, but if we don't have targets that are set just for Black and can report on just for Black, we'll eventually wipe them out and stop talking about them. So while I appreciate the report, if we could just name the targeted supports for Black folks, what are the targeted supports? And then how do we hold you accountable for those targeted supports that you said you were going to put in place? Um, you can answer that or not, just a comment. And the I'll last say thing- I agree is- with you, so- <laughs> the last thing was um, in the health sub- subcommittee um, draft recommendations, we also included thinking about the spaces because we know that when Black folks can be in affinity and find spaces to commune, find spaces to be social, to whatever that we will thrive, we really reduces stress, reduces anxiety. And so just really want to put a plug in there for not just looking at how we preserve certain spaces. Like I appreciate that, looking at the housing that folks have owned and how do we preserve those, but how do we build them and really be intentional, especially in places um, where it's high concentrations of Black folks so we can see ourselves and know it's just for us. Absolutely. I think that's part of where we work a lot, collaboration. And one thing that is good, even though we have diffuse leadership, is a lot of collaboration does happen at a very genuine level um, between the agencies that are here. And so that's where OEWD, I think, and their work in small business development, I mean, I really, I really believe that that is such a huge part of people being able to be here, to thrive here, to have their own business where they can have their own income, their own resources, something to pass on to their family, and then create spaces for people who are like them, right? And have a space and a gathering space. Those those third spaces are so important. And so what can we do as a city whatever department it may be, to again, give the resources, the support to further those spaces and to protect them and support them when they come into being. Um, So absolutely agree and look forward to more work on that regard. Thank you. Member Barry. Thank you, Chair. Um, I want to start off by letting you two know that this process for us is painful and is harming us and traumatic as these reports are given. In my subcommittee, the education committee, I give a time on the agenda for our members and the public to express harm that's done to them because we have to revisit what we already know. And this department is one of the most frustrating departments I see from just the newspaper alone. It's it's sad. So I have two questions. The first one is, um, it was mentioned that the state does require more housing bill. Everybody sees that. It's the big fight between YIMBYs and NIMBYs and whatnot. Um, However, the city of San Francisco has done pretty good at reaching its market rate housing goals. However, the affordable housing goals really suck. So why is that? And what... Can you tell the state as far as, okay, we can kind of not push on with this market rate housing because the vacancy rates are ridiculous. I, for myself, know that specifically Soma on Harrison, Nima on 10th Street, Park Merced, 
abundance. If anybody needs a $3,000 one bedroom apartment, they're plentiful. So what point do you as a department and in collaboration with the mayor say, hey, we got the market rate housing, all techies come to San Francisco, plenty of room for you, but black people, you gotta go. You know, where, where do you stand up with that? I'll take this first thing you want to add to that. I mean, I think I think there's a, a couple ways to look at the the challenge. One is a challenge of resources. And so how do we get more resources, whether I would love to see from the federal, but it's probably a long time coming or the state to support people to be able to afford their housing. So more vouchers, more support of the folks who qualify for Section 8. There's one in four actually get a Section 8 voucher in this country. So it means there's three out of four families who meet the qualifications could could get that, but there's not enough resources allocated for families to have that support. So there's a resource allocation issue, again, the state and federal level. So I'd love to see the state give us more money, give families more money so they can afford the $3,000 a month uh, apartment that's empty. And we can get families in there you know, quick because we should fill them up if they're empty. So how do we have more resources? So the question becomes around you know, building, should we build more, should we not build more? And I think the question for this next eight year cycle is we have about half of our allocation of units versus build is affordable, but to your point, we didn't meet at the last time, what's going to be different this time that we're actually going to build those 45,000 units of affordable housing. And again, it comes down to money and how can we get more money, whether it's locally, whether it's state, whether it's federal or a mix of the two, um, and even using leverage in the private market to make sure that we can build those affordable units. Because I think it's an exciting idea to think, what if we did build 45,000 affordable housing units in the next eight years in San Francisco? How would that change this city? What would that mean for people in this city? So instead of thinking about it like, oh my gosh, we're never gonna do it. It's like, well, what would it take? Where could we raise the money? Philanthropy. We had a bunch of ricks folks who live in the city. They can give some money, you know? We don't have to just rely on government um, resources. How do we raise the money? How do we have a campaign for San Francisco and for affordable housing so people can live here and stay here and not just, you know, survive here, but actually thrive here. And I think I think it's doable and it's possible. I don't know which way to be that. Just a comment on the market rate side, because we've you're right, we've we've hit our goal in this arena cycle, although it's tripled in the next arena cycle. But also we're building the same type of housing generally, you know, in larger scale, hundred plus unit building, generally in the same neighborhoods on the eastern side of the city. So what the housing element tries to do is get a different type of housing to the four flat building, the 10 unit building that may be more affordable. And in neighborhoods, we haven't seen a lot of construction happen, but I agree with, with your comments and we need help from the state and the feds if we're going to come close to our, our, our affordable goals. Okay. Um, I was going to save this comment for department of homelessness, <laughs> but um, I think it applies for both. And I also want to add that I can't imagine what it's like to look like us up here and defend the city on its policies. I cannot imagine what that is like. Um, so my question is, um, well, actually, it's, it's really, a, it's not a question, it's a comment and that I feel very insulted by is when you guys throw out the voucher solution. It's absolutely disgusting that you think that's going to solve Black people getting into units. And I'll tell you why. I'm a veteran and I receive a HUD VASH voucher. There's hardly any developments here in San Francisco that will accept a voucher. So what you're telling me is we'll give you a voucher, tear down your 
low-income housing or solve your issue with this voucher, but you got to leave San Francisco with that voucher because ain't none of these buildings going to let you in. And then um, it's against the law for them not to accept vouchers, but it's not being enforced. Mm -hmm. I asked our city attorney about this matter, and he said he's given out warnings. I was like, oh, really? What? Where's the record on those warnings? Go to the assessor's office. I go there. Oh, I'd like to see the list of which developments have refused Section 8. We don't have any lists like that. Go back to city attorney office. Okay, here's the game. I would like to see fines. I would like to see fines, and I was going to like to say that with Department of Homeless also um, for both of your departments to ins insist that there be advocates for people who have a voucher to go with them to these developments, and this is part of what I want in reparations, is that we track these folks and then find them on the spot, and that money can go in the reparations pot. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So that was my comment. And then my second question was, which I also, I have so much for Department of Homeless, I can ask you as well, because you mentioned the racial equity plan. That's also insulting to me because it's a failure. Everyone's drafting these plans. I'm in phase one. It's been going on for a few years. It was like a little feather in the hat that something was for black people. And city of Richmond's thinking about doing it. They mentioned it at the state reparations task force meeting. And it's like, there's no accountability if you don't carry out the plan. It's just hiring somebody to write a plan and no results, no accountability. And the question is, what will you do to hold your own department accountable for not carrying out the racial act, uh, racial equity plan? Also, is it in your evaluations, your performance evaluations, that your failures at it? So I'll just say I'm a volunteer. I'm the president of planning commission. So I am the accountability for our racial equity plan. So I'm working with our department, with a director who we recommend to the mayor to hire to ensure that our department is implementing our racial equity plan. Are we there yet? No, but a plan and action is always a work in progress and we are making progress. So what accountability will be for the failure of it? What will happen? Well, I'd like to talk with you offline exactly about what specific parts you believe are failure and then we can address those. Thank you. You're welcome. Okay. Sorry. So members, I've got member Econem, Member Brown, Member Landry, Member Cunningham, and Reverend Brown. I've got a growing line of people for public comment, and it's 840. And our secretary needs a break. We all need a break, right? So we need to buy a break. So here's what I'm going to ask. I'm going to ask Member Econem and Member Landry to go now. I'm going to invite us to pause so we can take a, a short break and then we will resume and we need to pick up the pace. Okay. Remember, I can help. Mine's actually really quick because I actually used, touched on it, both like Member Barry uh, and, and, and both of you have. I actually think it would be a great idea considering that we do have 50,000 50, market rate units that are vacant right now. Imagine like a situation where we say for the next three years, or maybe it's five years that we solely focus in on affordable housing. I'd also like to take a look from OCII and MOHCD. How does that actually affect um, like our funding streams, right? Because those things are sort of taken into account 
tax credits, et cetera, as far as how, how we can build, how big we can build, et cetera. I've just never seen that. I don't know if we've actually gone through that thought exercise together to sort of figure that out and say, hey, we can actually do this in three years and get these people in. That combined with what I said earlier, just about mm-hmm. afford, you know, what does it look like to be affordable over time, making sure our people can get in, we can potentially do a lot of great work together like that way. So that's it. Great idea. Thank you. Well, Member Landry. First of all, uh, I sat on that historic context um, statement committee, and I'm very disappointed. Uh, we're talking about that was 2016. This is 2023, and it literally took the planning department maybe four years to even recognize that the the statement was just sitting there. Uh, I, I, you know, not to beat up on you guys, but let's just be clear. This is the reparations advisory task force for black people. And at a certain point, I don't think uh, uh, we're doing anyone no favor, all the departments here and even the people here at large. Let's just get to the point. We need money. Cut the check. And I think many of these agencies, you would do yourself a favor to speak with one voice, cut the check because we know money don't solve everything, but it solves most. And let's not beat around the bush with that because at the end of the day, I'm tired of hearing of affordable housing, low income housing, even what our co-op in King Garvey, which Shaw, Eric Shaw, you know about the, the, the compliance issues we're having with management agents and managers and the situation with this city is really, it's really sad. It's really sad. San Francisco is a world-class city. And in 2023, we're still talking about as if those statistics that was mentioned earlier, D5, 25% of the homeless population, D6, 29%, D10, 12%. So any plan that come before us should address those three districts first. And I think that's how we could really, really zero in and solving some of uh, the issues when it comes to planning. But again, I know y'all have a role to play, but I think that particular historical context statement is very clear. Uh, Even in the statement in our executive summary, we spoke about the timeline. So what have happened literally in this last seven years, you have seen a continued depopulation of black businesses, of more mental ill people on our streets, more people who's literally just leaving San Francisco because they see no hope. I, I ended there because I know we, we're dealing with time, but I just wanted to make a statement, not necessarily uh, a question, but thank you. Point taken. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay. Uh, again, we will hold in the queue Member Cunningham, Reverend Brown, and Member Rico Hamilton. It is quarter till by that clock. We'll resume at five till by that clock. Um, for a bio break. Thank you all for your patience. Members of community, we promise we are coming to you. Um, We appreciate your patience as well. Thank you all. We are in recess.
Is it my turn to speak? Because I can't hear anybody. Not just yet. <laughs> okay, thank you. Member Cunningham, can you hear me now? Yes, I can. It is your turn, please. Thank you. I appreciate that, Chair. So uh, one, I want us to like really think about the fact that all of these departments are like doing all this alleged work like right now, right? I mean, people doing push-ups, jumping jacks, jump ropes, right? But that just tell you just how racist San Francisco has been. Like, I want us to just like suck that in. All this stuff that everybody's doing and jumping through hoops right now to get everything together. And you know what's still happening? Nothing. I would like an opportunity to have a conversation where y'all can actually explain this quote unquote work that's being done. Because it's a lot of work being done, but no results coming out. And let me speak from a personal experience. Me, my husband, and my two children had Section 8. In San Francisco, we can make $195,000 and still have a Section 8 voucher. What does that tell you about the prices in the housing in San Francisco? If we can make $195,000 and still receive government assistance, that is insane. And we have got to change the language from affordable housing because housing is not affordable. It's we need low income housing. So your your low bar is zero dollars, not like, I don't know, 30,000 to 85,000. So, you know, it's really interesting to hear people <clears throat> who sit in these offices, regardless of how long you've been there, the longer you've been there, the sad, the sadder I feel for you because you have not done a good job. You have failed the community. If you've been in these positions for a long time, yes, you're coming in and you're picking up other people's problems. Congratulations, you signed up for the job. But if you are here to actually do the job, to have housing for people who need to live in it and can't afford to live in it, make it happen. I don't understand how difficult that is. And I'm so, I need to find out this accountability because I feel like if y'all's checks and city and county workers, I'm a worker, was based on the work we did and had results, a lot of people shouldn't be getting paid. This $290 million deficit would end overnight because people are not working. People don't answer their phones. People don't call folks back. People don't follow up. People don't do their job, yet they still get a check. I'm on this committee as a, a person who was uh, discriminated in the workplace have an active lawsuit right now that's been going on for almost seven years as a disabled worker. Did people get up here and talk about how we're here for the people? Please show me. So at some point, Chair, please let there be an opportunity we can sit down and look at all this work that's being done because I'm interested in the bottom line and results afterwards, not the talking points, not the smiles in the face, not the excuses passing on to somebody else. I want to find out exactly the results. And for anybody on this call, who has Section 8 and has been denied a place to stay, which has been my experience. Y'all Google my name and add San Francisco and see the lawsuits that I have filed for being discriminated in, the, um, as, in my job, as well as wow. I'll be happy to share that information. Email me. Thank you. I'll give you my attorney. Thank you very much. Thank you, Chair. Yes. Reverend Brown. 
And just as a reminder, not only to Reverend Brown, but to member Hamilton standing before us in this moment is planning. And so if you could focus your comments or questions on the planning and planning department, that would be very helpful. Thank you. Reverend Brown. Um, uh, Ms. Chairman, what is our quitting time tonight? <laughs> I wish I could tell you, sir. Uh, I'm trying to get us through this item, and then I can come back to you on our quitting time. Well, not only my raise it because I, I had some more concerns, and I feel that we're not going to be able to uh, deal with all these concerns tonight if we go in the direction we're going. Maybe we would ask for pointed questions from people. We will be able to move on. But anyway. Um, Do you have a question, sir? I, I have a comment. Okay, please. This contextual prayer, they say to our friends, representing the planning department, out of reputable, integritous, upstanding citizens who worked on that plan. The planning department failed the black community. Secondly, even in terms of the department being as sensitive about where our real ground zero historical spots are, the department needs to do a better job. William Leesdorf deserves a greater, more awesome landmark in this town. In addition to that, you have three historic African-American faith communities, Bethel AME, Third Baptist, First AME Zion, and I know there have been representatives from the black community who tried to get you all to do land bog designation, you haven't done it. The bureaucracy has put black folk through the hoops and that should not be. Remember, Steinbeck said, what did he say? I wonder how many people I just looked at, but I never saw them. And these departments have never seen us as a people. They've tolerated us. The city has tolerated us. And I hope that we will stop making excuses for that contextual program and get on with it. It doesn't take a whole lot of money to do it, to make sure that these historical spots are immediately, immediately established. I have received many complaints as president of NACP from the San Francisco Historical Committee in the black community, and also from the well-known quintessential brother who's a historian, John Templeton. Now we need to, we need to really stop that. Show us some love. Show that you respect us and take the action that we deserve. It doesn't take from now into eternity to do it. As Nike said, just do it.
Thank you, Reverend Brown. Member Hamilton. Uh, thank you, Chair McDonald. Um, I just had a question and a comment, but I'll ask my question first. Uh, my question is, um, by what um, definition or standard are they um, using the term equity? Kathy, the mic's not on. Is it working now? Okay. In terms of chair, uh, member, you're asking just how we're defining equity as a department? Yeah. I mean, I think part of what we're looking at is both racial and social equity. And so, with the, you know, with, with that, how do we make sure that folks have what they need to survive and to thrive, not just, um, you know, as opposed to equality. So that's like not very, maybe a very uh, strong definition, um, but, you know, how it looks in practice is looking at how we're allocating our resources or so our budget, as we talked about earlier, um, as well as one of the things that we also do as a department is evaluate policy that the board of supervisors will propose that changes the planning code. And so we'll evaluate that also in terms of its racial or social equitable impact and how does it impact different communities differently so we can understand if we pass the policy as is, you know, what would happen and how we might be able to make it changes that could further equity in that policy um, as it's coming through the planning department. So hopefully that gives a little more color to how we're, we're implementing it. And our director, do you want to add anything to that? Hopefully that's somewhat helpful. Remember oh, how yeah, it's definitely, uh, definitely helpful. Um, I would just say, um, looking at that word equity, and it was throughout your entire report, I honestly didn't see anything that was really equitable for Black San Francisco. Um, I did see a lot of opportunity um, that for service providers and community that you do support. Um, but I didn't see equity. I, I think that term is loosely used. I think that people throw it out there as fluff to kind of do baiting, you know, the black community in. I think that as a department, it seems very disingenuous to come and talk about equity when you know that the policies and the guidelines and the standards that you guys operate in is anti-black. And it's virtually almost impossible to create equity or racial equity when you can't even create it within your own personal departments and your day-to-day -day operations. So how can you create equitable opportunity for communities that you're serving and you can't even create it within your own departments? So I would, I would say personally, if it's okay, what is your racial equity plan within the department that you're in and how is that being implemented before you implement it out into community? Thank you. Thank you. Did you want us to respond to that question? I wasn't sure. Okay. Um, so I think in Director Hillis, we have a couple of slides. I think if you, I don't know if you all have the slides with you or you got those ahead of time, but there is a slide, which is, um, I believe towards the end that does talk about phase one and phase two. And to your point, um, phase one is internal and is continuing ongoing internal, um, practices within the department and then phase two external. So, and I'll say we, we hear from community both when we talked about our internal plan, community members um, were upset that we weren't working externally. And so we, we got to do both. And I think we're, we're working now on both fronts um, and we'll have an update this June um, to our commission about the progress on those plans. No, what, what I'm saying is, is if policies aren't being changed within your department, right? That governs how you move racially or far as providing equity, how is it going to uh, trickle out into community when those policies aren't changing either? So it's impossible to create equity. So we need to stop using that word if you're not advocating for change of policy to support 
real low income communities, right? Because we keep, I heard we want to create more affordable housing, which to me is anti-Black because we know affordable housing isn't affordable to the Black community, right? So, so like, that's what I mean by equity. And we're using that term when we know the policies that the city has is totally anti-Black. So we're going to sit here and pretend like everything you're saying is equitable. It, it, it doesn't make sense to me. So thank you for, for answering the question, though. You're welcome. Sorry, thank you. Thank you, Member Hamilton. Okay, and if we can take his hand down, that would be helpful to me in managing this. Um, so one final question I have, and I'm going to ask this of, of each of the three of you. So let me say it now. In your final remarks, you can you can address this. A reality and part of what each of you have experienced and are experiencing, and not just with us, but in your daily work, is that you have stepped into a historically broken and historically anti-Black institution that has perfected its ability to be anti-Black. And so you have a huge challenge. And so my question focuses on, goes back to the internal focus of your racial equity work that certainly has and applaud you for the work been done to date um, and the getting the right people into dirty water just makes good dirty people over time right so my question is what what are you doing i'm not suggesting you're there or but because it's an arc it's a journey and it's been a long time getting here not going to change overnight what, where, how would you assess where you are now? What are you prioritizing? And what, what's the future look like for that kind of cultural change and shift that begins to change the fundamental ways in which we show up in, here in San Francisco? I think I'll let Director Hillis answer that, and primarily because his responsibility is overseeing the staff and the culture that's created within the department. So I'll let you take that one. It's a great question, and it's a huge shift culturally because it's who we serve, like who actually is our customer. And I mean, I think it, we, we showed in the in the housing element how we're not treating everybody equally. We're actually looking at. Um, communities that have have suffered harm from governmental actions and land use policy in going and trying to address that. And the housing element is a step in that direction. We get it. There needs to be action that comes with that housing element. But that's a shift. You know, we're not just working, as Member Carter said, in communities where we're looking to rezone, which was our policy, like if we're looking to build office or housing somewhere, but we're looking to work in communities where we want to stabilize communities and, and propose anti-displacement measures and work on cultural districts in, in growing them and strengthening. So it's a big shift. I don't think just in the department, but in the planning profession period on how we work. Thank you. Member Taylor, then we'll move. I have a question. I, I, think, I want to thank both of you for your, for your time. And all Doesn't sound like your mic is on, sir. I want to thank you for your time and, um, and all of the, uh, the presenters. Um, I have a question. I think it's the elephant in the room. And I'm going to ask it because it seems like to me, everything is disjointed. There are all these different points of light all throughout the city, all of these different departments. Um, and it seems to me there's a lack of a general will or, or a um, or political will. And it seems to me that, you know, we could talk to you about this, but the bottom line is you, you talking about your customers, 
what's really in play in this room is who's your boss. And until we have an official position made by the mayor on reparations, everything you all are doing is wasting your time until there's a, co a coherent statement. And that's why we're looking right now to see, see if that's going to happen sometime soon. And if it does, then that might energize the departments. But the kind of revolution that Reverend Brown is talking about and, and uh, Member Irving and others, um, it can't, the status quo is not acceptable. And what, what, what we're being told is we're making great progress with status quo, but with all of the diversity, equity, and inclusion work that's been done in the city, I've been on SFPD, about four committees, and I'm on an SF Muni training right now for diversity, equity, and inclusion right now. Everything you said about one and two, nothing being done, Member Berry, that's going on now. And so it seems to me, it's almost like when Obama was president, it was possible to have a reparations conversation with Ta-Nehisi Coates' article, but Obama got away without saying a word. So, so how are we going to be in this city doing this work for all this time? And, and, and you all are telling us a lot's being done, but nothing's getting accomplished. Um, when it seems to me, you know, just like the diversity, equity, inclusion mandate, it came from above and everyone scrambled, even if it wasn't satisfactory, at least the, the, the will of the city agencies got behind that mandate. And to me, everything everyone in the city is doing towards diversity, equity, inclusion, at least with regard to black folk, should be a position on reparations. In fact, every department should take a pro-reparation position uh, as a part of their revolutionary work that they want to do, unless they just want to be like people were 50 years ago and 75 years ago and 150 years ago. And we've been told no for 15 generations. Everybody just keeps doing the same game. Keep kicking the ball down, keep kicking the ball down. And then every generation says, well, we weren't alive when the ball got kicked a long time ago, and neither were you. So the, we, neither one of us have any responsibility to the ball. And yet you can see the damage, the protracted devastation, the wealth. I mean, th that's been robbed of the community here. And, and it's well documented. So it seems to me that, you know, it, it's, it's as much politics as it is uh, policy and um and and trying to use the tools of government because we can do a lot of things. I mean, people have cited how certain communities don't pay a penny for rent here or there in the city. Uh, we need the Fillmore Heritage Center. If we don't get that, everything else we do is a failure uh, because that is the, the that's ground zero for 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 how we're going to get to do all the work that needs to be done across the board. So it seems to me that San Francisco has to do something radical apart from an appointing this committee, because of course, a lot of people think it's radical just to appoint the committee. <laughs> but for me, if, if, if we don't have some sort of transformative outcome of this work, it will just deepen uh, the, 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 uh, the, the, the memory of the pain that this, in other words, if we fail at this, it just compounds everything else we failed at up to this point. So I really hope whoever has power and influence around here will speak to people who have power and influence to put their will behind. No, no well-known black person in California is supporting reparations except for Ella, Erica Alexander. And I heard Jamie Foxx came out and said something, but no great celebrity, no great athlete has spoken out on behalf of this. And that's part of the problem here is if we're trying to get the community and the neighborhood mobilized and, and that has to be uh, there has to be reciprocity from you know, the community's efforts and the efforts of people trying to mobilize behind this so that there's a, a support, you know, a, a, a back and forth as opposed to 
Um, this is a big idea some elites had about reparations, and then it never trickles down to ordinary people. And then the elites who initiate, initiated it back off and don't support um, their original um, claims because the environment has changed. I would just add, I, I support your analysis. And I think continuing to always have the organizer's mindset, you know, that we got to build support, we got to build power and continue to ask what are the demands, who's accountable to, to do it, following up afterwards. And so, you know, I just, I agree with you in terms of really making sure that we have leadership that's supporting the reparations agenda, that the departments are, that, you know, organizations, whether it's in government or outside of government and, and really both, private sector, public sector, nonprofits mm -hmm. that are actually pushing forward and monitoring and demanding that the agenda, not just be the report be written, but then what, right? Mm -hmm. When are the delivery of the, the delivery of what's in the report to the people? And that's gotta be ongoing. Mm -hmm. So absolutely. Thank you. Thank you both. Appreciate you. Director Shaw. Welcome. Members. Again, I want to remind you of well, Mr. Chair. It is 920. And while we don't want to cut anyone off, um, we do want to get to public comment on this item. Member Barry. Thank you, um, Chair. <clears throat> I have few questions for you, Director Shaw. Yeah, Ms. Barry. When it comes to resident ownership, mm -hmm. the draft reparations report specifically names communal ownership and community land trust as one strategy to support housing opportunities in the Black community. We understand that there are efforts underway to bring resident ownership at Midtown Apartments in the Western Edition Will MOHCD support residents as they seek ownership at Midtown? I've heard that the residents, uh, no, actually I've heard that Supervisor Preston is, is working to commission a study on resident ownership mm. and we will see where that study goes. Mm. So no support as of today. Um, I, I do want to sort of comment overall. I think we brought this up like, I agree that it is about money. And I think I talk about this in all the budget oversight hearings and everything I'm at, that it is expensive to build in San Francisco. Um, we are blessed as a city and me as a director to have resources more than any other housing department within the country. Um, I think people said we're playing catch up and that's correct. And I think that as we understand um, and think about um, the investments that are there, the investments that are needed to sort of once again not only catch up but to meet the larger reparation goals that I think we need to also understand um, the alignment between both the sort of financial investment needed, the time investment needed, the ability to understand um, the staffing resources and alignment needed to realize these goals. And so I, I'm aware that there is um, some conversations with the community and um, some legislation by Supervisor Preston. And I'm looking to understand that analysis and costs that I can incorporate into um, budget decisions I make as a director. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> my next question is, um, 
years ago, I was reached out to by the community at Plaza East, mm -hmm. where our mayor grew up at. And um, the conditions are horrible. Um, I go there constantly to go back and look and I don't see any improvement. I go to the management office. They blow me off. They don't answer their phones. They refer me to, um, I think it's McCormick. Or McCormick Baron Salazar. Right. That's correct. And they don't answer calls or return phone calls. And um, it is my understanding that in the past two budget cycles, funding for public housing organizers was included in the budget. The purpose of the funding was to have organizers who are independent of resident management help the mostly black populations and our public housing advocate for better housing conditions. My understanding is that MOHCD refused to spend this money and ultimately it had to be transferred to DBI. Please explain why MOHCD has not agreed to spend these funds to help public housing residents get better conditions in their homes, the trash situation, the sewer, the feces running down the middle of the street, bullet holes in doors, um, fire damage units, units that's just vacant because they won't be repaired at all, which someone could be living in. Why isn't that money being used? So MOHCD, um, in partnership with the Housing Authority and Office of Economic and Workforce Development, has made a loan of $2 million for immediate repairs as there continues to be um, engagement between the Housing Authority and the Office of Economic and Workforce Development around potential redevelopment strategies for Plaza East. And so in that space, um, while that is not a MOHCD project, we are working to identify the resources to stabilize, to support the efforts that are happening there. Thank you. And my next question is the Right to Counsel program. Are you familiar with that? I am. Thank you. So since implementing the Right to Counsel, evictions have decreased overall with the 10% drop from 2018 to 2019. Of the tenants receiving full scope legal representation, 67% achieved a successful outcome of being able to stay in their homes. This program stops evictions and prevents homelessness. The program overwhelmingly benefits lower income tenants. 85 of those represented under Proposition F are extremely low or, or low income, 9%, I mean, extremely low or low income. 9% are moderate income and just 6% are above moderate income. The demographic data is important. For example, District 5 has been devastating rates of displacement, particularly in the Black community. Four of five Black tenants who receive an eviction notice and get help through this program end up staying in their homes an 80% success rate. What we know from this data is that guaranteeing a right to counsel is one of the most powerful tools to stop the displacement of black people. Will MOHCD submit a budget to the mayor that does not cut the RTC program? I don't know where the idea that we would cut tenant right to counsel has come from. I'm proud that under um, the time I've been here, the mayor has recommended and we've been able to get to 100% tenant right to counsel funding. Um, and so I'm excited um, and happy to see the outcomes of that. 
and I want to recognize leadership of Mayor Breed, and I know the organizing from the community to make that happen. Thank you. And my last question. Last year, there was a certificate of participation that was agreed upon by the Board of Supervisors and the mayor. The agreement was for $112 million, including funds for affordable housing site acquisition, new construction, and life-saving repairs in existing affordable housing. Specifically, the bond measure included $40 million to acquire land for the de development excuse me, of 100% affordable housing, $20 million for capital improvement repairs to public housing and or HUD subsidized co-ops, $12 million for affordable educator housing, and $10 million for elevator repairs at SROs. It is my understanding that the $20 million for capital improvement repairs to public housing and or HUD subsidized co-ops have not been issued. The This is a major concern. Please tell us what that funding will be issued, actually when it will be issued, and the reason for the delay. So um, the certificates of participation have gone to the Capital Planning Committee, I believe, which is different than the Planning Commission. Um, there are active um, procurements out, as I mentioned in my testimony, for the educator housing, and there's active out for the acquisition. Um, I believe also there is supplemental with the Department of Homelessness, and I will not talk for Sharina, Director McSpadden on that, around that issuance. Um, the conversation we've had right now, and we've understood this in work we've done on cooperative um, capacity building, is that there is a need in some instances for supporting um, cooperative leadership. And as I mentioned before, for public housing right now, there are only two public housing developments, Plaza East and North, and at least under SFHA and North Beach. And so there is a phasing on that to make sure that there's either the appropriate leadership or financial controls for the organizations in order for them to develop financial plans that's based off the best off the best practices guidance from the state office of real estate in order to make sure that we can align um, the investment of those resources in a way that actually gets it done and in line um, with the appropriate safeguards from leadership and in line with the priorities um, for maintaining the physical plant. So you're saying there's no one qualified at this time to carry that out? No, what I'm saying is we are also tying that with technical assistance to make sure that the leadership at housing developments that receive that money have the means to develop the financial plans um, needed for the capital investment. So Thank it's a, a one, two. And so in that instance, that one is being timed differently than the other ones because there's a need to also um, deploy. Um, we have soon a procurement around capacity building for um, community-based housing. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Member Barry. Member Carter. So I'm wondering, like, does MOHCD have a very specific Black agenda? Because I'm looking at this report, um, I was going to ask you, like, what are some of the success and failures? But this report is like, is a failure to the city and a big failure to the Black community. I'm seeing that. Um, Which support are you looking at, man? Um, of home ownership and below market rate from one of your, from the slides. Okay. Um, It says that from 2018 to 2023, just a shy of about a million, 800,000. 
Oh, for the that. for the for the lotteries. For the lottery, right? Yeah, was submitted. Um, almost a hundred thousand identified as Black, African American, and I'll just go down to the bottom where it says right at twenty five. Well, no, two hundred. <laughs> 287 um, out of almost 100,000 people was actually placed. Mm -hmm. Like those numbers is a complete failure to our community. And I would love for you to speak on that and and, and what is the agenda for the well, And that issue, I think it identifies that we don't have enough housing. Um, and that's that's been identified. A number of studies has been identified by by the planning commission as well. Um, but as just we to said catch before, you off real quick. Yeah. Okay. So it's not enough housing. But who is who is in those? Who's getting the housing there? So in this instance, also for these numbers, I think we do want to note that I need to fig. I will follow up on this. Um, we have. Um, some people do not disclose race or identify as mixed race was the category we're still we're still mixing now. But I think um, the other space in the end is that we have a lottery system. The lottery system is, has COP. It goes displaced tenant. It goes neighborhood preference. Um, then it goes to live work preference. In that instance, there is not a racial preference that is not allowed by fair housing law within HUD. And so what you're seeing right now is that um, we're seeing the placement of numbers through those other preferences, but there isn't a race-based preference that we deploy. And so I think in this instance, um, we are creating more housing. We're doing more to support affirmative marketing to make sure we can get more African-Americans aware of this, of the, of the housing that's being done. I think there's an understanding right now within our cultural districts in particular, which is a strategy for Department of Planning, um, that we actually have a person, the Dream Keeper, who's working on um, joint marketing, um, intersectional narratives around inclusion of African-Americans within the strategies within cultural districts when there's not majority African-American. Um, we got resources to the Dream Keeper, Dream Keeper for approving our um, culturally competent marketing directly towards African-Americans. And so I think there's two things right now making African-Americans more aware of the numbers because of that instance. But I think also too, um, you know, I, and, I, and I think that, that that will, it won't may not necessarily increase the numbers because it's based off the preference regime. Well, I, I can tell you just from personal experience, I've been in that lottery and okay. I've checked all those boxes and right. still never found housing. As with the COP as well? With the COP as well. Okay. Well, we can follow up on that one. So, you know, COP is the premise. And I think as we've talked about this before, I think um, um, Commissioner Eckman brought this up. Um, there is still with the COP a need for an alignment based off of income. And something that has to equal the range of incomes of which the housing equals. And so in that instance, there's a COP. And then it's also around the income qualifications um, either over or under to make the alignment because COP is the preference for placement into the unit, which have the defined AMI displacement. Yeah, I mean, it's just- So we can follow up on yeah, that one. <laughs> Thank you, Member Carter. Member Brown, and then Member Ekinem. Uh, Reverend Brown? No, Member Brown, and then Member Ekinem, and then Reverend Brown. Two Browns. Yes. Thank you, sir. Uh, hi, Director Shaw. Okay, hi, so 
Um, I had a question because, um, and, and I think most of my question is around Dahlia. Okay. Um, I know that one of the biggest barriers to, um, because of, of fair housing laws is that race isn't a preference that can be utilized. I think um, I'm bringing this up in the context of immigration communities have been able to, in my opinion, successfully create a workaround by utilizing a monolingual preference or um, put, uh, um, applying for funding that goes to monolingual communities. Um, and, I, and I think that um, because of that, um, that has helped their community drastically access this housing. But I think that um, for the black community, we haven't necessarily found that workaround when it comes to race um, in, in that regard. Um, and so one of the things that I think is um, something for your department to, to, to really look at, and I see that you guys are doing it with home ownership and some other things mm -hmm. um, when you're talking about uh, identifying the barriers. Mm -hmm. um, but I think... One of my questions is, um, how many Black-led organizations are you funding to provide housing assistance with applications? I think one of the biggest barriers for people getting into these programs is Dahlia is like a disqualification process. Um, and so when you have <laughs> like a 5,000 people applying for 122 units, I, I think that I could totally understand that. But I mm -hmm. think that um, one of the things that I've experienced in my community work is that um, when you're working with folks to fill out applications as a community-based organization, one of the things you do is really kind of work with those departments on how do people get to the next step in the system? And if you're not funding organizations to do that work, mm -hmm. um, how are they getting access, which seems like the entryway to all of these housing programs, um, how are they getting access to the housing if they're not knowing what the disqualifiers are. Um, I know you mentioned that there were a bunch of applications mm -hmm. submitted. I'm wondering how many of those folks were black and how many were denied of those right, applications so questions. submitted. So yeah. first of all, there's yeah. no workaround on Dolly. I'll make that very clear. Right. And I, and I just, we gotta be clear about that. Right. Um, and there's no monolingual preference. Our preferences right now are certificate of preference, displaced tenant preference, displaced tenant by fire preference, neighborhood preference, and then live work preference. Those are the preferences. And now I think there's one that's leaned in on veterans. So I just want to make clear, those are the preferences yeah, that I'm sorry, I used the wrong within term, the sorry. Dahlia system. Um, and so um, I think the first thing in the end is we continue to work to, we continue to work to make sure that Dahlia is accessible. So the idea right now is, you do not need a housing navigator to apply for housing. And I'm not sure the numbers of how many people actually apply for Dahlia on their own without the support of a housing navigator. We encourage them to do that. I think that as um, I think um, Commissioner Irving brought up, there's a very interesting space that we brought up of Black-led versus Black-serving. Um, and I think as we think about those spaces right now, as I shared, we've set a rule that for all citywide services contracts to set the target around black serving. Now, is that black led? That's a conversation I think that we continue to go back and forth on. Um, but, you know, I think um, the under, at least my leadership and my goal is that black people should be able to walk through any open door to get services. I mean, I live in the mission and I should feel comfortable going to Meta to ask for services. 
at one point when we started this policy, um, you know, I'm LGBTQ, I should be able to build an LGBTQ center and walk in. So the idea right now is we're creating an expectation with all of our housing navigation agencies, especially the ones that are servicing citywide, um, to, um, to be accessible to African-Americans. And if that requires cultural competency, I think that's one. But I think the other piece too is that actually, um, uh, you know, balance, balance, um, which is cr consumer credit counseling service is one of our biggest, biggest ones, actually services the most African-Americans and has some of the highest, um, you know, ratings um, in terms of those spaces as well. So I think right now we're really, really leaning into making sure that the black serving piece is there and we're having that competency. And then I think at the same time, um, mirroring and modeling practice um, for folks that may want to lean into that now. And so um, YCD in particular has a contract right now on emergency rental assistance, which also had a counseling component, but they hadn't done housing navigation before. And so in that instance, they're trying to build their capacity with the resources they do ERAP to also go into the housing counseling space. But I think there is a reality right now that um, um, it has taken some time to continue to build up um, the muscle around um, housing navigation. So right now, SFHDC, Bayview Senior Services, and Balance are our three largest Black serving um, housing navigation agencies. I only bring that up because in the last 10 years, the Tenderloin has become the newest, biggest Black community. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's a perfect example of um, the missed targets of um, housing departments. And so I think um, while I do see that you guys are invested in the cultural competency, competency training for housing counseling agencies, mm -hmm. I think what um, I was trying to mention and bring up about what I think uh, immigrant communities have successfully modeled was creating a culture of welcomingness. Okay, um, yeah. And that's something we're trying so, to create across the board. Yeah, I think investment. that's great. And I, I hope that expands sooner than later. Thank you. Thank you, Member Brown, Member Ekonem, and then Reverend Brown. Okay, thank you very much. Reverend Brown. Did you call me? Yes, sir. Oh, I thought Mr. Ekonem. No, he took his hand down, sir. Um, Mr. Shaw. Yes, Reverend Brown. Obviously, from the records and all the facts that have been presented, by this task force. And I'm sure you've heard since being in this city. Black people are at the bottom of the well in all categories. And I'm confused that your department appears not to respond to the request of black leadership mm -hmm. to iron out challenges, particularly around, I give some specifics too. One, L. Bethel Arms, 355 units 
that were constructed 40 years ago. Why? Because black people were not getting their fair share by a black Baptist church and the very able leadership of Dr. D. Manning Jackson. I repeat, for the task force and for our audience, 355 units. And yet, at a time when we're talking about reparations, out of 355 units, there are only about 45 black people living there now. Number two, Martin Luther King, Marcus Garvey, named for two iconic black men, Marcus Garvey, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. You have not even 40% of black residents in accordance with the recently established 40% principle that was established a few years ago. And you have a situation there now where it's 70% Asian and other groups, only about 30% maybe African-American. Why is it that your office does not work in collaboration with her, the regional office? who are complicit in creating this baby, this monster, this Frankenstein. But even several years ago, HUD admitted that they had told these developers, these units, you don't have to advertise in the Sun Reporter, the new Bayview are the post, the vacancies for the lottery or when the list is open, just advertise in the underrepresented newspapers, mm -hmm. immigrant groups. And I'm not nationalistic, not xenophobic. I'm just trying to make the case that we deserve our fair share, but we're not getting our fair share because of the complicity of how Certain agencies have moved to work with these developments. And even if there was, as it always will be in human institutions, even if there was a problem, to stay there with them until they're ironed out. Right. You know, if you got a beautiful blouse, a beautiful shirt, and there's some wrinkles in it, you don't throw it away because there's some wrinkles. You get an iron or you get a steamer and you get the wrinkles out. And I'm, I'm sad that at this moment it happens to be accidentally that you, your department appearing here before this reparations task force where we have talked about specifically specifically that if there were going to be any reparations or any repairing of harm, there ought to be a major area of housing. And right now, the record reveals we are doing a sluggish job 
We are not even reaching the low hang, hanging fruit mm -hmm. of getting people into these units. So, I mean, what, what else is that you all won't talk to us? You won't bring the management together. Won't bring together people who are in function committed, who know the history, who've been involved. What happens? Why HUD, your Office of Housing, have not for the last two months responded to having a civil sit-down meeting to iron these situations out to ensure that these developments that were built by the blood, sweat, and tears of Black folk, yes, are shared with others, but does it make common and good sense for others to just take over. We ought to be about shared opportunities and shared responsibility. But we don't see it happening. Not with HUD in your department at this at this stage of the game. Well, I think thank you, Reverend Brown. And and Reverend Brown, this is not going to be a deflection because I think we're still in ongoing conversations with with HUD around the actions they're taking. I think that, and this brings up once again, as I sort of started, it's about money. But the interesting thing about it is that, and I think you've sort of seen some of the public conversation about the resources MOCD has, it's about also the color of money as well that comes in. So for example, the way that MOCD enforces its affordability covenant is that for 100% affordable, we buy and own the land. And then, the, and that's for the pre-development loan. And then the developer owns the improvement, right? And then the money that goes in for operations and the gap for getting it done puts a covenant on the land around Dahlia use and those things. Um, excuse excuse it, me, I'm not, talk, I'm not talking about money. I'm talking about the opportunity for black people to get right. into these units. I'm not talking about any money. No, what I'm saying though, sir, is that in this instance, and for some of these other older housing, for example, we're trying to reconcile those all under our new conditions of how our new conditions of funding, or in some instances, there's a state requirement or HUD requirement. In the instance for a number of these cooperatives, they actually paid off their loans, which is great. But because they got a loan from OCD, there's a covenant on affordability. And that's all we can enforce. I think at the same time, um, because some of these these entities in particular, there's there's requirements that with the use of vouchers, we've talked about vouchers before, there's HUD requirements around how those vouchers can be administered. So in that instance, we have some situations where there's a covenant on the land that mostly has control only about affordability. There's a covenant on the voucher that goes for someone that may be moderate income. That's a HUD requirement. And then it may be private financing that goes in that had its own requirements. And so I think as you all were talking, um, that's the thing that I also balance around where am I at the lever to enforce. Now, I agree with you, Evan Brown, that a lot of my job, I feel like, is leadership to bring all the folks to the table because I remind HUD every day that this is one property over thousands of theirs within their portfolio. And this is one with, like really in my backyard. Um, and so in that instance, trying to make sure that we're leaning in on leadership. But I think also it's important to understand the levers we have with the money that we have, understanding how to have alignment on those levers with the resources that come in. If we said it needs to be alignment on both the private and public sectors, 
And I'm going to pivot for a second because I know we're almost at closing and this goes with what you said before, is that's been one of the places I think. So I do want to say this. I mean, I I accept, you know, the buck stops me literally. It is extraordinary to me that within one year, we launched a program with Dreamkeeper Adopt that got 22 Black people homes. And I think Ms. Brown was part of those initial conversations um, compared to five before. I'm really happy that we got the resources because this study was commissioned by Maria Benjamin and my team before Dream Keeper was any idea. And those resources are what made that happen. Mm-hmm. We hired Anika Harrell, who's our Dream Keeper initiative. We were paid for the cultural competency and we had a dedicated resource. So Dream Keeper, um, actually, you do all the work, um, goes through, um, uh, it's not a lottery, right? So once you qualify, you go. We adjusted the income now that's a 200% AMI. We called every Black person that could again the BMR before or people that qualified and make sure fair housing. Some people were, were right. They were $5 over the 140% AMI we have for Dreamkeeper. And when we know that we have in regular dial and BMRs and we called and said, you were $5 over. Are you interested in this now? And a lot of the people that the initial success of how this happened so fast was because we did keep files on board. And when the program had some flexibility and had some resources, we were able to deploy quickly and with great folks. I'm very proud of that program too, because we have people at 200% AMI, which is pretty high. Um, but a lot of those folks are, are city San Francisco workers. I mean, and that's come up a lot. But we also have folks that have vouchers. We made sure we had a program that was flexible enough that you were able to use your public housing voucher as part of your down payment for your assistance. And so I think those are the places where um, we are working. It's never fast enough to understand these ideas. We're understanding how to move the colors of money. I think we're understanding that sometimes there's an emerging developer pool that does this and a BIPOC grant that does this and a black outcome that says this and there's something like that. So a lot of these times right now, it is aligning the money to move things fast. But well, there's a drag queen, Bob, the drag queen you never heard. He says, if you stay ready, you got to get ready. And that's why I was. I want to make sure that us as a director from OCD are staying ready when these opportunities arise themselves, including potential resources and recommendations that come from this committee. But I think I agree with you, Reverend Brown, that we need to continue to work to show some leadership, to really tell the San Francisco story, tell the story of the struggle, hold our partners accountable, including ourselves. But it does take time in some instances. And as we said, if we have you know, a 20 year mortgage and we're trying to solve this in two months, that is a limitation in terms of both capacity, resources, expertise, and knowledge um, that is real um, when there's leadership changes. Um, and I think, you know, yeah. And I think that in the end, I will say this and then I'll finish is that one of the things I'm also proud of is uh, Vince leaning into the space and we talk about racial equity scoring on the committee on the on the housing production side was we heard from a lot of development teams. They were happy to talk about race for the first time. Like we asked, like, how do you help COP holders? We asked you explicitly, what is your vision to make the community look like that? And so YCD and CCDC are doing a project on Pier 70 and they're like, we know the black folks live across the street that got displaced through dog patch. We're going to start the conversation about how to bring them back. And I think that that is making for richer conversations that actually um, are rewarded oh. points and procurement. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah. Reverend Brown. No, yeah. And, just, and I just think in that moment that those are the spaces where I think we're leaning in with some leadership. Um, we're trying to get the points where they are. Um, and, and, and we know the time is not going to line up. Thank you. 
Director Shaw, thank you, Reverend Brown. Obviously, this needs to continue, not just could continue, it yes, needs sir. to continue, but we cannot do that now. Thank so you. thank you very much. I'm sorry, Member Ekonem okay, is going sorry, to be man. brief. Right. No. Is there a citizenship requirement for housing in, no. in city and county of San Francisco? I think so. Let me rephrase that because once again, it's colors of money. Um, we do not ask immigration status in a lot of our pieces for investment. Like, it's just it's just city policy in that instance. And then there were some concurrent policies. The feds changed things. We had a president in between those and an administration that leaned into that. Um, but I think that we continue to work to make sure we're providing housing access to to everyone. I'm not going to say everyone needs it because we still are a deficit on that, but I will consult with the city attorney, but I do not believe the citizenship requirement on it. Or if there is, we don't ask the question. Thank you. Thank you very much. Right, thank, thank you, you, Director Shaw. Thank you. Um, Director McSpadden, thank you for your patience. In a long night for all, we appreciate you remaining with us. So members, again, questions. I'd invite questions. If you could minimize statements that would be helpful just in the interest of time i'm um, going to ask your questions that would be helpful member carter yeah i'm just wondering from the trends that you're seeing is there any surprising trends that that wasn't listed with um homelessness and are are the majority of the um homeless population are they natives so um thanks for your question member carter it's I don't know if there are any surprising trends. I think the really horrible thing about homelessness is that it mirrors exactly what we think we would. it would. It is overwhelmingly um, inequitable when you think about the fact that there, that 38% of our homeless population is black when only five or 6% of our overall population is black. Um, certainly we have a number of people who, who say that they've been displaced in their own community in San Francisco. And that really is what the national trends reflect that, that, that is true. So people don't tend to travel a lot, long way for housing. And one of the things that we know about the black population, in San Francisco is because people have been um, placed out, have been pushed out of the city that people also tend to come back. And so the Bay area is fairly transient, especially when it comes to the black community, because people feel like this is their home and it has been. And I think, um, so no surprises there, but I think it's really often hard to talk about the people experiencing homelessness as people who've been displaced in San Francisco. We know that that's true. And yet there's a lot of rhetoric out there that says that all these people are coming to take the resources here. You know, the fact is we have a longstanding issue and it's, it's tragic and it is people who belong here. One more thing. Is that majority of the black um, homeless population or do you see that just across the board? We see that across the board. And again, that's, you know, that's kind of what the national trends say. And when they've done studies here, as well as other places, you know, it isn't that we don't see people coming in. Of course, we have immigration in San Francisco. We have, and part of that is because we've got a real diversity here of people um, and people come to be with family and stuff like that. But, but that's a smaller percentage than people who are actually displaced here or have been historically. 
Member Barry. Thank you, Chair. Shereen, I don't even know your last name, but I knew one day we would come to this point. And um, like I tell you, when I see you in the neighborhood, that um, I, I can't believe you got this job. <laughs> I couldn't do it. It's a, it's a hard job. So um, I have two questions. Um, first, I want to just state that I'm on this body in this seat because I'm a person who previously experienced homelessness. I was homeless for three years and they sent me to next door shelter. I couldn't make it there. They sent me to a shelter called detox and I don't use drugs, but become, because I'm a veteran, they were desperate to find me a bed and I didn't make it there. And then they sent me to transitional housing on Treasure Island, which was a nine month program for me until they found me permanent housing. And it was frightening, but I knew I had to stick that particular program out to move on the list to get a permanent place. And um, it was horrible. So the question is, does the Department of Homelessness um, document anywhere in your database that a person does not want help based on refusal to accept a bed in a shelter or a SRO? Because I know I was offered several SROs that I refused. And I hear people in this very building say that person doesn't want help because they won't go to this specific program or shelter where it might not be safe or um, it's mainly not safe. So is there any data kept on people that they refuse this space? Therefore, they don't really want help. We do um, ask people and we do keep data on refusals, but we actually are aware and are working very hard to make sure our staff and our communities are aware that people need choice and different things work for different people, I think. And I don't think that's, we've had the ability to do that in the past. I mean, since COVID and with some of the new programs we've been able to put in place, like the shelter in place hotels, and then able to move people into permanent housing, we've been able to offer people different choices. For instance, with the shelter in place hotels, um, when we were moving people out of that system and into permanent housing, we were able to offer them three choices each. And you know, is that enough? I don't think it is. And I would, I'm sure that you would say it isn't, but it is definitely, I think, a step in the right direction, um, you know, as people who, who have the ability to go out and find our own housing. If, we've, if we're that fortunate, we have choices. And that's definitely what I would like to see us get to here. I mean, I think we have, you know, we have a a stock of housing, some of which is very new, some of which is old, it's in different neighborhoods. Um, it's not, you know, one size fits all. And I, I want us to get much more to a person-centered approach with this, where we're really working, you know, to, to meet people's goals, understand what those goals are, and then have a really um, person-centered approach to what then their housing should look like. Are we there yet? No. But that's that's my vision of where we should be with this. And the more that we think about things like interim housing that doesn't look like congregate shelter, which is another thing that we were able to, to think about during COVID is like, well, you know, non-congregate is actually an option sometimes for people and should be, you know, the more we're able to get to some of those preferences that people have. 
is it, but it is, you know, it's far from where it should be. Thank you. And then real quick, you mentioned emergency vouchers. Do you have the data on what percent of people who got those vouchers were able to find housing in San Francisco versus being ported out? You know, I, when you mentioned that issue about vouchers, I realized that I didn't have that with me. I'll make sure that we get that for you. That's an excellent question and a very good point. And I thought your point about, you know, how we need to really work together to lean on um, some of the, especially some of the big um, housing management companies and stuff. We've, I've been talking with Director Shaw about that and Director um, Letizu, you know, to see how we can work together so that we are really saying to them, look, we have all these people who need housing. You have guaranteed rent if if you take them in. And we've had a lot of conversations around that. And it's it's a very good point because just giving somebody a voucher and expecting them to find housing on their own doesn't work. Um, one of the things that's been really successful with this voucher program, which was, you know, um, HUD funded, it the HUD funding required that the San Francisco Housing Authority and the Department of Homelessness worked together very closely and come up with a plan together. And we were really able to think about, um, you know, who, who should be our priority populations. And then we were able to, to really um, partner with our, some very well-placed nonprofits that had a lot of cultural competency to work with people to find the housing. So I, you know, we've done well considering how hard this environment is, but we need to continue that work with, with these big um, management companies and, and really push them. Thank you. Member Irving. Thank you. Thanks for waiting so long. Um, get the charts. I think that um, you, it was transparent and saying where the allocations of funds went, how many people got housing. So I definitely appreciate that. You mentioned a number and I couldn't catch it. And it was like 548 people. I got that number. And I wanted to know how many of them were black. And you, so I would have to ask you to tell me those numbers again. Of, was that for the emergency housing voucher program you're talking about specifically? Um, I'll have to find it. <laughs> so give me a second. And I think the biggest point for me with that is we can throw out those numbers, but again, right, we're blending a lot in here with different populations. And so just curious about Black residents, because for the most right. part, it was pretty transparent. It says Black residents all throughout, but when we got to get some of those other numbers, it just said BIPOC. <clears throat> um, right. And I was, yeah, I, I hear you on that. Um, so 548 households. Um, including 191 families had moved into units. So I'm going to have to go back and break that down because all I know is that when we look at the voucher recipients, 57% um, were Black head of households. So that doesn't really talk specifically to the 548. So we'll get that information for you. Thank you. Yeah. Um, you talked about the equity plan and, and the language in some places says will and other places says like as if it's happening. Has that been enacted yet? Yeah. So um, we, like many other departments, started internally working, um, training staff, really working on some of our HR goals. And I think that was in alignment with the Human Rights Commission and, and their guidance. So we've definitely worked on a lot of, of that and will continue to. Part of it was bringing on a team that could really help 
um, guide the department. So, I mean, which is partly why I brought, although Anthony had to leave, um, I brought him with me because he and I are working really closely on that and have built out our racial equity team internally. That's really the beginning focus and saying like our department should reflect the community. It should not only reflect the, you know, the, the citywide community, but really we should work to reflect um, the populations that we are seeing who are experiencing homelessness. We need people with lived experience. Um, and we also have started some of the work with the community organizations and some of the training that we're doing there and capacity building. So we brought on a couple of consulting teams who are working with us who have a really deep experience in this work. And um, I mean, I'd be happy to come back and give you more information at some point about that work because I know this was a little bit of a gloss over, but we are deep into it and we'll continue. You know, that's just a huge part of our work. It's front and center. Just, it's an accountability yeah. thing again, right? And for yeah. us just to know, like, if we have a plan, where are we enacting it? Where do we see, where, where are your metrics? Like, what do you right. see as like, how is the community telling you it's benefiting? So maybe we might feel like this is a huge part of our work. We're doing well, but what are the benefits that can be felt on the ground? And if you have any, that would be beautiful. And if not, like to start thinking about what are those metrics for like getting the voice of the people who are supposed to be the recipients of all that you're offering. Right, thank you. And and just um. Uh, member Irving, the other thing that, so we are launching our strategic plan later this week. It's a five-year plan. So it's got a lot of big things in it. Um, what we're going to be doing though, is working with our, our folks who are guiding us, our folks with lived experience who are guiding us, um, our DEI committee. Are they black folks with lived experience? Yes. They're, well, they're a mix. I mean, mix, but you yes. have, we're, yes. we're targeting. Okay. Yes. And we're going to be working with them um, as we build out each annual implementation plan. I want it to be so transparent and short, whereas our strategic plan is like 90 pages long and nobody's going to read it. Um, we put a lot of work into it, but I think, you know, our annual implementation plan should be very public, very transparent, and will show, um, you know, the input of people with real experience in the system who really are helping us like figure out like how do we make the system better from uh, qualitatively how are we really making sure that we are putting black people front and center all of the above thank you my very last question the yes. point in time count we know that um so that's like one county and it said that that was the probably the one of the best counts but many of our families, I'm not sure how we're calculating homelessness. Many of our families are not necessarily on the street. They live in tripled, uh, tripled um, and that's common for communities of color. And so right. just wondering, how are we counting them, especially because we know that many people of color, now mainly Black folks, do not participate in the census for a number of really good reasons. Right. Right. So we engage our community providers again. Um, now we have a group of people with lived expertise who are also weighing in on on how to work with, um, you know, or how to make sure that we're counting people. Most recently, for instance, the group of people with lived experience went out on the street and met with people in tents and met with people in houses who were doubled up and, and really got their input on how we could do better. And that wasn't, that wasn't part of the count, but um, that is a new approach that we're taking. So during the count, what we do is work a lot with our family providers um, and our Black-led organizations to really help us get the information that we need to get about people who are not 
you know, showing up in kind of unsheltered situations on the street. I mean, that's a little easier because we can go around and talk with people and count them, but they're really helping us to reach communities that we don't see as, as easily. And so that's been part of the count for um, the last few counts. And we're continuing to try to um, make that process better and more transparent and bring in the people that we need to bring in to make sure that we're doing it correctly. Yeah. Just for resource allocation, it'd be great to get an accurate count, which I know is almost impossible if folks aren't self-reporting. So, but just other ways that we think about getting the accurate count. Thank you. Member member Brown. Thank you, uh, Director McSpain. Um, I'm just going to go through the report um, because I'm taking the notes. So one of the things that I've noticed about the, uh, I've experienced with the voucher program is I think it's a, a great program. One of the things I'm curious about is how do you engage with the property managers who do like background checks? Um, and the reason why I'm asking that is because I know a lot of folks that are homeless or unhoused um, may have had, have been just as involved. And so how is that taken into consideration with the EHB? Um, so that's question one. Um, the next part I see the budget, there's 580 million in investments with 280, 238 going to, to serve in the black community. I think this could be a great part and I'm not familiar with the racial equity plan. I think this could be a great part to help um, elevate those folks with that lived experience and uh, create uh, some type of recruitment um, to get those folks into those programs so they can provide those services to folks so people feel um, a lot more welcome, but also because my experience with some of the community-based organizations that have been um, working with DHV folks, they weren't necessarily culturally competent and weren't as they weren't as astute at dealing with property managers. Um, mm-hmm. And so that was like a hard thing for um, the folks that I was working with uh, because there was this um, idea that those folks would help them like be guided through that process. And it was more like, um, well, you apply, did you get in, you know, they're considering credit. Um, and so you have an EHV, you have an EHV, but then everybody gets scared about using it. And then what happens is everybody goes to the tenderloin where there's kind of like, um, lower entry or, uh, for qualification for that housing, um, which I, I'm assuming is why the tenderloin is also one of the biggest black communities. Um, but also just hoping that um, through you guys' uh, equity work that you're also, when you're, um, I know that it's easier sometimes to work with the bigger organizations, but the black community is so fragmented and um, black community-based organizations rarely are like offer holistic programming that is really responsive to the disparity that we're experiencing. So I'm hoping that your department and other departments really think about like how you guys can um, convene, convene these different CBOs that kind of do these different things because it's my contention that one of the biggest issues with um, getting services to black folks is the lack of actual community engagement. Right. So the folks, the reason why the lived experience folks are so important is because they know the people that are homeless. Mm-hmm. They know the hold on, they know the black people that are homeless and they know their stories. Like we're all case managers, whether we want to be or not, because we're case managing our family members. So I just hope that you guys 
consider that um, as you're rolling out your strategic plan. And I do applaud HSH for, um, and all the departments really, for taking the beating, but also um, being responsive and uh, um, to, to our line of questioning. Um, I, I do appreciate your guys' time tonight. Thank you. Sure. And just quickly to respond, Member Brown, I think, so um, thank you. And we really, I agree with you about the big organizations versus the small. I mean, in theory, it's bigger, to, it's easier to work with the big ones, but they have challenges as well and often don't do the job in the same way. I mean, I came from a, um, a very small nonprofit organization that was only working in Bayview Hunters Point. I worked there a number of years and there were, th there were things that a small organization can do to really engage community that the bigger ones can't do. And we need it. We need a mix of those, but we also need to provide the technical assistance or the capacity building that those organizations need to thrive and they need to have the same access and be competitive for, because of the process that we have, they need to be able to be competitive for the grants. Um, one of the things that we need to work on in our department is that, you know, since COVID and slightly before COVID, we've seen an increase in the number of Black-led organizations in the shelter space and interim housing. We haven't seen the same thing on the, on the supportive housing side and that we have to change that. And we're very well aware of that within the department that, you know, these organizations should have access to those grants just like they do to the shelter. And they've shown that they can do this work and, and we need them to do more of it. So thank you. Thank you. Member Landry and Member Ekonom. So I'll be brief. Uh, thank you. Uh, I just want to... Um, Say, um, in terms of addressing the homeless issue, um, when you come back, hopefully, um, can be you know more detailed in terms of some of the things that we probably haven't discussed tonight about not the people just homeless, but how fentanyl, how the again, the mental illness, um, part of it. Uh, we know there's a great population in the tenderline areas of sex offenders, and some of them are homeless, some of them are not. But I just would hope that we have more detailed information so we can couch the past harms and present harms as we move forward in our final report. Not necessarily a question, just I just wanted to just note that. Thank you. Thank you. Member Ekonom. Um, just just two things. I think for me, on the one hand, one of the biggest health facilities in the state of California is actually LA County Jail. Yes, sir. Right. And San Francisco isn't far behind. And so one thing that I want to know is as you're going out and doing this work in the street, how closely are you work on SFDPH? Right. Because there's a huge mental health component that we're just, I mean, the city is just absolutely neglected, if not the country. So that's one. And then two, considering that, that we're sort of taking a look at this real time right now, what are the three things, if you had a magic wand that you'd like to see done? to house the thousand youth that you talked about and the families on the street. So, okay, thanks for both questions. Um, the, I think the first thing is we work very closely with SFDPH. Um, we prioritize people coming out of general for a lot of services because we don't want people exiting to the street. One of the things that I 
probably didn't mention or didn't say clearly enough when I mentioned our strategic plan is it's, you know, I really wanted it not just to be a strategic plan for our department, because this is this homeless issue is so interwoven throughout the work that the city does across departments and across its nonprofit sector um, and residents. And so we have some shared goals with SFDPH about unsheltered homelessness and really focusing on people experiencing behavioral health issues. So that is something that we'll be tracking with them. Um, and I think if we come back and, you know, because they're the experts really on some of those issues, they have to be here too. Cause I, I am not the expert, but we are really working on that together. Um, I mean, I think, you know, we have a, uh, I said what the budget was earlier, 580 million, we're, we are housing 15,000 people at any given time. And I think what people don't understand is like so much of our budget is going to house people continuously, right? And so it sounds like all this money and we just underinvested as as we've heard tonight and I'm sure you know, um, we've underinvested in affordable housing for so long that, you know, systems like this one are trying to pick up the slack when in reality, what we really should have is affordable housing um, or to not use that term, even just housing for everyone. And we don't have that. So ultimately that would be a thing. I think it would be great for us to figure, you know, we, we have done a lot of work on family homelessness. And I think we, within the five years can really get to functional zero for family homelessness. That is actually achievable in San Francisco. And certainly for children, um, we have a lot more resources for transitional age youth um, and children or families through things like Project Home Key. And so we really do expect to see a change there. I think, you know, where we continue to be challenged and this is a much bigger issue just because of the sheer num numbers is with a single adults. Thank you. Thank you. Again, thank you very much, Director McSpadden. Um, with no other hands raised, uh, we will now move to public comment. Um, My hand was up, Mr. Chairman. Um, Reverend Brown. Ms. McSpadden. Yes, Reverend Brown. How many competent, excellent, homeless programs are there that are led by black people in this city. How many are there? Yes, how many? How many? I don't, I don't know. I don't know exactly how many. That's something that we're tracking. And part of it, part of the reason is that we track everything in our, what we call the one system, our data system. And we are have just revamped that whole piece of it. Um, we have a number of them, but it's, it's about whether the director is, is black, you know, what percentage of the board, what percentage of the executive leadership. And so we're using the definition um, that HRC has put out in, I can't tell you right this moment exactly how many, but that is something that we're looking at and we will get that information back to you. I've been told that there's none. That's not true. There are definitely some, but there are not I'm, none. I'm talking about a major, a major program 
like Catholic Charities, like Salvation Army, like the Episcopal Sanctuary. That's what I'm talking about. There's not right. a one. And yet when they needed winter shelters, what did they do? They called on the black churches to open up their gyms, their facilities. But this city has never entrusted to a black faith-based institution, a full-fledged navigation center, a housing program. It's not a one. And Cecil Williams Church, Glide, is not an indigenous historical church in the black community. So that since we're talking about reparations, this shows how far behind so-called progressive liberal San Francisco is as it regards equality of opportunity and providing resources for black institutions led. Yeah, I'm not gonna argue with you on that. I think, you know, we do have some, some of the mid-sized ones like Providence, but you're right. I mean, we don't, we have a number of legacy organizations that have, have been traditionally white led. I know a lot of them are changing in terms of their executive leadership and their boards. But when you talk about indigenous and, um, you know, organizations that have been around a long time, you're right. There's a, there's a really big discrepancy, Reverend Brown. And I know you and I have had this conversation before, but that is definitely something that, that needs to change. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Reverend Brown. Thank you, Director McSpadden. Okay, now I'd like to go to public comment. Again, really appreciate the time and attention um, that everyone has given. And so uh, I want to go to public comment. Um, let me just say to our to our directors, um, just before you you part. We, we did ask the community to wait so that we could hear from you and committee first. So I understand it's late, it's late for us all, uh, but now we're inviting community to speak to you as well. I received a public comment card from ACE and from um, Belfry. So listen, I only got two minutes and I've been here five hours. I got so much to say about this community, about this board and everything that's happening about this African-American, I mean, what they call reparations. Let me just start off by saying, number one, what I'm here doing is tracking, monitoring, documenting, and reporting all of this. And it all boils down to, we didn't seen this show before. Doubt migration. Some of the people who was here that was on that, Reverend Brown, you was on that. And the same thing that's happening back then is happening now, where the city is in a deficit. So therefore, ain't no money gonna be spent on us right now for this budget. We could talk all this talk that you wanna talk. But I'm here to tell you, Ace is on the case, and I, I have been documenting this for years. And, it's, and so many tears is the same shit uh, happening again. Y'all sitting up there, y'all doing a good job. But we in the background here saying, what? The, the city departments did what? And they haven't did what? 
how come y'all haven't got these department heads here earlier? I mean, y'all been doing this for two years. And now all of a sudden, at the end of the game, you're going to have the, the, the housing people and they all the uh, city departments here, and we got to listen to all this jib-jab, and we got to listen to y'all jib-jib-jib-jab. But the bottom line is there needs to be an all-hands-on-deck meeting with all the developers uh, uh, with the uh, city departments. I'm talking about a meeting, if it be one of those meetings that take all day or whatever, so we can find out what's really going down. Right now, we don't, I don't know what's happening. And I've been here videotaping. Look, I'm tired, but the bottom line is I'm going to let y'all go. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, brothers. Right now, I'm talking to the agency. Uh, I'm doing the story on the rise and fall. Ace, Ace, your time's up. Yes, everyone has two minutes. Everyone has two minutes, Brother Ace. Thank you. Give us two minutes. Me too. Are there any other members of the public attending in person who want to participate in public comment on this item? All right. Um, I'm going to try to keep this short. Requiring that rec uh, recipients of reparations be able to trace their ancestry to an enslaved person is an onerous requirement. Chattel slavery strips so many of us from our families and heritage and has made it expensive, difficult, or impossible to, to trace our lineage back to slavery. As the eligibility criteria in the proposal notes, Black folks who've experienced all these various inequalities all have a claim to redress via reparations, and it's vitally important not to pit us against one another or against other marginalized groups in the quest to redress these harms that we've collectively faced. We need solutions that uplift our whole diverse community, as well as other systematically marginalized groups in San Francisco. As the Freedom Socialist Party writes in a revolutionary call for black reparations, we not only need a multiracial movement to achieve reparations for black folks, and because this is something that will uplift the entire working class. It's also really unlikely that those that were personally affected by or descended from someone who was affected by the war on drugs, um, the consent decree issue, lending discrimination or, or urban renewal might have the um, documentation needed to prove these claims. While the proposal is fairly comprehensive in scope, a glaring omission is reparations and ongoing protections for those who have been victimized by the police. This is a necessary component that must be considered. Not only must there be reconciliation and reparations for communities that continue to be impacted by police terror, but there need to be reforms and reassessment of the role police continue to play in the black community in, in San Francisco. Overall, we need more than you know y'all alone can give. We need sis, a s complete systemic change. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. And I just want to remind everyone that we are talking about housing right now. So I'd like to welcome the next person up for public comment. Thank you. 
Tonight continues to reinforce the system is working exactly the way it was intended and that you cannot train or regulate people's hearts. The responses to questions asked have been PC, ranging from that's a great question or I don't have the answer right now, but I can get that information to you or I agree with you or we can talk offline. It's disconcerting to me as a San Francisco resident to hear that departments directly involved in the ethnic cleansing of Black San Franciscans are still participating in, in this behavior based on the reports presented. These departments aren't being innovative, revolutionary, or even leading with humanity toward Black people. I'd like to know when these jobs were accepted, which person who presented this evening said, I'm going to go into this job and fight against the systemic racism my department participated in against Black people, mm. or say, I'm not going to just show up to work or participate in the status quo. The PC answers have been equivalent to anti-Blackness. Mm. Thank you. Thank you. Next, to call the next member of the public up to provide mm -hmm. public comment. Sorry. Hi, I'm Sherelle Jackson. Um, reparations is an incredibly important time. And it's so important that we make sure that housing vulnerabilities are addressed. That the people who are oppressed the most systematically and by financial hardships that they have the resources that they need from the community and from this task force. If we can stand by and ensure that we hold departments accountable, we will be able to address so many of the concerns of those that have been oppressed. We need to do this work. We need to go back to the drawing board on some of these city departments and start restructuring because the infrastructure is just not there and the policies aren't there to represent us the right way. There's a huge disconnect from those who work on the front lines and have to really give those resources out. And so we need to fix that. And I'm seeing that with what the, the responses that were given today, they're not connecting with the people who have to serve those folks. And quite frankly, we need to do something about it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Are there any other members of the public attending in person who'd like to comment on this? Thank you. Good evening. Thank you to the committee for holding these meetings. My name is Sarah Gold. I am also a member of the Freedom Socialist Party. The proposals of the health subcommittee address community violence. Community violence is a crisis, and it stems from the entire community's lack of access to resources. Sorry, excuse me one second. So this item is on housing. This is item number three. There's a general public comment where it sounds like your comments may be more appropriately. Mm -hmm. I understand. But if I let you go off topic, then I have to let everybody else go off topic, and I can't do that. Um, I don't think it'll be two hours, but I will ask you to wait, yes. Thank you. On housing. It's paper. Um, 
the April, May, 2023 issue. So first article below the fold, LA housing campaign. So this is in Los Angeles, but it's all over as you can see, um, exposes depth of corporate political ties. So maybe there's something going on here with corporations, just a thought that needs to be fixed so that people can get housing. You know, maybe if developers are not making money off of these $3,000 a month developments, you know, maybe they just don't make money on their investment. And I think that's okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Are there any other members of the public attending in person who'd like to comment on this item? I don't see any more. I do see people attending remotely who would like to participate and comment on Thank this you. item. Please proceed. Alicia Mayo. Good evening. When you applied for your positions, um, this is going uh, to the uh, department um, representatives who spoke tonight. When you applied for your position, you might not have realized you signed up to play the housing shell game. You are involved in housing corruption and discrimination that is happening currently. What is happening today with housing is criminal, just like in the past. This is special interest at work. I hope this experience equips you with a deeper appreciation and understanding of what has hurt us and what has been the problem in this city for black people. I'm begging you to change history, tell the true stories. I look forward to an expose with you re revealing what was actually going on here. The city and state must investigate each and every department of housing in San Francisco. Investigations need to happen immediately. 22 people got housings. Uh, sir, Mr. Bass, do not send out the party invitations yet. MoCD, mm -hmm. your DreamKeeper down payment assistance program is not flexible enough for me, a native San Franciscan and an inaugural DreamKeeper. I would not be an owner who could pass on the property to my children. That don't even sound right. The housing corporations and individuals who control housing are part of special interest. The people my grandparents worked enslaved for helped them with the down payment on a home that we all lived in as children in the 60s. It's the same programs offering uh, being offered today. We can't live in that same house today as a bunch of grown folks, adults. How many uh, homes are now available for $1. How many reparations qualifying individuals and families are these departments ready and willing to house according to the future reparations mandates? Are you all ready to give up? Thank you for your comments. I would like to welcome Melody Huff. Yes, good evening. Thank you for having me. Uh, my name is uh, Dr. Melody Huff, and I um, am the executive director for Change SF, and I am a San Francisco native, excuse <clears throat> me, native and born and raised in Western Edition, Filmer District, and I have a solution to this crisis in Black San Francisco as far as housing, and it is Change SF. We are a community housing agency nurturing growth and empowerment through community development, entrepreneurship, housing, education, and resources please visit www.changesf.org because we want to work with all of these departments here tonight 
because we want to house Black San Francisco. We want to house the working families. We want to be the meta, the balance, the Chinatown uh, Community Development Center for Western Edition, for Bayview. And we believe that we can help you. We would gladly take on your housing issues and your inventory that you have. And we would cut through the housing bureaucracy and make sure that this red tape that exists, these barriers of credit, the barriers of not being able to afford 45, four times $4,500 a month, $18,000 a month to move in. Developers are getting tax breaks. They're getting abatements, tax credits, and they shouldn't if they're not housing. Affordable does not mean that Black people live there. So Change SF wants to work with you. Please visit us online at www.changesf.org. And my email is in the comments. Thank you. Thank you. I'd like to um, invite our next guest, El Elena Vargas. Welcome. Islam, peace and love and blessings. Honors to the great God of the universe, the most high God of the universe. Um, I now only have two minutes for comment. So my thing is that um, we shouldn't look at this as a how do we make this happen? or what are we paying for, or what are gonna be the results or the effects? The effects are universal. It's gonna be putting um, the people who need it the most into positions where they can self-sustain. Me, myself, I've never been, you know, I've never had a house. I've never grown up in a whole community. You know, I've never, you know, have been able to have a mother and a father, some of the things that we all have faced and some have solved greater um, things like, than I've been through. But what I can say is that I'm for everybody having, you know, the equal opportunity to this, um, no matter what, because of the fact that um, everybody's been affected by this, whether we want to look down upon them or look up upon them, um, everybody, especially in the so-called Black community, has been affected by this. So we can't um, rule anybody out of it. I think that we should be inclusive and do it with goodness in our hearts because if we were in their position we want them to treat us the same islam peace thank you for your comments now i'd like to welcome cheryl thornton hi good evening um i would just like to say that um to the presenters that you could take the language that they recommended in the reparations report around housing and adopt and recommend to adopt that language um, effective immediately. I think that there should also, if there's any kind of way to come up with a category of um, descendant of slavery as a, a preference. And then thirdly, I think that given the housing crisis in San Francisco, it won't be resolved anytime soon this just seems like more of the same, more reports, more studying. So you just need to cut the check because people have been harmed and they can't wait anymore. San Francisco implemented urban renewal in the 60s. You see what it's done to the black community. Throughout, It's reduced the population down to 5%, but yet we bear the brunt of the homelessness in San Francisco. So again, I think you guys should just adopt the language that the reparations committee is recommending and as around housing and cut the check, um, support cutting the check. Thank you. Thank you. Now I'd like to welcome LaDonna Williams. 
Yes, good evening. Um, first of all, this was such a huge data dump that it's hard to even keep focused, but I gather we're supposed to talk about housing. They could easily start with the Section 8 or public housing uh, list of the folks who have been displaced, especially like the Geneva Towers, Sunnydale, where many of them were were uh, misplaced, displaced, and forced either into Treasure Island or on their family members' couches. It's real easy to trace that. But also, too, we cannot not mention the fact that that visual, and we work a lot by visuals, of the Planning Commission had a non-Black woman pictured, a non-Black mother on there, yet we're supposed to believe that they're taking serious black focus issues. We've heard black and brown. We've heard about the so-called Native Americans who, by the way, since the 1800s have been taken care of while blacks have been displaced, misplaced, and continuing to be harmed today. Also, why is it your experts only respond to someone or people with titles? If it's someone that is just an average resident and we reach out to your experts, such as Dr. Kirby Lynch, they ignore us. We live in the same city. We've reached out to them several times only to be ignored, yet you present them in our faces like they're these experts speaking for us when they should be responding to us. And someone mentioned that. Thank you on the committee for mentioning that aspect. I will make other comments in the public uh, comment if we ever get around to it. But also this uh, student who played basketball in Bayview Hunters Point, we ought to be outraged at that. That was his level of engagement. He played basketball. He couldn't think of nothing else to say. Thank you for your comments. Now I'd like to welcome JB. <clears throat> oh, sorry about that. Uh, hello. Um, I'm sorry I couldn't be there tonight. Um, I really wanted to. Uh, so once again, I want to thank you guys for the work that you're doing. I know this is unprecedented, but um, I heard someone, you know, asking for an example of a black community that is successful to help develop a plan for, you know, housing in San Francisco. And for that, I say look no further than the state of Maryland. Uh, in Prince George's County and now Charles County, Maryland, they both battled for the title for the richest black counties in America. Although both counties, you know, are full of black people who have been displaced from Washington, D.C., the reason they battled for that incredible title is an abundance of black people being freely and abundantly able to directly work within the backbone of the economy of that area which is the government in and around our nation's capital now the two main challenges for that are number one mimicking something like that here and two creating a reverse effect where black san franciscans aren't leaving the city in droves only to still end up commuting back to the city for work like they do in those two counties i just mentioned so someone else also mentioned about um something drastic needs to take place. And to that, I will say, you know, figure out how to actively redesign the school curriculum at the schools in our black community so that students will be, you know, actively training to get these basic certifications, to get these jobs when, when they graduate in these sectors um, surrounding such as tech. Excuse uh, me, but like, this is about housing and- Right, it, the, part, the part about housing is, you know, when they're working those same jobs that these tech workers are coming in here displacing everybody with, when they're working those jobs, they can actually afford to move into these houses, but they're not getting the type of jobs that these people are getting with these high salaries. You know, as a matter of fact, I'll rather them, you know, 
it's a lot of students learning learning who won what war in the 1700s when in reality they could google that when they when and if they want to know that and instead i'll rather than work at google so that they can afford to move here move back into the city that they grew up in no no kid who grew up in the city should not be able to not be able to afford to move back to the city that thank you for your comments now i'd like to welcome Lewis shepherd Can you unmute yourself? Okay, we'll move on to Jessica Ellis and try Libba Shepherd again. Hello. Um, hello. Gonna, hello, this is Jessica Ellis. Thank you all for still being here. I'm going to make it short because it's just so much I'm a little emotional I'm just wondering what housing I didn't hear anything about disabled people or special needs families special needs children I know what I've had to go through as as a special needs mother to um get housing when I when I came here and still supporting you know you know happy autism awareness and acceptance month i'm just i'm just wanting to come to you guys and say do not forget you know about our special needs kids in this process and the little bit i heard about about mental illness or whatever how many of these mental ill people on the street started off as special needs kids that this city has failed? So um, I'm a, um, yeah, it's, I just want to make sure, just wanted to bring up the, the word um, dis disabilities and um, special needs families and, um, I also wanted, didn't hear anything about foster care youth, how many, you know, how many of these children that San Francisco have failed are homeless on the streets. And um, my last hat is um, criminal justice. You know, we, God's gonna open up the doors of these prisons and let his people out. And we need to be, have a system prepared for, um, Thank you for your comments. I'd like to see if Libba Shepard is able to um, unmute. Libba Shepard. Okay, we are going to move on to M. Mohammed. M. Muhammad, can you um, unmute yourself? Okay, let's move on to Nasira Ajila. Oh, M. Muhammad has unmuted. Okay, we'll take your public comment. Thank you. Hello? 
Hello? Yes, can you hear me? Hello? Yes. Okay, we we have a bad connection. Um, let's try Liba Shepherd. Okay, I don't see Liba um, unmuting. Let's go to Mo McNeely. Um, hello, good evening, everyone. Um, in regards to housing, I really would like to know all of the people who all the panelists have spoke uh, regarding. Like, I want to know if they understand like how hard it is to even get into the below market rate and low-income housing. Like, it's really hard. People have waited years, decades even. And so, like, to me, like, the requirements need changing, and those are things that that you guys can, ch can you know, you guys can change those things. Um, and in, a, in addition to that, like, section, section 8 has always been a problem. To me, the um, OCII is just like Redevelopment Agency 2.0. So it was like Redevelopment Agency was just able to evict people and take properties over and close down businesses during um, through eminent domain. And then once that agency dissolved in what, 2012 and OCII became the, the new agency, it stalled in regards to getting people in housing. So it's just kind of like, when are you gonna understand that like this just failure after failure after failure regarding our people. And to everyone who's listening, can we please stop doing the black and brown thing? All right. We are, and especially in the reparations realm, we are talking about black people, specifically black Americans. As a black and brown person, please stop using black and brown in re regards to us in these realms. Thank you very much. Thank Annoying. you. Now, now I'd like to um, welcome Jeffrey Greer. Can you hear me? Yes. Well, uh, I'm just going to say, you know, first of all, just cut the check. You know, let's just, just, just dispense with all of this. You can get back to the masturbatory uh, bureaucratic process that uh, has been going on for decades later. and Send people through the Section 8 process. They can wait another 10 years to get things situated. And we can go through all of that. But meanwhile, just cut the check. You know, and that is directly connected to housing. I don't understand. Are there several people that you have on the uh, uh, mayor's, uh, what is it, the, the silent mortgage program with the city? Of course, that's that unless you have a process to get out from under it. That's another form of trickery because they just loan you a house for duration of time. And then the city comes and takes it back. So um, I think that really this whole process and everything that you're doing and i'm not slamming you your uh, the organization in particular i'm just saying you really do need to look at the process we're getting caught up in the process and not the solution i mean this whole thing waiting from 5 30 to 10 30 what is it, 11 o'clock at night so i can get two minutes that's that's what it's like waiting on section eight that's what it's like waiting for housing that's what it's like wondering if you're going to be evicted 
I guess that's my uh, little get off the line note. But uh, once again, cut the check. Thank you. Now I would like to welcome Dee Dee Hewitt. Can you hear me? Yes, thank you. Okay, so let me try to summarize this in the bullet points. Thank you, everybody, for this long, exhaustive meeting. To this extraordinary panel, I listened to all of your salient points. You are right on point, and you guys go handle it. I appreciate your efforts. I'd like to say a couple of things with regards to our department heads so we can get out of here. Department heads, we need to see a streamlining policy. The continuity and policy implementation and theory is not working. So what we need to do is streamline it so that Black people have access to these critical services. With regards to housing, Section 8 is dismal. Project-based Section 8, project-based Section 8 developments like MLK, Marcus Garvey, we referenced, and I want to correct something for the record. The stats are more like less than 5% Black at what was historically a Black co-op. So we want to look at the disparate impact on how we are massively being evicted. And then that's not even a real solution for Black people in terms of home ownership, because we're living in subpar, substandard living conditions. We have mold and mildew, asbestos, uh, uh, delayed maintenance, and all those kinds of issues. So that's not really a salient solution for Black people. We want real solid investment in home ownership. And we want it across the board. And we also want the check cut. But let's look at continuity and policy. Okay, you can't have all these theoretical policies on paper that are not practical in application. And we don't want to be given lip service that down the line will not be funded. So let's look at real short-term streamline processes like you're doing with mini grants and DKI funding, streamline processes for getting Black people into housing and continuity across all departments because people that are Black have a myriad of issues that block them from getting into housing. So we want to look at continuity of services all around the board across all tiers of government. That conversation needs to be had with HUD. That conversation needs to be had with the, the state. And that conversation needs to be had with all city departments. Thank you for your comments. Um, I would like to try Liba Shepard one more time. And M, or now we will try M. Mohammed. Okay, are there any other members of the public who would like to participate in public comment on this item? Okay, there are none. Oh, Victoria Grigsby. Thank you. I'd just like to add um, in regards to housing. Uh, one of the very first jobs while trying to get into the city employment, I am there now, it took 10 years, put a child through college on a temporary job for four years for him to come back and serve the public of San Francisco while, while homeless here doing so, um, and still cannot afford to live here. Um, I'm caught up in too low to qualify for anything and then too high. And I think that's been spoken on um, quite a bit during the meeting. And I just wanna say thank you for all that you do and the communities are behind. I mean, one of the first jobs offered was for me to go up into the Bayview Hunters Point and to start evicting people. That was one of the first jobs offered to me here. Well, we asked the department heads to go into your departments and use some of those FTEs. Well, you know, work is down, work is low. 
identify some of those employees who is willing to go into their own communities and to do the work. We do not want to just sit and, and not do work while work is low. We, we prefer to work. And if that means going into our own communities to work, we're willing. You just need to engage with your staff and make sure they, they're willing and they're able. Thank you. Thank you. Are there any other members of the public who would like to comment on housing presentations? I see Taconia Maxi. Yes, um, this is on housing. I live in the property on Osceola. Um, just going on the process of the listing, I don't think you guys know. I was homeless with my son um, when I got 18 and moved out of my mom's house. The only reason that I have housing now is because my cousin put me on her lease before she moved out. I live on Osceola. We have a gang of vacancies. And from my understanding, they're supposed to pull from a wait list. So I think that the people who serve the board need to see how that wait list is monitored and why there are so many vacancies for so many years when we have so many kids and families in two and three bedrooms available. That's all. Thank you. Um, I'd like to welcome Ayat Jalal Bryant. Hello, blessings. Thank you. Thank you um, to the panelists. I would just like to um, speak directly about the homeless issue. Um, being homeless in San Francisco, fighting for homelessness, um, building houses in Oakland, taking houses in San Francisco, um, housing people. It is very important to build our people up. I would like to say point blank about this homelessness. I am in the middle of a journey across this country, literally. I'm in um, Florida right now. I'll be back in a couple of weeks. Um, I set out to go see what our people are doing other places, what the city is doing to our, 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 our people. Um, the mode that transferred from San Francisco as far as closing down our businesses, um, um, Fillmore moved over into Oakland, that same model that's used in Oakland is being used around the world. Um, and what I see is not a change in homelessness. What I'm seeing is this new, this whole new, um, what do you call this whole new industry of people coming in, counseling, taking um, notes, studying us, studying our, our, our disability that is being created and making money off of it. There is literally, if you will pay attention, there are two to three, two million um, whites who are displaced from South um, Africa. They did not go to the UK. Um, if you listen to, I'm not going to go too deep into it, but this city is being given to everybody but us. We need to realize we have never needed anybody else as far as um, our Kibulonic people. We have been the best on our own. And we have, when we left alone, not only do we stand and thrive, but we help others and show others and lead others the way. We need to walk out of this principle and this thought that we, did, that we need to ask anybody for anything and that we need inclusion. We are forced to push our kids into a society that will only work them like slaves, even though they have no change, just for its benefit. I implore us, if not through repariation, that we start looking for something that we have and hold to ourselves. You have a Chinatown, J Chinatown, J Japantown, everything else. We need. Thank you for your comments. Are there any other members of the public who would like to comment on housing right now? Okay, Chair, I don't see any members. Seeing none, public comment is closed. And with that, item number three is concluded.
I just also want to acknowledge and thank uh, Director Hillis for staying for public comment. We appreciate that. Right. Okay. Um, so, members, we can stay till 1 a.m. or we can table items four and five. Um, however, it does mean um, we will want and need to schedule a special meeting just for the recommendations. Okay. All right. Excellent. With that, then we will move to item number six, which is general public comment. It didn't take two hours to get here. General public comment, please. We'll start in the room. Good evening. Thank you to the committee for holding these meetings. I know it's a lot of hard work. My name is Sarah Gold. I'm a member of the Freedom Socialist Party. The proposals of the health subcommittee address community violence. Community violence is a crisis and it stems from the entire community's lack of access to resources. In a system where competition between individuals is touted as the solution to the lack of resources working people are faced with, People trying to feed themselves and their families will resort to violence and crime in order to survive. By not addressing the root of the problem, an economic system that creates absurd profits for a few through exploitation of the rest of us, these proposals, while well-intentioned, ensure the underlying problems will remain. While the reparations proposal document acknowledges the history and impact of police violence on the black community, no strategies to rectify, prevent, or hold accountable those responsible for police violence are given at all, which is clearly an enormous oversight in the wake of global protests against police brutality and murder just three years ago. In order for the black and people of color communities of San Francisco to heal from the impacts of racism, it's necessary to not only acknowledge the material impact that police violence has had and continues to have, but to take specific actionable measures to make law enforcement truly accountable to the people of San Francisco and maybe hold some of those housing folks accountable as well. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Are there any other members of the public attending in person who would like to participate in general public comment? Okay, now we will move on to those of you participating remotely. Nasira Ajila, welcome. Yes, I'm Nasira Ajila. I was Deborah Tripp. Um, I was born and raised in San Francisco, California in 1954. Um, my father and mother had a house on McAllister and Buchanan, and I also attended John Sweat Elementary. And for some reason, in 1966, my class was the last to um, graduate from that school. So that meant all my sisters and brothers, um, they had to go to schools outside of our area. And just to mention that we have gone through this so many times with our family having community talks about not wanting to sell the property. And then after they decided that they didn't want to do it, as I said before, uh, the house across the street was bombed and all our windows came out and the ceiling had fallen in. And we moved to a place that it, there was still more challenges there. 
And the community that came in and took over, they were the ones that wanted us to move so that they can prevent us from excelling to the highest degree of our education. And we all have had to move from one state to another. I have been uh, homeless four times. And the fourth time in 1972, when I was homeless, I couldn't get any help in San Francisco. I had to go to Alaska. And when I gone there, I didn't have the homeless problem because they gave us an opportunity to be able to continue to educating our children. So I just wanna say that all of this goes back to my family coming from Arkansas to San Francisco during the forties. And they were a part of Third Baptist Church and they were also working with the NAACP and all of the things that they have done, we're still. Thank you for your comment. The two minutes had expired. I will now welcome Leba Shepard. I see Leba's hand raised. Are you able to unmute? Are you able to hear me now? Thank you. Wow. I've been, um, anyway, I guess major technical problems. Thank you guys all um, for being here. And, you know, it's just kind of disturbing to my heart, quite honestly, because I don't think that there's another people on this planet who has went through this to get reparations. Reparations have been given to the Chinese community, the Japanese community, to the Jews, to the Native Americans. I mean, everybody on this planet um, have received reparations. Um, it's, it's just really disturbing. And at this point, I think if you were to do the right thing, you would honestly just cut our check. Um, and we're just not, you know, I just don't see us just keep going through this and going through this and going through this as a people. We have built this country. Historically, you know what we have done. Um, it doesn't take much to see. And I'm, I'm just really pleading that this board um, will really do the right thing for once in history. Um, you have a right you, you have the opportunity to make history and to do right in history. And my heart, mind, and soul really hopes that you will do that and cut our check. With that, I'm out. Thank you. I'd like to welcome back Dee Dee Hewitt. Can you hear me? Yes. Thank you. Thank you for welcoming me back. I, what I didn't get to say in, in my time span last time is it's going to be really important, is that when we look at these uh, for, on the housing issue, when we look at building new housing, there has to be greater depth of affordability. So when we talk about affordable units, and this, when I worked at the redevelopment agency, was a big thing that Mary Rogers brought up, my mother Sharon Hewitt brought up, and other icons in housing. What they said was, it has to be affordable for the target population. So just saying, hey, to a developer, make 30% affordable, that's really vague language. We got to dig into the nuts and bolts of the level of affordability, particularly when you talk about the median income for Blacks being so disparate. So if the average Black is making $29,000, a $3,000 one-bedroom is not apropos. So I really want you guys to pay attention to those kind of details 
with regards to the allocation of affordable housing units. Thank you. Thank you. Now I'd like to welcome back LaDonna Williams. Yes, um, I had asked a question in the Q&A that was ignored by Brittany Chukata. And that question was, how much is Dr. Kirby Lynch and her group being paid? That question is the only one not being answered. And I wanna ask the committee to be transparent in, in uh, posting up the budget, how much of, of the budget are you all working from and also being paid for your participation? This is called transparency and, and communication with the public. Also, this meeting here is proof of why $5 million for qualified residents of San Francisco is a very reasonable, it actually undercuts us, but it's a very reasonable number to start with while you all continue these endless meetings, endless experts, endless reports, $5 million to start this process while we can begin the road of recovery, while you all decide to keep on talking and keep on talking with no solutions at the end and justifying these processes that is making our black people fall further and further behind while we put on this dog and pony show, like we're really trying to address this, this monster called reparations. It is not that difficult. Start now with an emergency process that releases payments to qualified residents who have been harmed, they can then begin the road of recovery while we figure out the rest. But this is not a final payment. This is an uh, with ongoing maintenance payments that is tax exempt, that supports the people getting on their feet. It is not that hard to figure this out. These endless meetings must stop with no end in sight and you, all of this here is repetitive of what we've been hearing for the last. Thank you for your comments. Now I would like to welcome JB back. Welcome. Um, hi. Yeah, I wanted to make sure I got to finish what I was saying because I wanted to make sure I was able to tie it all together. You know, no, no kid born in San Francisco should ever have to worry about being able to afford to live in San Francisco. And I'm not just talking about renting in san francisco i mean actually owning property even if their parents didn't own property and that's what i was talking about you know black these 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 students changing up the curriculum in these schools to stop teaching things that some of these kids will never use in their adult life they need to know this they need to know how to get into these tech industries they need these certifications so that they can get those same type of jobs so that they can afford to make the same type of money that these people who are living in san francisco are displacing everybody with and there, there's nobody work. There's, there's not hardly any black people working at Google. That's a huge problem. And we have our black youth in San Francisco who who don't have the certifications to work at Google, who aren't being trained to work at Google. We need to be paying them to get the training to go work at Google so that they can afford to pick up not just off of whatever someone might get a check now, but in the future. This Because we, we don't want to be asking for reparations again 15, 20 years from now. So um, also for adults, adults need paid training to get down there too. They're adults where if they were paid to know how to do this type of stuff they're doing down there in Silicon Valley, they would do it. Pay, pay us to do it so that we can get the same type of jobs and get that real diversity down there with us in it, black people. And, um, you know, the reason why um, in, in the, um, Maryland and Prince George's County and Charles County, they're getting government jobs 
because they see the stability that these jobs are providing and they're living amongst each other and seeing the benefits. They don't they don't get these jobs because they like the work. They get these jobs because they see the benefits of what it does. Train us how to do the type of work that is making these people all this type of money so that we can actually keep up with them and not, you know, in, for the future, not just now, but definitely for the future. Thank you. Now I'd like to welcome Prince Ramses. Hey, can you hear me? Yes. Okay, so I wanted to address a few things. First, um, about the $5 million in compensation. Um, we know that the national racial wealth gap is about 350K. And if I had to ask if anyone, what is the racial wealth gap in San Francisco, we would all say it's greater than 350K. Um, SF has the highest concentration of billionaires. And even if we ask, is the racial wealth gap in SF greater than 5 million, it potentially is. Um, so as one of the previous speakers says, I think $5 million is um, generous as a reasonable um, you know, minimum. Um, and then the other thing we have to talk about is the eligibility requirements. Um, the UN definition of reparation says, victims are persons who individually or collectively suffered harm. And the term victim also includes the immediate family or dependents of the direct victim. So when talking about reparations and reparations for slavery, um, those direct uh, victims would be persons who were emancipated in the United States or their descendants, otherwise known as American freedmen or African-American freedmen. Um, and with the eligibility requirements right now, at least having the 18 year old or, or older requirement, a question people would have to ask is, how many are descendants of persons emancipated in the United States and 18 plus? Um, and then if you want to add a residency requirement, you could say born in SF or spent a majority of your life in SF. Um, and in my last few seconds, I'll say we have to include the five definition, restitution, compensation, rehabilitation, satisfaction, and discontinuation. And we need a Freeman Bureau, a Freeman Bank, Freeman Schools, Freeman Hospitals, and Freeman Courts. Thank you. Thank you. In addition to the five million. Now I'd like to uh, welcome Taconia Maxi. Oh, I'm sorry. One issue I noticed that wasn't brought up in the Black community was our domestic violence. Me being a domestic violence survivor myself, um, and the resources that's provided, we don't get we we don't get the information like y'all think we get in the low income. I'm going through a situation where the DA wrote me a whole letter. They let my abuser out the very next day. The very next day, he came back up on here regarding the strain order. I was told by CalWorks to go to La Casa. La Casa didn't, oh, well, one-stop center. We don't really give out vouchers. So it's like, not only that, it's a bunch of women that stuck in their situation. My neighbor went through this situation and begged San Francisco to help her to move. They let her, they kept letting her abuse her out. Well, you know what? They didn't do nothing to shot and killed her in front of her son. So when you say those eight um, emergency housing vouchers, we never got resourced. By the time I heard of it, it was already closed. And I am still stuck in my situation with the DA office trying to figure things out because the resources, every resource that you named on here 
never give the information, never give us um, resources, and they put us back in those dangerous situations as I am in right now. So that really needs to be looked at. Thank you. Um, I'd like to welcome Sammy Broadnax. Sammy, can you unmute yourself? Okay, we might be having some technical difficulties on that line. So I would like to try M. Mohammed again. Can you unmute yourself? Okay, we will move away from that line and welcome Ayat Jalal Bryant. Um, thank you very much. Respect to um, Prince Ramses um, mentioning the freedmen. Yes, Maroon Nation still stands. Um, I would like to think um, we need our own. We need, to, we need to do our own. We need our own land. We need, a, we need our own civilizations. We need a, a nation within a nation. Um, yes, um, it's happening in Maryland, um, brother, but you know they can use us, and we are the best people everywhere. Here in San Francisco, most of our youth are either cleaning or being security guards. Um, I'd just like to say, um, let me just throw this out there because I'm, I'm for total separation. Um, but let me say, if you want to go on the lines of repatriation, let's look at 3000 a month average for a year. Let's call that, um, what's that, 36000 That's 36000 a year. That's 180000 for five years. Is that what it goes? Immediately place people into housing where they don't have to worry about any rent or anything else so that they can go back to school or do something so they can consider and think our way out of this as a people. Um, there is something that can be done immediately. Um, I'm not gonna blast you off for doing your meetings and everything else. And I know everybody's getting paid. It's a, it's, it's a big industry, everything from homelessness to all dissidents in society. Um, you know, if every one person hurt, there's five people getting paid to, 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 to deal with it. Um, we just need to think a better thought and go forward, you know? Um, and I'll, I'll just stop it at that. Thank you. Now I'd like to welcome back Yasmin Abdusami. Good evening. My name is Yasmin Abdusami Oakley, and I would like to give a comment about, um, um, I also feel that my question was not answered. Um, can the commission and its presenters stop using the vague term black and speak directly and specifically about the descendants of US chattel enslavement that built communities in San Francisco? This is not about race. This is about lineage and San Francisco should be following the lead of the task force, especially in regards when it comes to uh, uh, creating eligibility for lineage-based reparations. Um, this is a very big deal. Your language is extremely vague and has been so for the last couple of years, and it really needs to be tightened up because, unfortunately, you're advocating for people who I don't think you're mean to advocate for when you use, oh, Black, Black people 
there is terminology for you to speak specifically to descendants, to the descended community. And I think that this committee needs to really educate themselves on how to do so properly. There are groups that I'm sure you are in contact with like the American Redress Coalition of California and the Coalition for Just and Equitable California that can help you be specific. Um, we are watching you um, in East Palo Alto. So much love from East Palo Alto to the commission. Thank you. Thank you. Now I'd like to welcome back Alicia Mayo. All right, everyone. Thank you for staying. Thank you for being here. Thank you for all of the work you're doing. Um, the, I'm asking for a reparations stimulus package. We can call it reparations stimulus package. Also, my son, my oldest son was born in 1997 at California Pacific Medical Center. At the time, I was the wife of um, a SFPD employee. And I also worked for Caltrans and Metro Traffic Control as a traffic reporter. But we couldn't afford, with both of our salaries, we couldn't afford to stay in San Francisco. So we were forced to move out. The trauma destroyed our family. We were separated from family support to help babysit and all that. Slowly, our family was broken up. Now, here I am as a single mother who doesn't qualify for most CD housing, who doesn't make enough to afford to live on my own without some kind of support or help from the city. And I would never be able to transfer anything to my child and he wouldn't qualify for reparations. There's still a lot of work to do in terms of qualifications, reparations, stimulus to help us live now. And um, that's it, that's it. Thank you. Um, I'd like to welcome Victoria Grigsby. Thank you quickly. I just wanted to add, I had the opportunity to attend the uh, Dignity um, during the, the bust and boom, hopefully I'm saying that correct, Friday. And I met many of the, the board members, including the president, and I personally know uh, committee member Gloria uh, Berry. It was wonderful to be able to connect and understand what's going on. I absolutely do support reparations, but it goes beyond that. Um, reparations is also, I'm a fourth generation um, uh, resident here in San Francisco. My children are fifth generation. And I am afraid we will be the last uh, generations here. Again, I promised my son, you go off to college, graduated college four years, come back, serve in here in civil service. He still lives with me, gainfully employed for this city. My daughter, gainfully employed. She still lives with me. There is no way we can make it here without reparations, unfortunately. And they're 30 and 28 years old. So, and I work for the city and can't barely afford to live here without assistance from my grandparents, my mother. So we, I absolutely support reparations, but we also need to get out and get engaged into the community. I would have not known about that meeting had it not been through the Black Network, through my own department, through someone who was working racial and social equity. So there is a, a, there is a, 
a gap with, you know, getting out to the community, getting this information here. There's a lot of people that support you all and the work you're doing, but we're for somehow, some way there is a disconnect. And I'm asking that you all connect with department heads, have them engage with their, their employees and find out how can we engage more into the community. We can access their tools, but it's going to take for us to get into our own communities. Employees of the San Francisco is the largest employee employer here. And so we can get this work done. It just requires us to reach out and, 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 and start working for us. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I'd like to welcome Mo McNeely. Hi, I just wanted to briefly make a comment regarding the eligibility. Um, same as the other lady who spoke previously, being of lineage is much better and we will not be sued. We can't say black just because, again, Proposition 209 will not allow us to pass reparations legislation regarding race-based um, privileges. And that is what you know, reparations is seen as. So if you could just please, again, I implore the task force, lineage-based reparations is what we need um, in this city. And um, that should also go along with genealogical services um, for folks who would have difficulty. Um, so thank you, that's all I wanted to say. Thank you. Um, I do see Taconia Maxi's hand raised. I'm so sorry. I'll take my hand down. Sorry, I forgot earlier. Okay. If there are any other members of the public who would like to participate in general public comment on items not on the agenda, please raise your hand. Okay. I want to remind folks who have already commented on this item that you are only allowed to um, the rules of the body prohibit commenting twice on the same item. I would like to welcome Sammy Brodnax. Are you able to unmute yourself this time? Can you hear me? Yes, thank you. Thank you. I've been listening for all night long. <laughs> but what I want to say is I really appreciate everything you all are doing. And I'm not a young man, so I need to see reparation done quickly. I'm 76 years old. So, hey, sick and everything else. I've been promised reparations for so many years when they promised us 40 acres of land and a mule. So, uh, I'm not holding anyone responsible, but these people, the white people, the white man is holding us back. Thank you, Ben Noah. We are still in slavery. Let's face that. Not today. I just want us to tell them to write the check before I before I before they cover me up. Cause I can't wait you know, too much longer. I don't have that much time. You know, so hey. And I appreciate everything you all have done and what you're going to do. And I believe. You all will succeed. I might not be here, but I know you all will receive. You all gonna get the job done. My people will not fail. Keep that in mind. 
You will never fail. Just keep on pushing. Thank you. Thank you. Now I'd like to welcome Daryl Williams. Hi. Um, I just wanted to say that, uh, can you hear me? Yes, thank you. Okay. Hi. I just wanted to say that I was born and raised in San Francisco. However, I was displaced, you know, because I couldn't afford to live there anymore. And even after that, I commuted to the city for 10 straight years, you know, to work there. And then I got displaced from my job with the city uh, for exercising my constitutional right to choose. And my question, why has it taken centuries for you guys to even come up with the discussions for reparations? You know, um, I just feel there's some kind of agenda behind it. And then I feel that once that agenda is complete, that reparations, the discussions are gonna disappear in the thin air, you know, and people's time is precious. so. Please stop wasting the people's time and, and just cut the check. That's all I have to say. Thank you. Thank you. Now I'd like to welcome Sherletha Holmes Box. Thank you. I was thinking that I wasn't going to say anything in the interest of time. And I've been watching the committee members, especially Eric Chair. I mean, the chair, Eric. Um, I've been watching all of you guys and I know you're exhausted. I wanted to tell you that I appreciate everything you guys are doing. I am disillusioned about the process, but that's another uh, situation and another night. I did want to thank you all for your time. And I did want to just say, um, cut the check, for them to cut the check, and I support you guys and everything you're doing. I, one thing I did want to say as a native San Franciscan, I've watched the city and now we don't even have uh, city departments that have people in it that look like me, a majority of them. We used to even go to Muni and you could look at Muni and the majority of the Muni drivers look like me. Now there's, you go into a city department and it's just hard to dig out someone that looks like me. So all of you guys be blessed, keep up the good work and I support you in, in, in everything you're doing to help all of us. Good night. Thank you. And now I'd like to welcome Kathleen Hicks. Grace and peace to each of you. I'm Kathleen D. Hicks, the sixth of seven generations, San Francisco Fillmore, before it was the Western edition, and currently in the Bayview. I'm been listening since 5.30. I commend your stick-to-itness as far as the agenda goes. I am concerned about the contents of the agenda. Like most of the other comments, as some of the other comments, this is repetitive. Been there, done that. Where is the money really going that it can't go to the people that need it most? And our Black people, and I applaud those that say, stick to Blacks, stick to slavery, stick to lineage. Where is the money going if it's not going to us? It's not intended to go to us. My brother just said that he has faith. I, one thing that I can count on is nothing is going to change in San Francisco until our department heads 
our county officials change. Nothing is going to change unless there are people in places that look like us that are making these decisions and coming with padded remarks, the clone remarks. And I appreciate the time limit. Take care, stay safe. Thank you. Are there any other members of the public attending this meeting who would like to participate in general public comment on items not on the agenda? Okay, I see none, Chair. Seeing none, public comment is closed. Who was ahead? This person has already. Got it. it. Okay. Thank you. Thank you to members of public who did wait long to speak and we appreciate you doing so all righty members we will also table item seven until our next meeting we'll approve those at our next meeting uh, and so again we want to thank all those who participated both in the room and to our two remaining down with the people we appreciate you who are in the room yes community for all of you online, the 53 participants who have remained, um, and we appreciate you to our staff team. Uh, thank you so much for all of your support. With that, um, I will entertain a motion to adjourn. All in favor, go home, go home, be safe. And- uh, Sarah, she keeps interested.